Death at the Excelsior by P.G. Woodhouse 1. The room was the typical bedroom of the typical boarding house, furnished, insofar as it could be said to be furnished at all, with a severe simplicity. It contained two beds, a pine chest of drawers, a strip of faded carpet, and a wash basin. But there was that on the floor which set this room apart from a thousand rooms of the same kind. Flat on his back, with his hands tightly clenched and one leg twisted oddly under him, and with his teeth gleaming through his gray beard in a horrible grin, Captain John Gunner stared up at the ceiling with eyes that saw nothing. Until a moment before, he had had the little room all to himself. But now, two people were standing just inside the door, looking down at him. One was a large policeman, who twisted his helmet nervously in his hands. The other was a tall, gaunt old woman in a rusty black dress, who gazed with pale eyes at the dead man. Her face was quite expressionless. The woman was Mrs. Pickett, owner of the Excelsior Boarding House. The policeman's name was Grogan. He was a genial giant, a terror to the riotous element of the waterfront, but obviously ill at ease in the presence of death. He drew in his breath, wiped his forehead, and whispered, "'Look at his eyes, ma'am.' Mrs. Pickett had not spoken a word since she had brought the policeman into the room, and she did not do so now. Constable Grogan looked at her quickly. He was afraid of Mother Pickett, as was everybody else along the waterfront. Her silence, her pale eyes, and the quiet decisiveness of her personality cowed even the tough old salts who patronized the Excelsior. She was a formidable influence in that little community of sailormen. "'That's just how I found him,' said Mrs. Pickett. She did not speak loudly, but her voice made the policeman start." He wiped his forehead again. "'It might have been apoplexy,' he hazarded. Mrs. Pickett said nothing. There was a sound of footsteps outside, and a young man entered, carrying a black bag. "'Good morning, Mrs. Pickett. I was told that—' "'Good Lord!' The young doctor dropped to his knees beside the body and raised one of the arms. After a moment, he lowered it gently to the floor and shook his head in grim resignation. "'He's been dead for hours,' he announced. "'When did you find him?' Twenty minutes back,' replied the old woman. "'I guess he died last night. "'He never would be called in the morning. "'Said he liked to sleep on. "'Well, he's got his wish.' "'What did he die of, sir?' asked the policeman. "'It's impossible to say without an examination,' the doctor answered. "'It looks like a stroke, but I'm pretty sure it isn't.' It might be a coronary attack, but I happen to know his blood pressure was normal and his heart sound. He called in to see me only a week ago, and I examined him thoroughly. But sometimes you can be deceived. The inquest will tell us. He eyed the body almost resentfully. I can't understand it. The man had no right to drop dead like this. He was a tough old sailor who ought to have been good for another twenty years. If you want my honest opinion, though I can't possibly be certain until after the inquest, I should say he had been poisoned. How would he be poisoned? asked Mrs. Pickett quietly. That's more than I can tell you. There's no glass about that he could have drunk it from. 
he might have got it in capsule form. But why should he have done it? He was always a pretty cheerful sort of old man, wasn't he? Yes, sir, said the constable. He had the name of being a joker in these parts. Kind of sarcastic, they tell me, though he never tried it on me. He must have died quite early last night, said the doctor. He turned to Mrs. Pickett. What's become of Captain Muller? If he shares this room, he ought to be able to tell us something about it. Captain Muller spent the night with some friends at Portsmouth, said Mrs. Pickett. He left right after supper and hasn't returned. The doctor stared thoughtfully about the room, frowning. I don't like it. I can't understand it. If this had happened in India, I should have said the man had died from some form of snake-bite. I was out there two years, and I've seen a hundred cases of it. The poor devils all looked just like this. But the thing's ridiculous. How could a man be bitten by a snake in a Southampton waterfront boarding house? Was the door locked when you found him, Mrs. Pickett? Mrs. Pickett nodded. I opened it with my own key. I had been calling to him, and he didn't answer, so I guessed something was wrong. The constable spoke. You ain't touched anything, ma'am. They're always very particular about that. If the doctor's right, and there's been anything up, that's the first thing they'll ask. Everything's just as I found it. What's that on the floor beside him? the doctor asked. Only his harmonica. He liked to play it of an evening in his room. I've had some complaints about it from some of the gentlemen, but I never saw any harm, so long as he didn't play it too late. Seems as if he was playing it when it happened, Constable Grogan said. That don't look much like suicide, sir. I didn't say it was suicide. Grogan whistled. You don't think... I'm not thinking anything until after the inquest. All I say is that it's queer. Another aspect of the matter seemed to strike the policeman. I guess this ain't going to do the Excelsior any good, ma'am, he said sympathetically. Mrs. Pickett shrugged her shoulders. I suppose I had better go and notify the coroner, said the doctor. He went out, and after a momentary pause, the policeman followed him. Constable Grogan was not greatly troubled with nerves, but he felt a decided desire to be somewhere where he could not see the dead man's staring eyes. Mrs. Pickett remained where she was, looking down at the still form on the floor. Her face was expressionless, but inwardly she was tormented and alarmed. It was the first time such a thing as this had happened at the Excelsior, and, as Constable Grogan had hinted, it was not likely to increase the attractiveness of the house in the eyes of possible boarders. It was not the threatened pecuniary loss which was troubling her. As far as money was concerned, she could have lived comfortably on her savings, for she was richer than most of her friends supposed. It was the blot on the escutcheon of the Excelsior, the stain on its reputation which was tormenting her. The Excelsior was her life. Starting many years before, beyond the memory of the oldest boarder, she had built up the model establishment, the fame of which had been carried to every corner of the world. Men spoke of it as a place where you were fed well, cleanly housed, and where petty robbery was unknown. Such was the chorus of praise that it was not likely that much harm could come to the Excelsior from a single mysterious death. But Mother Pickett was not consoling herself with such reflections. 
She looked at the dead man with pale, grim eyes. Out in the hallway, the doctor's voice further increased her despair. He was talking to the police on the telephone, and she could distinctly hear his every word. 2. The offices of Mr. Paul Snyder's detective agency in New Oxford Street had grown in the course of a dozen years from a single room to an impressive suite bright with polished wood, clicking typewriters, and other evidences of success. Where once Mr. Snyder had sat and waited for clients and attended to them himself, he now sat in his private office and directed eight assistants. He had just accepted a case, a case that might be nothing at all or something exceedingly big. It was on the latter possibility that he had gambled. The fee offered was, judged by his present standards of prosperity, small. But the bizarre facts, coupled with something in the personality of the client, had won him over. He briskly touched the bell and requested that Mr. Oakes be sent in to him. Elliot Oakes was a young man who both amused and interested Mr. Snyder. For though he had only recently joined the staff, he made no secret of his intention of revolutionizing the methods of the agency. Mr. Snyder himself, in common with most of his assistants, relied for results on hard work and plenty of common sense. He had never been a detective of the showy type. Results had justified his methods. But he was perfectly aware that young Mr. Oakes looked on him as a dull old man who had been miraculously favored by luck. Mr. Snyder had selected Oakes for the case in hand, principally because it was one where inexperience could do no harm, and where the brilliant guesswork, which Oakes preferred to call his inductive reasoning, might achieve an unexpected success. Another motive actuated Mr. Snyder in his choice. He had a strong suspicion that the conduct of this case was going to have the beneficial result of lowering Oakes' self-esteem. If failure achieved this end, Mr. Snyder felt that failure, though it would not help the agency, would not be an unmixed ill. The door opened and Oakes entered tensely. He did everything tensely, partly from a natural nervous energy and partly as a pose. He was a lean young man with dark eyes and a thin-lipped mouth, and he looked quite as much like a typical detective as Mr. Snyder looked like a comfortable and prosperous stockbroker. Sit down, Oakes, said Mr. Snyder. I've got a job for you. Oakes sank into a chair like a crouching leopard and placed the tips of his fingers together. He nodded curtly. It was part of his pose to be keen and silent. I want you to go to this address. Mr. Snyder handed him an envelope. And look around. The address on that envelope is of a sailor's boarding house down in Southampton. You know the sort of place. Retired sea captains and so forth live there. All most respectable. In all its history, nothing more sensational has ever happened than a case of suspected cheating at Halfpenny Nap. Well, a man had died there. Murdered? Oakes asked. I don't know. That's for you to find out. The coroner left it open. Death by misadventure was the verdict, and I don't blame him. I don't see how it could have been murder. The door was locked on the inside, so nobody could have got in. The window? 
The window was open, granted, but the room is on the second floor. Anyway, you may dismiss the window. I remember the old lady saying there was a bar across it, and that nobody could have squeezed through. Oak's eyes glistened. He was interested. What was the cause of death? he asked. Mr. Snyder coughed. Snake bite, he said. Oak's careful calm deserted him. He uttered a cry of astonishment. Why, that's incredible! It's the literal truth. The medical examination proved that the fellow had been killed by snake poison, cobra to be exact, which is found principally in India. Cobra? Just so. In a Southampton boarding house, in a room with a locked door, this man was stung by a cobra. To add a little mystification to the limpid simplicity of the affair, when the door was opened, there was no sign of any cobra. It couldn't have got out through the door because the door was locked. It couldn't have got out of the window because the window was too high up and snakes can't jump. And it couldn't have gotten up the chimney because there was no chimney. So there you have it. He looked at Oakes with a certain quiet satisfaction. It had come to his ears that Oakes had been heard to complain of the infantile nature and unworthiness of the last two cases to which he had been assigned. He had even said that he hoped someday to be given a problem which should be beyond the reasoning powers of a child of six. It seemed to Mr. Snyder that Oakes was about to get his wish. "'I should like further details,' said Oakes, a little breathlessly. "'You had better apply to Mrs. Pickett, who owns the boarding house,' Mr. Snyder said. "'It was she who put the case in my hands. She is convinced that it is murder. But if we exclude ghosts, I don't see how any third party could have taken a hand in the thing at all. However, she wanted a man from this agency, and was prepared to pay for him, so I promised her I would send one. It is not our policy to turn business away." He smiled wryly. "'In pursuance of that policy, I want you to go and put up at Mrs. Pickett's boarding house, and do your best to enhance the reputation of our agency.' I would suggest that you pose as a ship's chandler or something of that sort. You'll have to be something maritime or they'll be suspicious of you. And if your visit produces no other results, it will at least enable you to make the acquaintance of a very remarkable woman. I commend Mrs. Pickett to your notice. By the way, she says she will help you in your investigations. Oakes laughed shortly. The idea amused him. It's a mistake to scoff at amateur assistance, my boy, said Mr. Snyder in the benevolently paternal manner which had made a score of criminals refuse to believe him a detective until the moment when the handcuffs snapped on their wrists. Crime investigation isn't an exact science. Success or failure depends in a large measure on applied common sense and the possession of a great deal of special information. Mrs. Pickett knows certain things which neither you nor I know, and it's just possible that she may have some stray piece of information which will provide the key to the entire mystery." Oakes laughed again. "'It is very kind of Mrs. Pickett,' he said, "'but I prefer to trust my own methods.' Oakes rose, his face purposeful. "'I'd better be starting at once,' he said. "'I'll send you reports from time to time.' Good. The more detail, the better, said Mr. Snyder genially. 
I hope your visit to the Excelsior will be pleasant. And cultivate Mrs. Pickett. She's worthwhile. The door closed, and Mr. Snyder lighted a fresh cigar. Dash it, young fool, he murmured, as he turned his mind to other matters. 3. A day later, Mr. Snyder sat in his office reading a typewritten report. It appeared to be of a humorous nature, for, as he read, chuckles escaped him. Finishing the last sheet, he threw his head back and laughed heartily. The manuscript had not been intended by its author for a humorous effort. What Mr. Snyder had been reading was the first of Elliot Oak's reports from the Excelsior. It read as follows. I am sorry to be unable to report any real progress. I have formed several theories which I will put forward later, but at present I cannot say that I am hopeful. Directly I arrived here, I sought out Mrs. Pickett, explained who I was, and requested her to furnish me with any further information which might be of service to me. She is a strange, silent woman, who impressed me as having very little intelligence. Your suggestion that I should avail myself of her assistance seems more curious than ever, now that I have seen her. The whole affair seems to me at the moment of writing quite inexplicable. Assuming that this Captain Gunner was murdered, there appears to have been no motive for the crime whatsoever. I have made careful inquiries about him, and found that he was a man of fifty-five, had spent nearly forty years of his life at sea, the last dozen in command of his own ship, was of a somewhat overbearing disposition, though with a fund of rough humor, had traveled all over the world, and had been an inmate of the Excelsior for about ten months. He had a small annuity and no other money at all, which disposes of money as the motive for the crime. In my character of James Burton, a retired ship's chandler, I have mixed with the other boarders, and have heard all they have to say about the affair. I gather that the deceased was by no means popular. He appears to have had a bitter tongue, and I have not met one man who seems to regret his death. On the other hand, I have heard nothing which would suggest that he had any active and violent enemies. He was simply the unpopular boarder. There is always one in every boarding house, but nothing more. I have seen a good deal of the man who shared his room, another sea captain named Muller. He is a big, silent person, and it is not easy to get him to talk. As regards the death of Captain Gunner, he can tell me nothing. It seems that on the night of the tragedy, he was away at Portsmouth with some friends. All I have got from him is some information as to Captain Gunner's habits, which leads nowhere. The dead man seldom drank, except at night, when he would take some whiskey. His head was not strong, and a little of the spirit was enough to make him semi-intoxicated, when he would be hilarious and often insulting. I gather that Muller found him a difficult roommate. But he is one of those placid persons who can put up with anything. He and Gunner were in the habit of playing drafts together every night in their room, and Gunner had a harmonica which he played frequently. Apparently, he was playing it very soon before he died, which is significant as seeming to dispose of the idea of suicide. As I say, I have one or two theories, but they are in a very nebulous state. The most plausible is that on one of his visits to India, I have ascertained that he had made several voyages there, Captain Gunner may in some way have fallen foul of the natives. 
The fact that he certainly died of the poison of an Indian snake supports this theory. I am making inquiries as to the movements of several Indian sailors who were here in their ships at the time of the tragedy. I have another theory. Does Mrs. Pickett know more about this affair than she appears to? I may be wrong in my estimate of her mental qualities. Her apparent stupidity may be cunning. But here again, the absence of motive brings me up against a dead wall. I must confess that at present I do not see my way clearly. However, I will write again shortly. Mr. Snyder derived the utmost enjoyment from the report. He liked the substance of it, and above all, he was tickled by the bitter tone of frustration which characterized it. Oakes was baffled, and his knowledge of Oakes told him that the sensation of being baffled was gall and wormwood to that high-spirited young man. Whatever might be the result of this investigation, it would teach him the virtue of patience. He wrote his assistants a short note. Dear Oakes, your report received. You certainly seem to have got the hard case, which I hear you were pining for. Don't build too much on plausible motives in a case of this sort. Fauntleroy, the London murderer, killed a woman for no other reason than that she had thick ankles. Many years ago, I myself was on a case where a man murdered an intimate friend because of a dispute about a bet. My experience is that five murderers out of ten act on the whim of the moment, without anything which, properly speaking, you could call a motive at all. Yours very cordially, Paul Snyder. P.S. I don't think much of your picket theory. However, you're in charge. I wish you luck. 4. Young Mr. Oakes was not enjoying himself. For the first time in his life, the self-confidence which characterized all his actions seemed to be failing him. The change had taken place almost overnight. The fact that the case had the appearance of presenting the unusual had merely stimulated him at first, but then doubts had crept in and the problem had begun to appear insoluble. True, he had only just taken it up, but something told him that for all the progress he was likely to make, he might just as well have been working on it steadily for a month. He was completely baffled and every moment which he spent in the Excelsior boarding house made it clear to him that that infernal old woman with the pale eyes thought him an incompetent fool. It was that, more than anything, which made him acutely conscious of his lack of success. His nerves were being sorely troubled by the quiet scorn of Mrs. Pickett's gaze. He began to think that perhaps he had been a shade too self-confident and abrupt in the short interview which he had had with her on his arrival. As might have been expected, his first act, after his brief interview with Mrs. Pickett, was to examine the room where the tragedy had taken place. The body was gone, but otherwise nothing had been moved. Oakes belonged to the magnifying glass school of detection. The first thing he did on entering the room was to make a careful examination of the floor, the walls, the furniture, and the window sill. He would have hotly denied the assertion that he did this because it looked well, but he would have been hard put to it to advance any other reason. If he discovered anything, his discoveries were entirely negative, and served only to deepen the mystery of the case. As Mrs. Snyder had said, there was no chimney, 
and nobody could have entered through the locked door. There remained the window. It was small, and apprehensiveness, perhaps, of the possibility of burglars had caused the proprietress to make it doubly secure with an iron bar. No human being could have squeezed his way through it. It was late that night that he wrote and dispatched to headquarters the report which had amused Mr. Snyder. 5. Two days later, Mr. Snyder sat at his desk, staring with wide, unbelieving eyes at a telegram he had just received. It read as follows. Have solved gunner mystery. Returning. Oaks. Mr. Snyder narrowed his eyes and rang the bell. Send Mr. Oaks to me directly he arrives, he said. He was pained to find that his chief emotion was one of bitter annoyance. The swift solution of such an apparently insoluble problem would reflect the highest credit on the agency. And there were picturesque circumstances connected with the case which would make it popular with the newspapers and lead to its being given a great deal of publicity. Yet, in spite of all this, Mr. Snyder was annoyed. He realized now how large a part the desire to reduce Oak's self-esteem had played with him. He further realized, looking at the thing honestly, that he had been firmly convinced that the young man would not come within a mile of reasonable solution of the mystery. He had desired only that his failure would prove a valuable educational experience for him. For he believed that failure, at this particular point in his career, would make Oakes a more valuable asset to the agency. But now here Oakes was, within a ridiculously short space of time, returning to the fold, not humble and defeated, but triumphant. Mr. Snyder looked forward with apprehension to the young man's probable demeanor under the intoxicating influence of victory. His apprehensions were well grounded. He had barely finished the third of a series of cigars, which, like milestones, marked the progress of his afternoon, when the door opened and young Oakes entered. Mr. Snyder could not repress a faint moan at the sight of him. One glance was enough to tell him that his worst fears were realized. "'I got your telegram,' said Mr. Snyder. Oakes nodded. "'It surprised you, eh?' he asked. Mr. Snyder resented the patronizing tone of the question, but he had resigned himself to be patronized and keep his anger in check. "'Yes,' he replied. "'I must say it did surprise me. I didn't gather from your report that you had even found a clue. Was it the Indian theory that turned the trick?' Oakes laughed tolerantly. "'Oh, I never really believed that preposterous theory for one moment.' I just put it in to round out my report. I hadn't begun to think about the case then, not really think. Mr. Snyder, nearly exploding with wrath, extended his cigar case. Light up and tell me all about it, he said, controlling his anger. Well, I won't say I haven't earned this, said Oakes, puffing away. He let the ash of his cigar fall delicately to the floor. Another action which seemed significant to his employer. As a rule, his assistants, unless particularly pleased with themselves, used the ashtray. My first act on arriving, Oak said, was to have a talk with Mrs. Pickett, a very dull old woman. Curious, she struck me as rather intelligent. Not on your life, 
She gave me no assistance whatever. I then examined the room where the death had taken place. It was exactly as you described it. There was no chimney. The door had been locked on the inside. The one window was very high up. At first sight, it looked extremely unpromising. Then I had a chat with some of the other boarders. They had nothing of any importance to contribute. Most of them simply gibbered. I then gave up trying to get help from the outside and resolved to rely on my own intelligence. He smiled triumphantly. It is a theory of mine, Mr. Snyder, which I have found valuable, that in nine cases out of ten, remarkable things don't happen. I don't quite follow you there, Mr. Snyder interrupted. I will put it another way, if you like. What I mean is that the simplest explanation is nearly always the right one. Consider this case. It seemed impossible that there should have been any reasonable explanation of the man's death. Most men would have worn themselves out guessing at wild theories. If I had started to do that, I should have been guessing now. As it is, here I am. I trusted to my belief that nothing remarkable ever happens, and I won out. Mr. Snyder sighed softly. Oakes was entitled to a certain amount of gloating, but there could be no doubt that his way of telling a story was downright infuriating. I believe in the logical sequence of events. I refuse to accept effects unless they are preceded by causes. In other words, with all due respect to your possibly contrary opinions, Mr. Snyder, I simply decline to believe in a murder unless there is a motive for it. The first thing I set myself to ascertain was, what was the motive for the murder of Captain Gunner? And after thinking it over and making every possible inquiry, I decided that there was no motive. Therefore, there was no murder. Mr. Snyder's mouth opened, and he obviously was about to protest. But he appeared to think better of it, and Oakes proceeded. I then tested the suicide theory. What motive was there for suicide? There was no motive, therefore there was no suicide. This time Mr. Snyder spoke. You haven't been spending the last few days in the wrong house by any chance, have you? You'll be telling me next that there wasn't any dead man. Oak smiled. Not at all. Captain John Gunner was dead all right. As the medical evidence proved, he died of the bite of a cobra. It was a small cobra which came from Java. Mr. Snyder stared at him. How do you know? I do know, beyond any possibility of doubt. Did you see the snake? Oak shook his head. Then how in heaven's name? I have enough evidence to make a jury convict Mr. Snake without leaving the box. Then suppose you tell me this. How did your cobra from Java get out of the room? By the window, replied Oakes impassively. How can you possibly explain that? You say yourself that the window was high up. Nevertheless, it got out by the window. The logical sequence of events is proof enough that it was in the room. It killed Captain Gunner there and left traces of its presence outside. Therefore, as the window was the only exit, it must have escaped by that route. It may have climbed or it may have jumped, but somehow it got out of that window. What do you mean, it left traces of its presence outside? 
It killed a dog in the backyard behind the house, Oak said. The window of Captain Gunner's room projects out over it. It is full of boxes and litter, and there are a few stunted shrubs scattered about. In fact, there is enough cover to hide any small object like the body of a dog. That's why it was not discovered at first. The maid at the Excelsior came on it the morning after I sent you my report while she was emptying a box of ashes in the yard. It was just an ordinary stray dog, without collar or license. The analyst examined the body and found that the dog had died of the bite of a cobra. But you didn't find the snake. No. We cleaned out that yard till you could have eaten your breakfast there, but the snake was gone. It must have escaped through the door of the yard, which was standing ajar. That was a couple of days ago, and there has been no further tragedy. In all likelihood, it is dead. The nights are pretty cold now, and it would probably have died of exposure. But I just don't understand how a cobra got to Southampton, said the amazed Mr. Snyder. Can't you guess it? I told you it came from Java. How did you know it did? Captain Muller told me. Not directly, but I pieced it together from what he said. It seems that an old shipmate of Captain Gunner's was living in Java. They corresponded, and occasionally this man would send the captain a present as a mark of his esteem. The last present he sent was a crate of bananas. Unfortunately, the snake must have got in unnoticed. That's why I told you the cobra was a small one. Well, that's my case against Mr. Snake, and short of catching him with the goods, I don't see how I could have made out a stronger one. Don't you agree? It went against the grain for Mr. Snyder to acknowledge defeat, but he was a fair-minded man, and he was forced to admit that Oakes did certainly seem to have solved the impossible. I congratulate you, my boy, he said as heartily as he could. To be completely frank, when you started out, I didn't think you could do it. By the way, I suppose Mrs. Pickett was pleased? If she was, she didn't show it. I'm pretty well convinced that she hasn't enough sense to be pleased at anything. However, she has invited me to dinner with her tonight. I imagine she'll be as boring as usual, but she made such a point of it, I had to accept. 6. For some time after Oakes had gone, Mr. Snyder sat smoking and thinking in embittered meditation. Suddenly there was brought the card of Mrs. Pickett, who would be grateful if he could spare her a few moments. Mr. Snyder was glad to see Mrs. Pickett. He was a student of character, and she had interested him at their first meeting. There was something about her which had seemed to him unique, and he welcomed this second chance of studying her at close range. She came in and sat down stiffly, balancing herself on the extreme edge of the chair in which a short while before young Oakes had lounged so luxuriously. "'How are you, Mrs. Pickett?' said Mr. Snyder genially. "'I'm very glad that you could find time to pay me a visit. "'Well, so it wasn't murder after all.' "'Sir?' "'I've just been talking to Mr. Oakes.' "'Whom you met as James Burton,' said the detective. "'He has told me all about it.' "'He told me all about it,' said Mrs. Pickett dryly. "'Mr. Snyder looked at her inquiringly. "'Her manner seemed more suggestive than her words. "'A conceited, headstrong young fool,' said Mrs. Pickett. "'It was no new picture of his assistant that she had drawn.' 
Mr. Snyder had often drawn it himself. But at the present juncture, it surprised him. Oakes, in his hour of triumph, surely did not deserve this sweeping condemnation. Did not Mr. Oakes' solution of the mystery satisfy you, Mrs. Pickett? No. It struck me as logical and convincing, Mr. Snyder said. You may call it all the fancy names you please, Mr. Snyder, but Mr. Oakes' solution was not the right one. Have you an alternative to offer? Mrs. Pickett tightened her lips. If you have, I should like to hear it. You will at the proper time. What makes you so certain that Mr. Oakes is wrong? He starts out with an impossible explanation and rests his whole case on it. There couldn't have been a snake in that room because it couldn't have gotten out. The window was too high. But surely the evidence of the dead dog... Mrs. Pickett looked at him as if he had disappointed her. I had always heard you spoken of as a man with common sense, Mr. Snyder. I have always tried to use common sense. Then why are you trying now to make yourself believe that something happened which could not possibly have happened just because it fits in with something which isn't easy to explain? You mean there is another explanation of the dead dog? Mr. Snyder asked. Not another. What Mr. Oakes takes for granted is not an explanation. But there is a common-sense explanation, and if he had not been so headstrong and conceited, he might have found it. You speak as if you had found it, chided Mr. Snyder. I have. Mrs. Pickett leaned forward as she spoke and stared at him defiantly. Mr. Snyder started. You have? Yes. What is it? You will know before tomorrow. In the meantime, try and think it out for yourself. A successful and prosperous detective agency like yours, Mr. Snyder, ought to do something in return for a fee. There was something in her manner so reminiscent of the schoolteacher reprimanding a recalcitrant pupil that Mr. Snyder's sense of humor came to his rescue. We do our best, Mrs. Pickett, he said, but you mustn't forget that we are only human and cannot guarantee results. Mrs. Pickett did not pursue the subject. Instead, she proceeded to astonish Mr. Snyder by asking him to swear out a warrant for the arrest of a man known to them both on a charge of murder. Mr. Snyder's breath was not often taken away in his own office. As a rule, he received his client's communications calmly, strange as they often were. But at her words, he gasped. The thought crossed his mind that Mrs. Pickett might well be mentally unbalanced. The details of the case were fresh in his memory, and he distinctly recollected that the person she mentioned had been away from the boarding house on the night of Captain Gunner's death, and could, he imagined, produce witnesses to prove it. Mrs. Pickett was regarding him with an unfaltering stare. To all outward appearances, she was the opposite of unbalanced. But you can't swear out a warrant without evidence, he told her. I have evidence she replied firmly. Precisely what kind of evidence? he demanded. If I told you now, you would think that I was out of my mind. But Mrs. Pickett, do you realize what you are asking me to do? I cannot make this agency responsible for the arbitrary arrest of a man on the strength of a single individual's suspicions. It might ruin me. 
At the least, it would make me a laughingstock. Mr. Snyder, you may use your own judgment whether or not to make the arrest on that warrant. You will listen to what I have to say, and you will see for yourself how the crime was committed. If, after that, you feel you cannot make the arrest, I will accept your decision. I know who killed Captain Gunner, she said. I knew it from the beginning. It was like a vision, but I had no proof. Now things have come to light, and everything is clear. Against his judgment, Mr. Snyder was impressed. This woman had the magnetism which makes for persuasiveness. It, it sounds incredible. Even as he spoke, he remembered that it had long been a professional maxim of his that nothing was incredible, and he weakened still further. Mr. Snyder, I ask you to swear out that warrant. The detective gave in. Very well, he said. Mrs. Pickett rose. If you will come and dine at my house tonight, I think I can prove to you that it will be needed. Will you come? I'll come, promised Mr. Snyder. 7. When Mr. Snyder arrived at the Excelsior, and shortly after he was shown into the little private sitting-room where he found Oakes, the third guest of the evening unexpectedly arrived. Mr. Snyder looked curiously at the newcomer. Captain Muller had a peculiar fascination for him. It was not Mr. Snyder's habit to trust overmuch to appearances. But he could not help admitting that there was something about this man's aspect which brought Mrs. Pickett's charges out of the realm of the fantastic into that of the possible. There was something odd, an unnatural aspect of gloom about the man. He bore himself like one carrying a heavy burden. His eyes were dull, his face haggard. The next moment, the detective was reproaching himself with allowing his imagination to run away with his calmer judgment. The door opened and Mrs. Pickett came in. She made no apology for her lateness. To Mr. Snyder, one of the most remarkable points about the dinner was the peculiar metamorphosis of Mrs. Pickett from the brooding, silent woman he had known to the gracious and considerate hostess. Oakes appeared also to be overcome with surprise, so much so that he was unable to keep his astonishment to himself. He had come prepared to endure a dull evening absorbed in grim silence and he found himself instead opposite a bottle of champagne of a brand and ear which commanded his utmost respect. What was even more incredible, his hostess had transformed herself into a pleasant old lady whose only aim seemed to be to make him feel at home. Beside each of the guests' plates was a neat paper parcel. Oakes picked his up and stared at it in wonderment. "'Why, this is more than a party souvenir, Mrs. Pickett,' he said. It's the kind of mechanical marvel I've always wanted to have on my desk. I'm glad you like it, Mr. Oakes, Mrs. Pickett said, smiling. You must not think of me simply as a tired old woman whom age has completely defeated. I am an ambitious hostess. When I give these little parties, I like to make them a success. I want each of you to remember this dinner. I'm sure I will, Mrs. Pickett smiled again. I think you all will. You, Mr. Snyder, she paused, and you, Captain Muller. To Mr. Snyder there was so much meaning in her voice as she said this that he was amazed that it conveyed no warning to Muller. 
Captain Muller, however, was already drinking heavily. He looked up when addressed and uttered a sound which might have been taken for an expression of polite acquiescence. Then he filled his glass again. Mr. Snyder's parcel revealed a watch charm fashioned in the shape of a tiny, candid-eye camera. That, said Mrs. Pickett, is a compliment to your profession. She leaned toward the captain. Mr. Snyder is a detective, Captain Muller. He looked up. It seemed to Mr. Snyder that a look of fear lit up his heavy eyes for an instant. It came and went, if indeed it came at all, so swiftly that he could not be certain. So, said Captain Muller. He spoke quite evenly, with just the amount of interest which such an announcement would naturally produce. Now for yours, Captain, said Oakes. I guess it's something special. It's twice the size of mine, anyway. It may have been something in the old woman's expression as she watched Captain Muller slowly tearing the paper that sent a thrill of excitement through Mr. Snyder. Something seemed to warn him of the approach of a psychological moment. He bent forward eagerly. There was a strangled gasp, a thump, and onto the table from the captain's hands there fell a little harmonica. There was no mistaking the look on Muller's face now. His cheeks were like wax, and his eyes, so dull till then, blazed with a panic and horror which he could not repress. The glasses on the table rocked as he clutched at the cloth. Mrs. Pickett spoke. "'Why, Captain Muller, has it upset you?' "'I thought that, as his best friend, the man who shared his room, "'you would value a memento of Captain Gunner. "'How fond you must have been of him for the sight of his harmonica to be such a shock.' "'The captain did not speak. "'He was staring, fascinated at the thing on the table. "'Mrs. Pickett turned to Mr. Snyder.' Her eyes, as they met his, held him entranced. Mr. Snyder, as a detective, you will be interested in a curious and very tragic affair which happened in this house a few days ago. One of my boarders, Captain Gunner, was found dead in his room. It was the room which he shared with Captain Muller. I am very proud of the reputation of my house, Mr. Snyder, and it was a blow to me that this should have happened. I applied to an agency for a detective, and they sent me a stupid boy, with nothing to recommend him except his belief in himself. He said that Captain Gunner had died by accident, killed by a snake which had come out of a crate of bananas. I knew better. I knew that Captain Gunner had been murdered. Are you listening, Captain Muller? This will interest you, as you were such a friend of his. The captain did not answer. He was staring straight before him, as if he saw something invisible in eyes forever closed in death. Yesterday we found the body of a dog. It had been killed, as Captain Gunner had been, by the poison of a snake. The boy from the agency said that this was conclusive. He said that the snake had escaped from the room after killing Captain Gunner and had in turn killed the dog. I knew that to be impossible. "'for if there had been a snake in that room, "'it could not have made its escape.' "'Her eyes flashed and became remorselessly accusing. "'It was not a snake that killed Captain Gunner. "'It was a cat. "'Captain Gunner had a friend who hated him. "'One day, in opening a crate of bananas, 
This friend found a snake. He killed it and extracted the poison. He knew Captain Gunner's habits. He knew that he played a harmonica. This man also had a cat. He knew that cats hated the sound of a harmonica. He had often seen this particular cat fly at Captain Gunner and scratch him when he played. He took the cat and covered its claws with the poison, and then he left it in the room with Captain Gunner. He knew what would happen. Oakes and Mr. Snyder were on their feet. Captain Muller had not moved. He sat there, his fingers gripping the cloth. Mrs. Pickett rose and went to a closet. She unlocked the door. Kitty, she called. Kitty, kitty. A black cat ran swiftly out into the room. With a clatter and a crash of crockery and a ringing of glass, the table heaved, rocked and overturned as Muller staggered to his feet. He threw up his hands as if to ward something off. A choking cry came from his lips. Gut! Gut! Mrs. Pickett's voice rang through the room, cold and biting. Captain Muller, you murdered Captain Gunner! The captain shuddered. Then, mechanically, he replied. Gut! Yes, I killed him. You heard, Mr. Snyder, said Mrs. Pickett. He has confessed before witnesses. Take him away. Muller allowed himself to be moved toward the door. His arm in Mr. Snyder's grip felt limp. Mrs. Pickett stopped and took something from the debris on the floor. She rose, holding the harmonica. You are forgetting your souvenir, Captain Muller, she said. The End of Death at the Excelsior by P.G. Woodhouse Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA The Mystery of the Felwyn Tunnel by L.T. Meade and Robert Eustace I was making experiments of some interest at South Kensington and hoped I had perfected a small but not unimportant discovery when, on returning home one evening in late October in the year 1893, I found a visiting card on my table. On it were inscribed the words, Mr. Geoffrey Bainbridge. This name was quite unknown to me, so I rang the bell and inquired of my servant who the visitor had been. He described him as a gentleman who wished to see me on most urgent business, and said further that Mr. Bainbridge intended to call again later in the evening. It was with both curiosity and vexation that I awaited the return of the stranger. Urgent business with me generally meant a hurried rush to one part of the country or the other. I did not want to leave London just then, and when, at half-past nine, Mr. Geoffrey Bainbridge was ushered into my room, I received him with a certain coldness which he could not fail to perceive. He was a tall, well-dressed elderly man. He immediately plunged into the object of his visit. I hope you do not consider my unexpected presence an intrusion, Mr. Bell, he said. But I have heard of you from our mutual friends, the Greys of Uplands. You may remember once doing that family a great service. I remember perfectly well, I answered more cordially. Pray tell me, what do you want? I shall listen with attention. I believe you are the one man in London who can help me, he continued. I refer to a matter especially relating to your own particular study. 
I need hardly say that whatever you do will not be unrewarded. That is neither here nor there, I said. But before you go any further, allow me to ask one question. Do you want me to leave London at present? He raised his eyebrows in dismay. I certainly do, he answered. Very well. Pray proceed with your story. He looked at me with anxiety. In the first place, he began, I must tell you that I am chairman of the Lighton Vale Railway Company in Wales, and that it is on an important matter connected with our line that I have come to consult you. When I explain to you the nature of the mystery, you will not wonder, I think, at my soliciting your aid. I will give you my closest attention, I answered, and then I added, impelled to say the latter words by a certain expression on his face, if I can see my way to assisting you, I shall be ready to do so. Pray, accept my cordial thanks, he replied. I have come up from my place at Felwyn today on purpose to consult you. It is in that neighborhood that the affair has occurred. As it is essential that you should be in possession of the facts of the whole matter, I will go over things just as they happened. I bent forward and listened attentively. This day, fortnight, continued Mr. Bainbridge, our quiet little village was horrified by the news that the signalman on duty at the mouth of the Felwyn Tunnel had been found dead under the most mysterious circumstances. The tunnel is at the end of a long cutting between Landley's and Felwyn stations. It is about a mile long, and the signal box is on the Felwyn side. The place is extremely lonely, being six miles from the village across the mountains. The name of the poor fellow who met his death in this mysterious fashion was David Pritchard. I have known him from a boy. He was quite one of the steadiest and most trustworthy men on the line. On Tuesday evening, he went on duty at six o'clock. On Wednesday morning, the day man who had come to relieve him was surprised not to find him in the box. It was just getting daylight, and the 6.30 local was coming down, so he pulled the signals and let her through. Then he went out, and looking up the line towards the tunnel, saw Pritchard lying beside the line close to the mouth of the tunnel. Roberts, the day man, ran to him and found, to his horror, that he was quite dead. At first, Roberts naturally supposed that he had been cut down by a train, as there was a wound at the back of his head. But he was not lying on the metals. Roberts ran back to the box and telegraphed through to Felwyn Station. The message was sent on to the village, and at half-past seven o'clock, the police inspector came up to my house with the news. He and I, with the local doctor, went off at once to the tunnel. We found the dead man lying beside the metals a few yards away from the mouth of the tunnel, and the doctor immediately gave him a careful examination. There was a depressed fracture at the back of the skull, which must have caused his death, but how he came by it was not so clear. On examining the whole place most carefully, we saw further that there were marks on the rocks at the steep side of the embankment, as if someone had tried to scramble up them. Why the poor fellow had attempted such a climb, God only knows. In doing so, he must have slipped and fallen back onto the line, thus causing the fracture to the skull. In no case could he have gone up more than eight or ten feet, as the banks of the cutting run sheer up, 
almost perpendicular beyond that point for more than 150 feet. There are some sharp boulders beside the line, and it is possible that he might have fallen on one of these and so sustained the injury. The affair must have occurred sometime between 11.45 p.m. and 6 a.m., as the engine driver of the express at 11.45 p.m. states that the line was signaled clear, and he also caught sight of Pritchard in his box as he passed. This is deeply interesting, I said. Pray, proceed. Bainbridge looked at me earnestly. He then continued. The whole thing is shrouded in mystery. Why should Pritchard have left his box and gone down to the tunnel? Why, having done so, should he have made a wild attempt to scale the side of the cutting, an impossible feat at any time? Had danger threatened, the ordinary course of things would have been to run up the line towards the signal box. These points are quite unexplained. Another curious fact is that the death appears to have taken place just before the day man came on duty, as the light at the mouth of the tunnel had been put out and it was one of the night signalman's duties to do this as soon as daylight appeared. It is possible, therefore, that Pritchard went down to the tunnel for that purpose. Against this theory, however, and an objection that seems to nullify it, is the evidence of Dr. Williams, who states that when he examined the body, his opinion was that death had taken place some hours before. An inquest was held the following day. But before it took place, there was a new and most important development. I now come to what I consider the crucial point in the whole story. For a long time, there had been a feud between Pritchard and another man of the name of Wynne, a plate layer on the line. The object of their quarrel was the blacksmith's daughter in the neighboring village, a remarkably pretty girl and an errant flirt. Both men were madly in love with her, and she played them off one against the other. The night, but one before his death, Pritchard and Wynne met at the village inn, had quarreled in the bar, Lucy, of course, being the subject of their difference. Wynne was heard to say he was a man of powerful build and subject to fits of ungovernable rage, that he would have Pritchard's life. Pritchard swore a great oath that he would get Lucy on the following day to promise to marry him. This oath, it appears, he kept, and on his way to the signal box on Tuesday evening met Wynne and triumphantly told him that Lucy had promised to be his wife. The men had a hand-to-hand -hand fight on the spot, several people from the village being witness to it. They were separated with difficulty, each vowing vengeance on the other. Pritchard went off to his duty at the signal box, and Wynne returned to the village to drown his sorrows at the public house. Very late that same night, Wynne was seen by a villager going in the direction of the tunnel. The man stopped him and questioned him. He explained that he had left some of his tools on the line, and he was on his way to fetch them. The villager noticed that he looked queer and excited, but not wishing to pick a quarrel, thought it best not to question him further. It has been proved that Wynne never returned home that night, but came back at an early hour on the following morning, looking dazed and stupid. He was arrested on suspicion, and at the inquest the verdict was against him. Has he given any explanation of his movements, I ask? Yes, but nothing that can clear him. As a matter of fact, his tools were nowhere to be seen on the line. 
nor did he bring them home with him. His own story is that being considerably the worse for drink, he had fallen down in one of the fields and slept there till morning. Things look black against him, I said. They do, but listen, I have something more to add. Here comes a very queer feature of the affair. Lucy Ray, the girl who had caused the feud between Pritchard and Wynne, after hearing the news of Pritchard's death, completely lost her head and ran frantically about the village, declaring that Wynne was the man she really loved and that she had only accepted Pritchard in a fit of rage with Wynne for not himself bringing matters to the point. The case looks very bad against Wynne, and yesterday the magistrate committed him for trial at the coming assizes. The unhappy Lucy Ray and the young man's parents are in a state bordering on distraction. What is your opinion with regard to Wynne's guilt, I ask? Before God, Mr. Bell, I believe the poor fellow is innocent, but the evidence against him is very strong. One of the favorite theories is that he went down to the tunnel and extinguished the light, knowing that this would bring Pritchard out of his box to see what was the matter, and that he then attacked him, striking the blow which fractured the skull. Has any weapon been found about with which he could have given such a blow? No, nor has any of the kind been discovered on Wynne's person. That fact is decidedly in his favor. But what about the marks on the rocks, I ask? It is possible that Wynne may have made them in order to divert suspicion by making people think that Pritchard must have fallen and so killed himself. The holders of this theory base their belief on the absolute want of cause for Pritchard's trying to scale the rock. The whole thing is the most absolute enigma. Some of the country folk have declared that the tunnel is haunted, and there certainly has been such a rumor current among them for years, that Pritchard saw some apparition and in wild terror sought to escape it by climbing the rocks is another theory, but only the most imaginative hold it. Well, it is a most extraordinary case, I replied. Yes, Mr. Bell, and I should like to get your opinion of it. Do you see your way to elucidate the mystery? Not at present, but I shall be happy to investigate the matter to my utmost ability. But you do not wish to leave London at present. That is so, but a matter of such importance cannot be set aside. It appears, from what you say, that Wynne's life hangs more or less on my being able to clear away the mystery. That is indeed the case. There ought not be a single stone left unturned to get at the truth. For the sake of Wynne. Well, Mr. Bell, what do you propose to do? To see the place without delay, I answered. That is right. When can you come? Whenever you please. Will you come down to Felwyn with me tomorrow? I shall leave Paddington by the 710, and if you will be my guest, I shall be only too pleased to put you up. That arrangement will suit me admirably, I replied. I will meet you by the train you mention, and the affair shall have my best attention. Thank you, he said, rising. He shook hands with me and took his leave. The next day I met Bainbridge at Paddington Station, and we were soon flying westward in the luxurious private compartment that had been reserved for him. I could see by his abstracted manner and his long lapses of silence that the mysterious affair at Felwyn Tunnel was occupying all his thoughts. It was two o'clock in the afternoon when the train slowed down at the little station of Felwyn, 
the station master, was at the door in an instant to receive us. I have some terribly bad news for you, sir, he said, turning to Bainbridge as we alighted, and yet, in one sense, it is a relief, for it seems to clear when. What do you mean, cried Bainbridge, bad news? Speak out at once. Well, sir, it is this. There has been another death at Felwyn's signal box. John Davidson, who was on duty last night, was found dead at an early hour this morning, in the very same place where we found poor Pritchard. Good God, cried Bainbridge, starting back. What an awful thing. What in the name of heaven does it mean, Mr. Bell? This is too fearful. Thank goodness you have come down with us. It is as black a business as I ever heard of, sir, echoed the station master. And what we are to do, I don't know. Poor Davidson was found dead this morning, and there was neither mark nor sign of what killed him. That is the extraordinary part of it. There's a perfect panic abroad, and not a signalman on the line will take duty tonight. I was in despair, and was afraid at one time that the line would have to be closed. But at last it occurred to me to wire light and veil, and they are sending down an inspector. I expect him by a special every moment. I believe this is he coming now, added the station master, looking up the line. There was the sound of a whistle down the valley, and in a few moments a single engine shot into the station, and an official in uniform stepped on to the platform. Good evening, sir, he said, touching his cap to Bainbridge. I have just been sent down to inquire into this affair at the Felwyn Tunnel, and though it seems more of a matter for a Scotland Yard detective than one of ourselves, there was nothing for it but to come. All the same, Mr. Bainbridge, I cannot say that I look forward to spending tonight alone at the place. You wish for the services of a detective, but you shall have someone better, said Bainbridge, turning towards me. This gentleman, Mr. John Bell, is the man of all others for our business. I have just brought him down from London for the purpose. An expression of relief flitted across the inspector's face. I am very glad to see you, sir, he said to me, and I hope you will be able to spend the night with me in the signal box. I must say I don't much relish the idea of tackling the thing single-handed, but with your help, sir, I think we ought to get to the bottom of it somehow. I am afraid there is not a man on the line who will take duty until we do, so it is most important that the thing should be cleared and without delay. I readily assented to the inspector's proposition, and Bainbridge and I arranged that we should call for him at four o'clock at the village inn, and drive him to the tunnel. We then stepped into the wagonette which was waiting for us and drove to Bainbridge's house. Mrs. Bainbridge came out to meet us and was full of the tragedy. Two pretty girls also ran to greet their father and to glance inquisitively at me. I could see that the entire family was in a state of much excitement. Lucy Ray has just left, father, said the elder of the girls. We had much trouble to soothe her. She is in a frantic state. You have heard, Mr. Bell, all about this dreadful mystery, said Mrs. Bainbridge, as she led me towards the dining room. Yes, I answered. Your husband has been good enough to give me every particular. And you have really come here to help us? I hope I may be able to discover the cause, I answered. It certainly seems most extraordinary, continued Mrs. Bainbridge. My dear, she continued, turning to her husband, 
You can easily imagine the state we were all in this morning when the news of the second death was brought to us. For my part, said Ella Bainbridge, I am sure that Felwyn Tunnel is haunted. The villagers have thought so for a long time, and this second death seems to prove it, does it not? Here she looked anxiously at me. I can offer no opinion, I replied, until I have sifted the matter thoroughly. Come, Ella, don't worry, Mr. Bell, said her father. If he is as hungry as I am, he must want his lunch. We then seated ourselves at the table and commenced the meal. Bainbridge, although he professed to be hungry, was in such a state of excitement that he could scarcely eat. Immediately after lunch, he left me to the care of his family and went into the village. It is just like him, said Mrs. Bainbridge. He takes these sort of things to heart dreadfully. He is terribly upset about Lucy Ray and also about the poor fellow Wynne. It is certainly a fearful tragedy from first to last. Well, at any rate, I said, this fresh death will upset the evidence against Wynne. I hope so. There is some satisfaction in the fact. Well, Mr. Bell, I see you have finished your lunch. Will you come into the drawing room? I followed her into a pleasant room overlooking the Valley of the Lighten. By and by, Bainbridge returned, and soon afterwards the dog cart came to the door. My host and I mounted. Bainbridge took the reins, and we started off at a brisk pace. Matters get worse and worse, he said the moment we were alone. If you don't clear things up tonight, Bell, I say frankly that I cannot imagine what will happen. We entered the village, and as we rattled down the ill-paved streets, I was greeted with curious glances on all sides. The people were standing about in groups, evidently talking about the tragedy and nothing else. Suddenly, as our trap bumped noisily over the paving stones, a girl darted out of one of the houses and made frantic motions to Bainbridge to stop the horse. He pulled the mare nearly up on her haunches, and the girl came up to the side of the dog cart. "'You have heard it,' she said, speaking eagerly and in a gasping voice. "'The death which occurred this morning will clear Stephen Wynne, won't it, Mr. Bainbridge? "'It will. You are sure, are you not?' "'It looks like it, Lucy, my poor girl,' he answered. "'But there, the whole thing is so terrible that I scarcely know what to think.' She was a pretty girl with dark eyes, and under ordinary circumstances must have had the vivacious expression of face and the brilliant complexion which so many of her countrywomen possess. But now her eyes were swollen with weeping, and her complexion more or less disfigured by the agony she had gone through. She looked piteously at Bainbridge, her lips trembling. The next moment she burst into tears. "'Come away, Lucy,' said a woman who had followed her out of the cottage. "'Fie! For shame! Don't trouble the gentleman. Come back and stay quiet.' "'I can't, mother. I can't,' said the unfortunate girl. "'If they hang him, I'll go clean off my head. "'Oh, Mr. Bainbridge, do say that the second death has cleared him.' "'I have every hope that it will do so, Lucy,' said Bainbridge. "'But now don't keep us. There's a good girl. Go back into the house.' This gentleman has come down from London on purpose to look into the whole matter. I may have good news for you in the morning. The girl raised her eyes to my face with a look of intense pleading. Oh, I have been cruel and a fool, and I deserve everything, she gasped. But, sir, for the love of heaven, try to clear him. 
I promise to do my best. Bainbridge touched up the mare. She bounded forward, and Lucy disappeared into the cottage with her mother. The next moment we drew up at the inn where the inspector was waiting, and soon afterwards were bowling along between the high banks of the country lanes to the tunnel. It was a cold, still afternoon. The air was wonderfully keen, for a sharp frost had held the countryside in its grip for the last two days. The sun was just tipping the hills to westward when the trap pulled up at the top of the cutting. We hastily alighted, and the inspector and I bade Bainbridge goodbye. He said that he only wished that he could stay with us for the night, assured us that little sleep would visit him, and that he would be back at the cutting at an early hour on the following morning. Then the noise of his horse's feet was heard fainter and fainter as he drove back over the frost-bound roads. The inspector and I ran along the little path to the wicket gate in the fence, stamping our feet on the hard ground to restore circulation after our cold drive. The next moment we were looking down upon the scene of the mysterious deaths, and a weird and lonely place it looked. The tunnel was at one end of the rock cutting, the sides of which ran sheer down to the line for over a hundred and fifty feet. Above the tunnel's mouth, the hills rose one upon the other. A more dreary place it would have been difficult to imagine. From a little clump of pines, a delicate film of blue smoke rose straight up on the still air. This came from the chimney of the signal box. As we started to descend the precipitous path, the inspector sang out a cheery hello. The man on duty in the box immediately answered. His voice echoed and reverberated down the cutting, and the next moment he appeared at the door of the box. He told us that he would be with us immediately, but we called back to him to stay where he was, and the next instant the inspector and I entered the box. The first thing to do. Said Henderson, the inspector, is to send a message down the line to announce our arrival. This he did, and in a few moments a crawling goods train came panting up the cutting. After signaling her through, we descended the wooden flight of steps which led from the box down to the line and walked along the metals toward the tunnel till we stood on the spot where poor Davison had been found dead that morning. I examined the ground and all around it most carefully. Everything tallied exactly with the description I had received. There could be no possible way of approaching the spot except by going along the line, as the rocky sides of the cutting were inaccessible. It is a most extraordinary thing, sir," said the signalman whom we had come to relieve. Davison had neither mark nor sign on him. There he lay, stone dead and cold, and not a bruise nowhere. But Pritchard had an awful wound at the back of his head. They said he got it by climbing the rocks. Here, you can see the marks for yourself, sir. But now, is it likely that Pritchard would try to climb rocks like these, so steep as they are? Certainly not, I replied. Then how do you account for the wound, sir? Asked the man with an anxious face. I cannot tell you at present, I answered. And you and Inspector Henderson are going to spend the night in the signal box? Yes. A horrified expression crept over the signal man's face. God preserve you both, he said. I wouldn't do it, not for fifty pounds. 
It's not the first time I have heard tell that Felwyn Tunnel is haunted, but there, I won't say any more about that. It's a black business, and it has given trouble enough. There's poor Wynn, the same as convicted of the murder of Pritchard, but now they say that Davidson's death will clear him. Davidson was as good a fellow as you would come across this side of the country, but for the matter of that, so was Pritchard. The whole thing is terrible. It upsets one. That it do, sir. I don't wonder at your feelings, I answered. But now, see here, I want to make a most careful examination of everything. One of the theories is that Wynne crept down this rocky side and fractured Pritchard's skull. I believe such a feat to be impossible. On examining these rocks, I can see that a man might climb up the side of the tunnel as far as from eight to ten feet, utilizing the sharp projections of rock for the purpose. But it would be out of the question for any man to come down the cutting. No, the only way Wynne could have approached Pritchard was by the line itself. But after all, the real thing to discover is this, I continued, what killed Davidson? Whatever caused his death is beyond doubt equally responsible for Pritchard's. I am now going into the tunnel. Inspector Henderson went in with me. The place struck damp and chill. The walls were covered with green, evil-smelling fungi, and through the brickwork the moisture was oozing and had trickled down in long lines to the ground. Before us was nothing but dense darkness. When we reappeared, the signalman was lighting the red lamp on the post, which stood about five feet from the ground, just above the entrance to the tunnel. "'Is there plenty of oil?' asked the inspector. "'Yes, sir, plenty,' replied the man. "'Is there anything more I can do for either of you gentlemen?' he asked, pausing and evidently dying to be off. "'Nothing,' answered Henderson. "'I will wish you a good evening.' "'Good evening to both of you,' said the man." He made his way quickly up the path and was soon lost to sight. Henderson and I returned to the signal box. By this time, it was nearly dark. How many trains pass in the night? I asked the inspector. There's the 1020 down express, he said. It will pass here at about 1040. Then there's the 1145 up. And then not another train till the 630 local tomorrow morning. We shan't have a very lively time, he added. I approached the fire and bent over it, holding out my hands to try to get some warmth into them. It will take a good deal to persuade me to go down to the tunnel, whatever I may see there, said the man. I don't think, Mr. Bell, I am a coward in any sense of the word, but there's something very uncanny about this place, right away from the rest of the world. I don't wonder one often hears of signalmen going mad in some of these lonely boxes. Have you any theory to account for these deaths, sir? Not at present, I replied. This second death puts the idea of Pritchard being murdered quite out of court, he continued. I am sure of it, I answered. And so am I, and that's one comfort, continued Henderson. That poor girl, Lucy Ray, although she was to be blamed for her conduct, is much to be pitied now. And as to poor Wynne himself... He protests his innocence through thick and thin. He was a wild fellow, but not the sword to take the life of a fellow creature. I saw the doctor this afternoon while I was waiting for you at the inn, Mr. Bell, and also the police sergeant. They both say that they do not know what Davidson died of. 
there was not the least sign of violence on the body. Well, I am as puzzled as the rest of you, I said. I have one or two theories in my mind, but none of them will quite fit the situation. The night was piercingly cold, and although there was not a breath of wind, the keen and frosty air penetrated the lonely signal box. We spoke little, and both of us were doubtless absorbed in our own thoughts and speculations. As to Henderson, he looked distinctly uncomfortable, and I cannot say that my own feelings were too pleasant. Never had I been given a tougher problem to solve, and never had I been so utterly at my wit's end for a solution. Now and then the inspector got up and went to the telegraph instrument, which intermittently clicked away in its box. As he did so, he made some casual remark and then sat down again. After the 1040 had gone through, there followed a period of silence which seemed almost oppressive. All at once the stillness was broken by the whir of an electric bell, which sounded so sharp in our ears that we both started. Henderson rose. That's the 1145 coming, he said, and going over to the three long levers, he pulled two of them down with a loud clang. The next moment, with a rush and a scream, the express tore down the cutting. The carriage lights streamed past in a rapid flash. The ground trembled. A few sparks from the engine whirled up into the darkness, and the train plunged into the tunnel. And now, said Henderson, as he pushed back the levers, not another train till daylight. My word, it is cold. It was intensely so. I piled some more wood on the fire, and turning up the collar of my heavy ulster, sat down at the end of the bench and leant my back against the wall. Henderson did likewise. We were neither of us inclined to speak. As a rule, whenever I have any night work to do, I am never troubled with sleeplessness, but on this occasion I felt unaccountably drowsy. I soon perceived that Henderson was in the same condition. Are you sleepy? I asked him. Dead with it, sir, was his answer, but there's no fear. I won't drop off. I got up and went to the window of the box. I felt certain that if I sat still any longer, I should be in a sound sleep. This would never do. Already it was becoming a matter of torture to keep my eyes open. I began to pace up and down. I opened the door of the box and went out on the little platform. What's the matter, sir? inquired Henderson, jumping up with a start. I cannot keep awake, I said. Nor can I, he answered, and yet I have spent nights and nights of my life in signal boxes, and never was the least bit drowsy. Perhaps it's the cold. Perhaps it is, I said, but I have been out on as freezing nights before, and... The man did not reply. He had sat down again. His head was nodding. I was just about to go up to him and shake him, when it suddenly occurred to me that I might as well let him have his sleep out. I soon heard him snoring, and he presently fell forward in a heap on the floor. By dint of walking up and down, I managed to keep from dropping off myself, and in torture, which I shall never be able to describe, the night wore itself away. At last, towards morning, I awoke Henderson. You have had a good nap, I said, but never mind, I have been on guard, and nothing has occurred. Good God, have I been asleep? cried the man. Sound, I answered. Well, I never felt anything like it, he replied. Don't you find the air very close, sir? No, I said. 
It's as fresh as possible. It must be the cold. I'll just go have a look at the light at the tunnel, said the man. It will rouse me. He went to the little platform, whilst I bent over the fire and began to build it up. Presently he returned with a scared look on his face. I could see by the light of the oil lamp which hung on the wall that he was trembling. Mr. Bell, he said, I believe there is somebody or something down at the mouth of the tunnel now. As he spoke, he clutched me by the arm. Go and look, he said. Whoever it is, it has put out the light. Put out the light, I cried. Why, what's the time? Henderson pulled out his watch. Thank goodness, most of the night is gone, he said. I didn't know it was so late. It's half past five. Then the local is not due for an hour yet, I said. No, but who should put out the light, cried Henderson. I went to the door, flung it open, and looked out. The dim outline of the tunnel was just visible, looming through the darkness, but the red light was out. What the dickens does it mean, sir? gasped the inspector. I know the lamp had plenty of oil in it. Can there be anyone standing in front of it, do you think? We waited and watched for a few moments, but nothing stirred. Come along, I said. Let's go down together and see what it is. I don't believe I can do it, sir. I really don't. Nonsense, I cried. I shall go down alone if you won't accompany me. Just hand me my stick, will you? For God's sakes, be careful, Mr. Bell. Don't go down, whatever you do. I expect this is what happened before, and the poor fellows went down to see what it was and died there. There's some devilry at work, that's my belief. That is as it may be, I answered shortly, but we certainly shall not find out by stopping here. My business is to get to the bottom of this, and I am going to do it. That there is danger of some sort, I have very little doubt, but danger or not, I am going down. If you'll be warned by me, sir, you'll just stay quietly here. I must go down and see the matter out, was my answer. Now listen to me, Henderson. I see that you are alarmed, and I don't wonder. Just stay quietly where you are and watch. But if I call, come at once. Don't delay a single instant. Remember, I am putting my life in your hands. If I call, come. Just come to me as quick as you can, for I may want help. Give me that lantern. He unhitched it from the wall, and taking it from him, I walked cautiously down the steps onto the line. I still felt curiously, unaccountably drowsy and heavy. I wondered at this, for the moment was such a critical one as to make almost any man wide awake. Holding the lamp high above my head, I walked rapidly along the line. I hardly knew what I expected to find. Cautiously along the metals I made my way, peering right and left until I was close to the fatal spot where the bodies had been found. An uncontrollable shudder passed over me. The next moment, to my horror, without the slightest warning, the light I was carrying went out, leaving me in total darkness. I started back, and stumbling against one of the loose boulders, reeled against the wall and nearly fell. What was the matter with me? I could hardly stand. I felt giddy and faint, and a horrible sensation of great tightness seized me across the chest. A loud ringing noise sounded in my ears. Struggling madly for breath, and with fear of impending death upon me, I turned and tried to run from a danger I could neither understand nor grapple with. 
but before I had taken two steps, my legs gave way from under me, and uttering a loud cry, I fell insensible to the ground. Out of an oblivion which, for all I knew, might have lasted for moments or centuries, a dawning consciousness came to me. I knew that I was lying on hard ground, that I was absolutely incapable of realizing, nor had I the slightest inclination to discover where I was. All I wanted was to lie quite still and undisturbed. Presently, I opened my eyes. Someone was bending over me, looking into my face. Thank God, he is not dead, I heard in whispered tones. Then, with a flash, memory returned to me. What has happened, I ask? You may well ask that, sir, said the inspector gravely. It has been a touch-and-go with you for the last quarter of an hour, and a near thing for me, too. I sat up and looked around me. Daylight was just beginning to break, and I saw that we were at the bottom of the steps that led up to the signal box. My teeth were chattering with the cold, and I was shivering like a man with ague. I am better now, I said. Just give me your hand. I took his arm and, holding the rail with the other hand, staggered up into the box and sat down on the bench. Yes, it has been a near shave, I said, and a big price to pay for solving a mystery. Do you mean to say you know what it is? asked Henderson eagerly. Yes, I answered. I think I know now. But first, tell me, how long was I unconscious? A good bit over a half an hour, sir, I should think. As soon as I heard you call out, I ran down as you told me, but before I got to you, I nearly fainted. I never had such a horrible sensation in my life. I felt as weak as a baby, but I just managed to seize you by the arms and drag you along the line to the steps, and that was about all I could do. Well, I owe you my life, I said. Just hand me that brandy flask. I shall be better for some of its contents. I took a long pull. Just as I was laying the flask down, Henderson started from my side. There, he cried, the 6.30 is coming. The electric bell at the instrument suddenly began to ring. Ought I let her go through, sir, he inquired. Certainly, I answered. That is exactly what we want. Oh, she will be all right. No danger to her, sir? None. None. Let her go through. He pulled the lever, and the next moment the train tore through the cutting. Now I think it will be safe to go down again, I said. I believe I shall be able to get to the bottom of this business. Henderson stared at me aghast. Do you mean that you are going down again to the tunnel, he gasped? Yes, I said. Give me those matches. You had better come too. I don't think there will be any danger now. And there is daylight, so we can see what we are about. The man was very loath to obey me. But at last I managed to persuade him. We went down the line, walking slowly, and at this moment we both felt our courage revived by a broad and cheerful ray of sunshine. We must advance cautiously, I said, and be ready to run back at a moment's notice. God knows, sir, I think we are running a great risk, panted poor Henderson, and if that devil, or whatever else it is, should happen to be about, why, daylight or no daylight. Nonsense, man, I interrupted. If we are careful, no harm will happen to us now. Ah, and here we are. We had reached the spot where I had fallen. Just give me a match, Henderson. He did so, and I immediately lit the lamp. 
Opening the glass of the lamp, I held it close to the ground and passed it to and fro. Suddenly the flame went out. Don't you understand now? I said, looking up at the inspector. No, I don't, sir, he replied with a bewildered expression. Suddenly, before I could make an explanation, we both heard shouts from the top of the cutting, and looking up I saw Bainbridge hurrying down the path. He had come in the dog cart to fetch us. Here's the mystery, I cried as he rushed up to us, and a deadlier scheme of Dame Nature's to frighten and murder poor humanity I have never seen. As I spoke, I lit the lamp again and held it just above a tiny fissure in the rock. It was at once extinguished. What is it? said Bainbridge, panting with excitement. Something that very nearly finished me, I replied. Why, this is a natural escape of choke damp. "'Carbonic acid gas, the deadliest gas imaginable, "'because it gives no warning of its presence, and it has no smell. "'It must have collected here during the hours of the night "'when no train was passing, and gradually, rising, put out the signal light. "'The constant rushing of the trains through the cutting all day "'would temporarily disperse it. "'As I made this explanation, Bainbridge stood like one electrified.' while a curious expression of mingled relief and horror swept over Henderson's face. An escape of carbonic acid gas is not an uncommon phenomenon in volcanic districts, I continued, as I take this to be, but it is odd what should have started it. It has sometimes been known to follow earthquake shocks, when there is a profound disturbance of the deep strata. It is strange that you should have said that, said Bainbridge, when he could find his voice. What do you mean? Why, that about the earthquake. Don't you remember, Henderson? He added, turning to the inspector. We had felt a slight shock all over South Wales about three weeks back. Then that, I think, explains it, I said. It is evident that Pritchard really did climb the rocks in a frantic attempt to escape the gas and fell back onto these boulders. The other man was cut down at once, before he had time to fly. "'But what is to happen now?' asked Bainbridge. "'Will it go on forever? How are we to stop it?' "'The fissure ought to be drenched with lime water and then filled up, "'but all really depends on what is the size of the supply and also the depth. "'It is an extremely heavy gas, and it would lie at the bottom of the cutting like water. "'I think there is more here just now than is good for us,' I added." But how, continued Bainbridge, as we moved a few steps from the fatal spot, do you account for the interval between the first death and the second? The escape must have been intermittent. If the wind blew down the cutting, as probably was the case before this frost set in, it would keep the gas so diluted that its effect would not be noticed. There was enough down here this morning, before that train came through, to poison an army. Indeed, if it had not been for Henderson's promptitude, there would have been another inquest on myself. I then related my own experience. Well, this clears win without a doubt, said Bainbridge, but alas, for the two poor fellows who were victims. Bell, the Lightenvale Railway Company, owe you an unlimited thanks. You have doubtless saved many lives and also the company. "'for the line must have been closed "'if you had not made your valuable discovery. "'But now come home with me to breakfast. 
we can discuss all those matters later on. End of The Mystery of the Felwyn Tunnel by L.T. Meade and Robert Eustace Recording by Andy Minter The Game Played in the Dark by Ernest Brummer It's a funny thing, sir, said Inspector Beadle, regarding Mr. Carrados with the pensive respect that he always extended towards the blind amateur. It's a funny thing, but nothing seems to go on abroad now, but what you'll find some trace of it here in London, if you take the trouble to look. In the right quarter, contributed Carrados. Well, yes, agreed the inspector, but nothing comes of it nine times out of ten, because it's no one's particular business to look here. All the things being taken up and finished from the other end. I don't mean ordinary murders or single-handed burglaries, of course, but uh, a modest ring of professional pride betrayed the quiet enthusiast. Real first-class crimes. The State Antonio 5% bond coupons, suggested Carrados. Oh, you're right, Mr. Carrados. Beadle shook his head sadly, as though perhaps on that occasion someone ought to have looked. A man has a fit in the inquiry office of the Agent General for British Equatoria, and two hundred and fifty thousand pounds worth of fake securities is the result in Mexico. Then look at that jade Philfock charm, pawned for one and three down the basin, and the use that could have been made of it at the Garkoff ritual murder trial. The West Hampstead had lost memory puzzle, and the Barry Purr bomb conspiracy that might have been smothered if one had known. Quite true, sir. And the three children of that Chicago millionaire, Cyrus V. Bunting, wasn't it? Kidnapped in broad daylight outside the New York Lyric. And here, three weeks later, the dumb girl who chalked the wall at Charing Cross. I remember reading once, in a financial article, that every piece of foreign gold had a string from it, leading to Threadneedle Street. A figure of speech, sir, of course, but... Apt enough, I don't doubt. Well, it seems to me that every big crime done abroad leaves a fingerprint here in London. If only, as you say, we look in the right quarter. And at the right moment, added Carrados. The time is often the present, the place, the spot between our very noses. We take a step, and the chance has gone for ever. The inspector nodded and contributed a weighty monosyllable of sympathetic agreement. The most prosaic of men, in the pursuit of his ordinary duties, it nevertheless subtly appealed to some half-dormant streak of vanity to have his profession taken romantically when there was no serious work on hand. No, perhaps not for ever, in one case in a thousand, after all, amended the blind man thoughtfully. This perpetual duel between the law and the criminal has sometimes appeared to me in the terms of a game of cricket, Inspector. Law is in the field, the criminal at the wicket. If law makes a mistake, sends down a loose ball or drops a catch, the criminal scores a little or has another lease of life. But if he makes a mistake, if he lets a straight ball pass or spoons towards a steady man, 
He's done for. His mistakes are fatal. Those of the law are only temporary and retrievable. Very good, sir, said Mr. Beadle, rising. The conversation had taken place in the study at the turrets, where Beadle had found occasion to present himself. Very apt indeed. I must remember that. Well, sir, I only hope that this Guido the Razor lot will send a catch in our direction. The, this delicately marked Inspector Beadle's instinctive contempt for Guido. As a craftsman, he was compelled on his reputation to respect him, and he had accordingly availed himself of Carrados's friendship for a confabulation. As a man, he was a foreigner, worse, an Italian, and if left to his own resources, the inspector would have opposed to his sinuous flexibility those rigid, essentially Britannia metal methods of the force that strike the impartial observer as so ponderous, so amateurish and conventional, and, it must be admitted, often so curiously and inexplicably successful. The offence that had circuitously brought Il Rasoglio and his lot within the cognizance of Scotland Yard outlines the kind of story that is discreetly hinted at by the society paragraphist of the day, politely disbelieved by the astute reader, and then at last laid indiscreetly bare in all its details by the inevitable princessly recollections of a generation later. It centred round an impending royal marriage in Vienna, a certain jealous Countess X, there you have the discretion of the paragrapher, and a document or two that might be relied upon. The aristocratic biographer will impartially sum up the contingencies to play the deuce with the approaching nuptials. To procure the evidence of these papers, the Countess enlisted the services of Guido, as reliable a scoundrel as she could probably have selected for the commission. To a certain point, to the abstraction of the papers, in fact, he succeeded, but it was with pursuit close upon his heels. There was that disadvantage of employing a rogue to do the work that implicated roguery, for whatever moral right the Countess had to the property, her accomplice had no legal right whatever to his liberty. On half a dozen charges at least he could be arrested on sight in as many capitals of Europe. He slipped out of Vienna by the Nordbahn, with his destination known, resourcefully stopped the express outside Saslau, and got away across to Hrudin. By this time the game and the moves were pretty well understood in more than one keenly interested quarter. Diplomacy supplemented justice, and the immediate history of Guido became that of a fox hunted from covert to covert, with all the familiar earths stopped against him. From Pardubitz he passed on to Glatz, reached Breslau, and went down the Oder to Stettin. Out of the liberality of his employer's advances, he had ample funds to keep going, and he dropped and rejoined his accomplices as the occasion ruled. A week's harrying found him in Copenhagen, still with no time to spare, and he missed his purpose there. He crossed to Malmo by ferry, took the connecting night train to Stockholm, and the same morning sailed down the Sotsjon, ostensibly bound for Obo, intending to cross to Raval, and so get back to Central Europe by the less frequented routes. But in this move again luck was against him, and receiving warning just in time, and by the mysterious agency that had so far protected him, 
he contrived to be dropped from the steamer by boat among the islands of the crowded archipelago, made his way to Helsingfors, and within forty-eight hours was back again on the Freehaven, with pursuit for the moment blinked, and a breathing time to the good. To appreciate the exact significance of these wanderings, it is necessary to recall the conditions. Guido was not zigzagging a course across Europe in an aimless search for the picturesque, still less inspired by any love of the melodramatic. To him every step was vital, each tangent or rebound, the necessary outcome of his much-badgered plans. In his pocket reposed the papers for which he had run grave risks. The price agreed upon for the service was sufficiently lavish to make the risks worth taking, time after time. But in order to consummate the transaction, it was necessary that the booty should be put into his employer's hand. Halfway across Europe, that employer was waiting with such patience as she could maintain, herself watched and shadowed at every step. The Countess X was sufficiently exalted to be personally immune from the high-handed methods of her country's secret service, but every approach to her was tapped. The problem for Guido was to earn a long enough respite to enable him to communicate his position to the Countess, and for her to go or to reach him by a trusty hand. Then the whole fabric of intrigue could fall to pieces, but so far Guido had been kept successfully on the run and in the meanwhile time was pressing. They lost him after the Utola, Bedell reported, in explaining the circumstances to Max Carrados. Three days later they found that he'd been back again in Copenhagen, but by that time he'd flown. Now they're without a trace, except the inference of these orange-peach blossom agonies in the times. But the Countess has gone hurriedly to Paris, and Lavoyard thinks it all points to London. "'I suppose the Foreign Office is anxious to oblige just now?' "'I expect so, sir,' agreed Bedell. "'But, of course, my instructions don't come from that quarter. "'What appeals to us is that it would be a feather in our caps. "'There's still a little sore up at the yard about Hans the Piper.' "'Naturally,' assented Carrados. "'Well, I'll see what I can do if there's any real occasion. "'Let me know anything.' And if you see your chance yourself, come round for a talk, if you like. On today's Wednesday, I shall be in, at any rate, on Friday evening. Without being a precision, the blind man was usually exact in such matters. There are those who hold that an engagement must be kept at all hazard, men who would miss a deathbed message in order to keep literal faith with a beggar. Carrados took lower, if more substantial, ground. My word, he sometimes had occasion to remark, is subject to contingencies, like everything else about me. If I make a promise, it is conditional on nothing which seems more important arising to counteract it. That, among men of sense, is understood. And, as it happened, something did occur on this occasion. He was summoned to the telephone just before dinner on Friday evening to receive a message personally. Greatorex, his secretary, had taken the call, but came in to say that the caller would give him nothing beyond his name, Bredner. The name was unknown to Carrados, but such incidents were not uncommon, and he proceeded to comply. Yes, he responded. I am Max Carrados speaking. What is it? 
Oh, it's you, sir, is it? Uh, Mr. Brickwill told me to get to you direct. Well, are you all right, Brickwill? Are you at the British Museum? Yeah, yes, I am Brebner in the Chaldean Art Department. They're in a great stew here. We've just found out that someone has managed to get access to the second inner Greek room and looted some of the cabinets there. It's all a mystery as yet. What is missing? asked Carrados. So far we can only definitely speak of about six trays of Greek coins, a hundred to a hundred and twenty, roughly. Important? The line conveyed a caustic bark of tragic amusement. <laughs> well, yes, I should say so. A beggar seems to have known his business. All fine specimens of the best period. Syracuse, Bithana, Croton, Amphipolis, Euanes, Evientos, Kimmons. The chief quite wept. Carrados groaned. There was not a piece among them that he had not handled lovingly. "'What are you doing?' he demanded. "'Mr. Brickwill has been to Scotland Yard. On advice, we are not making it public as yet. We don't want a hint of it to be dropped anywhere, if you don't mind, sir.' "'That will be all right. It was for that reason that I was to speak with you personally.' "'We're notifying the chief dealers and likely collectors "'to whom the coins or some of them may be offered at once, "'if it is thought we haven't found out yet. "'Judging from the expertness displayed in the selection, "'we don't think there's any danger of the lot being sold "'to a pawnbroker or metal dealer, "'so that we're running very little real risk "'in not advertising the loss.' "'Yes, probably it is as well,' replied Carrados. "'Is there anything that Mr. Brickwell wishes me to do?' "'Only this, sir. If you are offered a suspicious lot of Greek coins, or hear of them, would you have a look? I mean, ascertain whether they're likely to be ours. And if you think they are, communicate with us and Scotland Yard at once.' "'Certainly,' replied the blind man. "'Tell Mr. Brickwell that he can rely on me if any indication comes my way. Convey my regrets to him, and tell him that I feel the loss quite as a personal one.' "'I don't think that you and I have met as yet, Mr. Brebner.' "'No, sir,' said the voice diffidently. "'But I have looked forward to the pleasure. "'Perhaps this unfortunate business will bring me an introduction.' "'You're very kind,' was Carrados's acknowledgment of the compliment. "'Any time. "'I was going to say that perhaps you don't know my weakness, "'but I have spent many pleasant hours over your wonderful collection. "'That ensures the personal element. "'Good-bye.' Carrados was really disturbed by the loss, although his concern was tempered by the reflection that the coins would inevitably in the end find their way back to the museum. That their restitution might involve ransom to the extent of several thousand pounds was the least poignant detail of the situation. The one harrowing thought was that the booty might, through stress or ignorance, find its way into the melting pot. That dreadful contingency, remote but insistent, was enough to affect the appetite of the blind enthusiast. He was expecting Inspector Beadle, who would be full of his own case, but he could not altogether dismiss the aspects of possibility that Brebner's communication opened before his mind. He was still concerned with the chances of destruction, and a very indifferent companion for Greatorex, who alone sat with him when Parkinson presented himself. Dinner was over. But Carrados had remained rather longer than his custom, smoking his mild Turkish cigarette in silence. "'A lady wishes to see you, sir,' 
She said you would not know her name, but that her business would interest you. The form of message was sufficiently unusual to take the attention of both men. "'You don't know her, of course, Parkinson?' inquired his master. For just a second the immaculate Parkinson seemed tongue-tied. Then he delivered himself in his most ceremonial strain. "'I regret to say that I cannot claim the advantage, sir,' he replied. "'Better let me tackle her, sir,' suggested Greatorex, with easy confidence. "'It's probably a sub.' The sportive offer was declined by a smile and a shake of the head. Carrados turned to his attendant. "'I shall be in the study, Parkinson. Show her there in three minutes. You stay and have another cigarette, Greatorex. By that time she'll either have gone or have interested me.' In three minutes' time Parkinson threw open the study door. "'The lady, sir,' he announced. Could he have seen? Carrados would have received the impression of a plainly, almost dowdily-dressed young woman of buxom figure. She wore a light veil, but it was ineffective in concealing the unattraction of the face beneath. The features were smart, and the upper lip darkened with the more than incipient moustache of the southern brunette. Worse remained, for a disfiguring rash had assailed patches of her skin. As she entered, she swept the room and its occupant with a quiet but comprehensive survey. "'Please take a chair, madam. You wish to see me.' The ghost of a demure smile flickered about her mouth as she complied, and in that moment her face seemed less uncomely. Her eye lingered for a moment on a cabinet above the desk, and one might have noticed that her eye was very bright. Then she replied, "'You are the Signora Carrados in the person?' Carrados made his smiling admission, and changed his position a fraction, possibly to catch her curiously pitched voice the better. "'The uh, great collector of the antiquities?' "'I do collect a little,' he admitted guardedly. "'You will forgive me, Signora, if my language is not altogether good.' Uh, when I live at Naples with my mother, we let boardings, uh, chiefly to English and Americans. Uh, I pick up the words, but uh, since I marry and go to live in Calabria, my English has gone all red. Oh, no, you say rusty. Uh, yes, that is it, uh, quite a rusty. It is excellent, said Carrados. I am sure we shall understand one another perfectly. The lady shot a penetrating glance but the blind man's expression was merely suave and courteous. Then she continued, "'My husband is of the name of Raja, Michele Faraja. We have a vineyard and a little property near Foranzana.' She paused to examine the tips of her gloves for quite an appreciable moment. Signor, she burst out with some vehemence, "'the laws of my country are not good at all.' "'From what I hear on all sides,' said Carrados, "'I am afraid that your country is not alone.' "'There is in Foranzana a poor labourer, Gianverde of name,' continued the visitor, dashing volubly into her narrative. "'He is one day digging in the vineyard, the vineyard of my husband, "'when his spade strikes itself upon an abstraction. "'Aha, says Jan, what have we here?' and he goes down upon his knees to see. It is an oil-jar of red earth, signor, such as once anciently used, and in it is filled with silver money. 
Jan is poor, but he is a wise. Does he call upon the authorities? No, no, he, he understands that they are all corrupt. He carries what he has found to my husband, for he knows him to be a man of great honour. My husband also is of brief decision. His mind is made up. Jan, he says, keep your mouth shut. This will be to your ultimate profit. Jan understands, for he can trust my husband. He makes a sign of a mutual implication. Then he goes back to the spade digging. My husband he understands a little of these things, but not enough. We go to the collections of Messina and Naples and even Roma, and there we see other pieces of silver money, similar, and learn that they are of great value. They are of different sizes, but most will come clearer and of the thickness of two. On the one side, imagine the great head of a, a pagan deity. On the other, oh, so many things I cannot remember what. A gesture of circumferential despair indicated the hopeless variety of design. A bigger or quadrigger of mules, suggested Carrados, an eagle carrying off a hare, a figure flying with a wreath, a trophy of arms, some of those perhaps. Si, si, bene, cried Madame Farage. You, you understand, I perceive, Signor. We are very cautious, for on every side is extortion and an unjust law. See, it is even forbidden to take these things out of the country, yet if we try to dispose of them at home, they will be seized and we punished for their trestor trovato, what you call treasure troven, and belonging to the state. These coins, which the industry of Jan discovered, and which had lain for so long in the ground of my husband's vineyard. So you brought them to England? See, si, Signor, it is spoken of as a land of justice and original nobility, who buy these things at the highest prices. Also, my speaking a little of the language would serve us here. I suppose you have the coins for disposal, then? You can show them to me? Uh, my husband retains them. Uh, I will take you, uh, but you must first give a parola d'onore of an English signor uh, not to betray us uh, or to speak of the circumstance uh, to another. Carrados had already foreseen this eventuality and decided to accept it. Whether a promise exacted on the plea of treasure trove would bind him to respect the despoilers of the British Museum was a point for subsequent consideration. Prudence demanded that he should investigate the offer at once, and to cavil over Madame Farage's conditions would be fatal to that object. If the coins were, as there seemed little reason to doubt, the proceeds of the robbery, a modest ransom might be the safest way of preserving irreplaceable treasures and in that case Carrados could offer his services as the necessary intermediary. "'I give you the promise you require, madame,' he accordingly declared. "'It is sufficient,' assented madame. "'I will now take you to the spot. It is necessary that you alone should accompany me, for my husband is so distraught in this country, where he understands not a word of what is spoken,' That his poor spirit would cry, We are surrounded. If he saw two strangers approach the house, 
Oh, he has become most dreadful in his anxiety, my husband. Imagine only he keeps under fire a cauldron of molten lead, and he would not hesitate to plunge into it this treasure and obliterate its existence if he imagined himself endangered. So, speculated Carrados inwardly, a likely precaution for a simple vine-grower of Calabria. Very well, he assented aloud. I will go with you alone. Where is the place? Madame Farage searched in the ancient purse that she discovered in her rusty handbag, and produced a scrap of paper. Uh, people do not understand sometimes my, uh, my way of saying it, uh, she explained. Sit there, Ingborn. May I? said Carrados, stretching out his hand. He took the paper and touched the writing with his fingertips. Oh, yes, Seven Heronsbourne Place. That is on the edge of Heronsbourne Park, is it not? He transferred the paper casually to his desk as he spoke and stood up. How did you come, Madame Farage? Madame Farage followed the careless action with a discreet smile that did not touch her voice. Uh, by a motor bus, sir. First one, and then another, inquiring at every turning. Oh, but it was interminable, sighed the lady. My driver is off for the evening. I did not expect to be going out, but I will phone up a taxi, and it will be at the gate as soon as we are. He dispatched the message, and then, turning to the house telephone, switched on to Greatorex. I am just going round to Heronsbourne Park, he explained. Don't stay, Greater X, but if anyone calls expecting to see me, they can say that I don't anticipate being away more than an hour. Parkinson was hovering about the hall. With quite novel officiousness, he pressed upon his master a succession of articles that were not required. Over this usually complacent attendant, the unattractive features of Madame Farage appeared to exercise a stealthy fascination. For a dozen times the lady detected his eyes questioning her face, and a dozen times he looked guiltily away again. But his incongruities could not delay for more than a few minutes the opening of the door. "'I do not accompany you, sir?' he inquired, with the suggestion plainly tendered in his voice, that it would be much better if he did. "'Not this time, Parkinson.' "'Very well, sir.' "'Is there any particular address which we can telephone in case you are required, sir?' "'Mr. Greatorex has instructions.' "'Parkinson stood aside, his resources exhausted. "'Madame Farage laughed a little mockingly as they walked down the drive. "'Your man-servant thinks I may eat your Signor Carrados,' she declared vivaciously. "'Carrados, who held the key of his usually exact attendance perturbation, for he himself had recognised in Madame Farage the angelic Nina Brun of the Sicilian tetradram incident from the moment she opened her mouth, admitted to himself the humour of her audacity. But it was not until half an hour later that enlightenment rewarded Parkinson. Inspector Beadle had just arrived, and was speaking with Greatorex, when the conscientious valet, who had been winnowing his memory in solitude, broke in upon them more distressed than either had ever seen him in his life before, and, with the breathless introduction, "'It was it ears, sir! I have her ears at last!' poured out his tale of suspicion, recognition, and his present fears. In the meantime, 
The two objects of his concern had reached the gate as the summoned taxicab drew up. Seven Heronsbourne Place, called Carrados to the driver. No, no, interposed the lady with decision. Let him stop at the beginning of the street. It is not far to walk. My husband would be on the verge of distraction if he thought in the dark that it was the arrival of the police. Who knows? Brackedge Road, opposite the end of Heronsbourne Place, amended Carrados. Heronsbourne Place had the reputation, among those who were curious in such matters, of being the most reclusive residential spot inside the four-mile circle. To earn that distinction, it was, needless to say, a cul-de-sac. It bounded one side of Heronsbourne Park, but did not at any point of its length give access to that pleasance. It was entirely devoted to unostentatious little houses, something between the villa and the cottage, some detached and some in pairs, but all possessing the endowment of larger, more umbrageous gardens than can generally be secured within the radius. The local house agent described them as delightfully old world, or completely modernised, according to the requirement of the applicant. The cab was dismissed at the corner, and Madame Farage guided her companion along the silent and deserted way. She had begun to talk with renewed animation, but her ceaseless chatter only served to emphasise to Carrados the one fact that it was contrived to disguise. "'I am not causing you to miss the house with looking after me. Number seven, Madame Farage, he interposed. "'No, uh, certainly.' she replied readily. It is a little further. The numbers are from the other end, but we are there. Ecco. She stopped at a gate and opened it, still guiding him. They passed into a garden, moist and sweet, scented with distillate odours of a dewy evening. As she turned to relatch the gate, the blind man endeavoured politely to anticipate her. Between them his hat fell to the ground. My clumsiness! he apologised, recovering it from the step. My old impulses and my present helplessness. Alas, Madame Farage. Uh, one learns prudence by experience, uh, said Madame sagely. She was scarcely to know, poor lady, that even as she uttered this trite aphorism, under cover of darkness and his hat, Mr. Carrados had just ruined his signet ring by blazoning a golden seven upon her garden step to establish its identity, if need be. A cul-de-sac that numbered from the closed end seemed to demand some investigation. Seldom, he replied to her remark, but one goes on taking risks. So, we are there? Madame Farage had opened the front door with a latch key. She dropped the latch and led Carrados forward along the narrow hall. The room they entered was at the back of the house, and from the position of the road, it therefore overlooked the park. Again the door was locked behind them. "'The celebrated Mr. Carrados, sir,' announced Madame Farage, with a sparkle of triumph in her voice. She waved her hand towards a lean, dark man who had stood beside the door as they entered. Uh, "'My uh, husband.' "'Beneath our poor roof in the most fraternal manner,' commented the dark man in the same derisive spirit, but it is wonderful. The even more celebrated Monsieur Dampierre, unless I am mistaken, retorted Carrados blandly, I bow on our first real meeting. You knew? 
exclaimed the Dompierre of the earlier incident incredulously. Stoker, you were right, and I owe you a hundred lira. Who recognized you, Nina? How should I know? demanded the real Madame Dompierre crossly. This blind man himself, by chance. You pay a poor compliment to your charming wife's personality to imagine that one could forget her so soon, put in Carrados, and you a Frenchman, Dompierre. You knew, Monsieur Carrados, and yet you ventured here. You are either a fool or a hero. An enthusiast, it is the same as both, interposed the lady. What did I tell you? What does it matter if he recognized? You see? Surely you exaggerate, Monsieur Dompierre, contributed Carrados. I may yet pay tribute to your industry. Perhaps I regret the circumstance and the necessity, but I am here to make the best of it. Let me see the things Madame has spoken of, and then we can consider the detail of their price, either for myself or on behalf of others. There was no immediate reply. From Dompierre came a saturnine chuckle, and from Madame Dompierre a titter that accompanied a grimace. For one of the rare occasions in his life, Carrados found himself wholly out of touch with the atmosphere of the situation. Instinctively he turned his face towards the other occupant of the room, the man addressed as Stoker, whom he knew to be standing near the window. "'This unfortunate business has brought me an introduction,' said a familiar voice. For one dreadful moment the universe stood still round Carrados. Then, with the crash and grind of overwhelming mental tumult, the whole strategy revealed itself, like the sections of a gigantic puzzle falling into place before his eyes. There had been no robbery at the British Museum. That plausible concoction was as fictitious as the intentionally transparent tale of treasure trove. Carrados recognized now how ineffective the one device would have been without the other in drawing him, how convincing the two together, and while smarting at the humiliation of his plight, he could not restrain a dash of admiration at the ingenuity, the accurately conjectured line of inference of the plot. It was again the familiar artifice of the cunning pitfall, masked by the clumsily contrived trap just beyond it, and straight away into it he had blundered. "'And this,' continued the same voice, "'is Carrados, Max Carrados, "'upon whose perspicuity a government, "'only the present government, let me in justice say, "'depends to outwit the undesirable alien. "'My country! Oh, my country!' "'Is it really, Monsieur Carrados?' "'inquired Dompierre in polite sarcasm. "'Are you sure, Nina, that you have not brought a man "'from Scotland Yard instead?' Buster, he is here. What more do you want? Do not mock the poor sightless gentleman, answered Madame Dompierre in doubtful sympathy. That's exactly what I was wondering, ventured Carrados mildly. I am here. What more do you want? Perhaps you, Mr. Stoker. Excuse me, uh, Stoker is a mere colloquial appellation based on a trifling incident of my career in connection with a disabled liner. The title illustrates the childish weakness of the criminal classes for nicknames. Together with their pitiable baldness of invention, my real name is Montmorency, Mr. Carrados. Eustace Montmorency. Thank you, Mr. Montmorency, said Carrados gravely. 
"'We are on opposite sides of the table here to-night, "'but I should be proud to have been with you "'in the stokehold of the Benvenuto.' "'That was pleasure,' muttered the Englishman. "'This is business.' "'Oh, quite so,' agreed Carrados. "'So far I am not exactly complaining, "'but I think it is high time to be told, "'and I address myself to you, "'why I have been decoyed here, "'and what your purpose is.' Mr. Montmorency turned to his accomplice. Dompierre, he remarked with great clearness, why the devil is Mr. Carrados kept standing? Oh, oh heaven! exclaimed Madame Dompierre with tragic resignation and flung herself down on a couch. Scusi, grinned the lean man, and with burlesque grace he placed a chair for their guest's acceptance. Your curiosity is natural continued Mr. Montmorency, with a cold eye towards Dompierre's antics. Although I really think that by this time you ought to have guessed the truth. In fact, I don't doubt that you have guessed, Mr. Carrados, and that you are only endeavouring to gain time. For that reason, because it will perhaps convince you that we have nothing to fear, I don't mind obliging you. Better hasten, murmured Dompierre uneasily. "'Thank you, Bill,' said the Englishman, with genial effrontery. "'I won't fail to report your intelligence to the Rasojo. "'Yes, Mr. Carrados, as you have already conjectured, "'it is the affair of the Countess X to which you owed this inconvenience. "'You will appreciate the compliment that underlies your temporary seclusion, I'm sure. "'When circumstances favoured our plans, "'and London became the inevitable place of meeting, "'you, and you alone, stood in the way. "'We guessed that you would be consulted, "'and we frankly feared your intervention. "'You were consulted. "'We know that Inspector Beadle visited you two days ago, "'and he has no other case in hand. "'Your quiescence for just three days "'had to be obtained at any cost. "'So, here you are.' "'I see,' assented Carrados. "'And having got me here, how do you propose to keep me?' "'Of course that detail has received consideration. "'In fact, we secured this furnished house solely with that in view. "'There are three courses before us. "'The first, quite pleasant, hangs on your acquiescence. "'The second, more drastic, comes into operation if you decline. "'The third... "'But really, Mr. Carrados, I hope you won't oblige me even to discuss the third. "'You will understand that it is rather objectionable for me "'to contemplate the necessity of two able-bodied men "'having to use even the smallest amount of physical compulsion "'to one who is blind and helpless. "'I hope you will be reasonable and accept the inevitable.' "'The inevitable is the one thing that I invariably accept,' replied Carrados. "'What does it involve?' "'You will write a note to your secretary, "'explaining that what you have learned at Seven Heronsbourne Place "'makes it necessary for you to go immediately abroad for a few days. "'By the way, Mr. Carrados, although this is Heronsbourne Place, "'it is not number seven. "'Dear, dear me,' sighed the prisoner, "'you seem to have had me at every turn, Mr. Montmorency. "'An obvious precaution. "'The wider course of giving you a different street altogether,' "'We rejected as being too risky in getting you here. "'To continue, to give conviction to the message, "'you will direct your man Parkinson to follow by the first boat train tomorrow, "'with all the requirements for a short stay, 
and to put up at Mascot's, as usual, waiting your arrival there.' "'Very convincing,' agreed Carrados. "'Where shall I be in reality?' "'In a charming, though rather isolated, bungalow on the south coast. Your wants will be attended to. There's a boat. You can row or fish. You will be run down by motor-car and brought back to your own gate. It's really very pleasant for a few days. I've often stayed there myself.' "'Your recommendation carries weight. Uh, "'Suppose, for the sake of curiosity, that I decline?' "'You'll still go there, but your treatment will be commensurate with your behaviour. "'The car to take you is at this moment waiting in a convenient spot on the other side of the park. "'We shall go down the garden at the back, cross the park, and put you in the car. "'Anyway.' "'And if I resist?' The man whose pleasantry it had been to call himself Eustace Montmorency shrugged his shoulders. "'Don't be a fool,' he said tolerantly. "'You know who you're dealing with, and the kind of risks we run. If you call out or endanger us at a critical point, we shall not hesitate to silence you effectively.' The blind man knew that it was no idle threat. In spite of the cloak of humour and fantasy thrown over the proceedings, he was in the power of coolly desperate men. The window was curtained and shuttered against sight and sound. The door behind him locked. Possibly at that moment a revolver threatened him. Certainly weapons lay within reach of both his keepers. "'Tell me what to write,' he asked, with capitulation in his voice. Dompierre twirled his moustachios in relieved approval. Madame laughed from her place on the couch and picked up a book, watching Montmorency over the cover of its pages. As for that gentleman, he masked his satisfaction by the practical business of placing on the table before Carrados the accessories of the letter. "'Put into your own words the message that I outlined just now.' "'Perhaps, to make it altogether natural, I had better write on a page of the notebook that I always use,' suggested Carrados. "'You wish to make it natural?' demanded Montmorency, with latent suspicion. "'If the miscarriage of your plan is to result in my head being not, yes, I do,' was the reply. "'Good,' chuckled Dompierre, and sought to avoid Mr. Montmorency's cold glance by turning on the electric table-lamp for the blind man's benefit. Madame Dompierre laughed shrilly. "'Thank you, monsieur,' said Carrados. "'You have done quite right. What is light to you is warmth to me.' Heat, energy, inspiration. Now, to business. He took out the pocket-book he had spoken of, and leisurely proceeded to flatten it down upon the table before him. As his tranquil, pleasant eyes ranged the room meanwhile, it was hard to believe that the shutters of an impenetrable darkness lay between them and the world. They rested for a moment on the two accomplices who stood beyond the table, picked out Madame Dompierre lolling on the sofa to his right, and measured the proportions of the long, narrow room. They seemed to note the positions of the window at the one end, and the door almost at the other, and even to take into account the single pendant electric light, which up till then had been the sole illuminant. "'You prefer pencil?' asked Montmorency. "'I generally use it for casual purposes, but not,' he added, touching the point critically, "'like this.' Alert for any sign of retaliation, they watched him take an insignificant penknife from his pocket, and begin to trim the pencil. 
Was there in his mind any mad impulse to force conclusions with that puny weapon? Dompierre worked his face into a fiercer expression, and touched reassuringly the handle of his knife. Montmorency looked on for a moment, then, whistling softly to himself, turned his back on the table and strolled towards the window, avoiding Madame Nina's pursuant eye. Then, with overwhelming suddenness, it came, and its form altogether unexpected. Carrados had been putting the last strokes to the pencil, whittling it down upon the table. There had been no hasty movement, no violent act to give them warning. Only the little blade had pushed itself nearer and nearer to the electric light cord lying there. And suddenly, and instantly, the room was plunged into absolute darkness. "'To the door, Dom!' shouted Montmorency in a flash. "'I'm at the window. Don't let him pass, and we're all right.' "'I am here,' replied Dompierre from the door. "'He will not attempt to pass.' came the quiet voice of Carrados from across the room. "'You are now all exactly where I want you. You are both covered. If either moves an inch, I fire, and remember that I shoot by sound, not sight.' "'But, but what does it mean?' stammered Montmorency, above the despairing wail of Madame Dompierre. "'It means that we are now on equal terms. Three blind men in a dark room.' The numerical advantage that you possess is counterbalanced by the fact that you are out of your element. I am in mine. Dom, whispered Montmorency across the dark space, strike a match. I have none. I would not, Dompierre, if I were you, advised Carrados with a short laugh. It might be dangerous. At once his voice seemed to leap into a passion. Drop that matchbox, he cried. "'You are standing on the brink of your grave, you fool. "'Drop it, I say. Let me hear it fall.' A breath of thought, almost too short to call a pause. Then a little thud of surrender sounded from the carpet by the door. The two conspirators seemed to hold their breath. "'That's right.' The placid voice once more resumed its sway. "'Why cannot things be agreeable? "'I hate to have to shout, but you seem far from grasping the situation yet.' "'Remember that I do not take the slightest risk. "'Also, please remember, Mr. Montmorency, "'that the action, even of a hair-trigger automatic, "'scrapes slightly as it comes up, "'and remind you of that for your own good, "'because if you are so ill-advised "'to think of trying to pot me in the dark, "'that noise gives me a fifth of a second start of you. "'Do you by any chance know Zingis in Mercer Street?' "'The shooting gallery?' asked Mr. Montmorency, a little sulkily. The same. If you happen to come through this alive, and are interested, you might ask Zingy to show you a target of mine that he keeps. Seven shots at twenty yards, the target indicated by four watches, none of them so loud as the one you are wearing. He keeps it as a curiosity. I wear no watch, muttered Dompierre, expressing his thought aloud. "'No, Monsieur Dompierre, but you wear a heart, and that's not on your sleeve,' said Carrados. "'Just now it is quite as loud as Mr. Montmorency's watch. It is more central, too. I shall not have to allow any margin. That's right. Breathe naturally.' For the unhappy Dompierre had given a gasp of apprehension. "'It does not make any difference to me, and, after a time, holding one's breath becomes really painful.' "'Monsieur!' declared Dompierre earnestly. 
there was no intention of submitting you to injury, I swear. This Englishman did but speak within his hat. At the most extreme you would have been but bound and gagged. Take care. Killing is a dangerous game. For you, not for me, was the bland rejoinder. If you kill me, you will be hanged for it. If I kill you, I shall be honourably acquitted. You can imagine the scene. The sympathetic court, the recital of your villainies, the story of my indignities. Then with stumbling feet and groping hands, the helpless blind man is led forward to give evidence. Sensation. No, no, it isn't really fair. But I can kill you both with absolute certainty, and Providence will be saddled with all the responsibility. Please don't fidget with your feet, Monsieur Dompierre. I know that you aren't moving, but one is liable to make mistakes. Before I die, said Montmorency, and for some reason laughed unconvincingly in the dark, before I die, Mr. Carrados, I should really like to know what has happened to the light. That surely isn't Providence. Would it be ungenerous to suggest that you are trying to gain time? You ought to know what has happened. But as it may satisfy you that I have nothing to fear from delay, I don't mind telling you. In my hand was a sharp knife. Contemptible, you were satisfied, as a weapon. Beneath my nose, the flecks of the electric lamp. It was only necessary for me to draw the one across the other, and the system was short-circuited. Every lamp on that fuse is cut off, and in the distributing box in the hall you will find a burned-out wire. You, perhaps, but Monsieur Dampierre's experience in plating ought to have put him up to simple electricity. How did you know that there is a distributing box in the hall? asked Dampierre with dull resentment. "'My dear Dampierre, why beat the air with futile questions?' replied Max Carrados. "'What does it matter? Have it in the cellar, if you like.' "'True,' interposed Montmorency. "'The only thing that need concern us now—' "'But it is in the hole nine feet high,' muttered Dampierre in bitterness. "'Yet he, this blind man—the only thing that need concern us—' repeated the Englishman, severely ignoring the interruption— "'Is what you intend doing in the end, Mr. Carrados?' "'The end is a little difficult to foresee,' was the admission. "'So far I am all for maintaining the status quo. "'Will the first grey light of morning find us still in this impasse?' "'No, for between us we have condemned the room to eternal darkness. "'Probably about daybreak Dompierre will drop off to sleep and roll against the door. "'I?' "'Unfortunately, mistaking his attention, will send a bullet through. "'Pardon, madame, I should have remembered. But pray, don't move.' "'I protest, monsieur.' "'Don't protest. Just sit still. "'Very likely it will be Mr. Montmorency who will fall off to sleep the first, after all.' "'Then we will anticipate that difficulty,' said the one in question, speaking with renewed decision. "'We will play the last hand with our cards upon the table, if you like.' Nina, Mr. Carrados will not injure you, whatever happens, be sure of that. When the moment comes, you will rise. One word, put in Carrados with determination. My position is precarious, and I take no risks. As you say, I cannot injure Madame Dompierre, and you two men are therefore my hostages for her good behaviour. If she rises from the couch, you, Dompierre, fall. If she advances another step... "'Mr. Montmorency follows you.' "'Do nothing rash, Carissima,' urged her husband, 
with passionate solicitude. "'You might get it in place of me. "'We will yet find a better way.' "'You dare not, Mr. Carrados,' flung out Montmorency, "'for the first time beginning to show signs of wear "'in this duel of the temper. "'He dare not, Dompierre, in cold blood and unprovoked. "'No jury would acquit you.' "'Another who fails to do you justice, Madam Nina,' "'said the blind man, with ironic gallantry. "'The action might be a little high-handed, one admits.' But when you, appropriately clothed and in your right complexion, stepped into the witness-box, and I said, gentlemen of the jury, what is my crime? That I made Madame Dompierre a widow? Can you doubt their gratitude and my acquittal? Truly my countrymen are not all bats or monks, madame. Dompierre was breathing with perfect freedom now, while from the couch came the sounds of stifled emotion. But whether the lady was involved in a paroxysm of sobs or of laughter, it might be difficult to swear. It was perhaps an hour after the flourish of the introduction with which Madame Dompierre had closed the door of the trap upon the blind man's entrance. The minutes had passed, but the situation remained unchanged, though the ingenuity of certainly two of the occupants of the room had been tormented into shreds to discover a means of turning it to their advantage. So far the terrible omniscience of the blind man in the dark, and the respect for his marksmanship, with which his coolness had inspired them, dominated the group. But one strong card yet remained to be played, and at last the moment came upon which the conspirators had pinned their despairing hopes. There was the sound of movement in the hall outside, not the first about the house, but towards the new complication, Carrados had been strangely unobservant. True, Montmorency had talked rather loudly to carry over the dangerous moments, but now there came an unmistakable step, and to the accomplices it could only mean one thing. Montmorency was ready on the instant. "'Down, Dom!' he cried. "'Throw yourself down! Break in, Guido! Break in the door! We are held up!' There was an immediate response. The door, under the pressure of a human battering ram, burst open with a crash. On the threshold the intruders, four or five in number, stopped starkly for a moment, held in astonishment by the extraordinary scene that the light from the hall and their own bull's eyes revealed, flat on their faces, to present the least possible surface to Carrados's aim. Dompierre and Bombarenzi lay extended beside the window and behind the door. On the couch, with her head buried beneath the cushions, Madame Dompierre sought to shut out the sight and sound of violence. Carrados? Carrados had not moved. But with arms resting on the table, and fingers placidly locked together, he smiled benignly on the new arrivals. His attitude, compared with the extravagance of those around him, gave the impression of a complacent modern deity, presiding over some grotesque ceremonial of pagan worship. "'So, Inspector, you could not wait for me after all,' was his greeting. End of The Game Played in the Dark Read by Andy Minter. Kate Chopin, Her Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Her Letters, Kate Chopin. She had given orders that she wished to remain undisturbed, and moreover had locked the doors of her room. 
The house was very still. The rain was falling steadily from a laden sky in which there was no gleam, no rift, no promise. A generous wood fire had been lighted in the ample fireplace, and it brightened and illumined the luxurious apartment to its furthermost corners. From some remote nook of her writing desk, Thoma took a thick bundle of letters, bound tightly together with strong, coarse twine, and placed it upon the table in the center of the room. For weeks she had been schooling herself for what she was about to do. There was a strong deliberation in the lines of her long, thin, sensitive face. Her hands, too, were long and delicate and blue-veined. With a pair of scissors, she snapped the cord binding the letters together. Thus released, the ones which were topmost slid down to the table, and she, with a quick movement, thrust her fingers among them, scattering and turning them over till they quite covered the broad surface of the table. Before her were envelopes of various sizes and shapes, all of them addressed in the handwriting of one man and one woman. He had sent her letters all back to her one day, when, sick with dread of possibilities, she had asked to have them returned. She had meant then to destroy them all, his and her own. That was four years ago, and she had been feeding upon them ever since. They had sustained her, she believed, and kept her spirit from perishing utterly. Now the day had come when the premonition of danger could no longer remain unheeded. She knew that before many months were past, she would have to part from her treasure, leaving it unguarded. She shrank from inflicting the pain, the anguish which the discovery of these letters would bring to others, to one above all who was near to her, and whose tenderness and years of devotion had made him in a manner dear to her. She calmly selected a letter at random from the pile and cast it into the roaring fire. A second one followed almost as calmly. With the third, her hand began to tremble, when in a sudden paroxysm she cast a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth into the flames in breathless succession. Then she stopped and began to pant, for she was far from strong, and she stayed staring into the fire with pained and savage eyes. Oh, what had she done? What had she not done? With feverish apprehension, she began to search among the letters before her. Which of them had she so ruthlessly, so cruelly put out of her existence? Heaven grant not the first, that very first one written before they had learned or dared to say to each other, I love you. No, no, there it was, safe enough. She laughed with pleasure and held it to her lips. What if that other most precious and most imprudent one was missing, in which every word of untempered passion had long ago eaten its way into her brain and which stirred her still today, as it had done a hundred times before when she thought of it? She crushed it between her palms when she found it. She kissed it again and again. With her sharp white teeth, she tore the far corner from the letter where the name was written. She bit the torn scrap and tasted it between her lips and upon her tongue like some God-given morsel. What unbounded thankfulness she felt at not having destroyed them all. How desolate and empty would have been her remaining days without them, with only her thoughts, elusive thoughts that she could not hold in her hands and 
press as she did these to her cheeks and her heart. This man had changed the water in her veins to wine, whose taste had brought delirium to both of them. It was all one and past now, save for these letters that she held encircled in her arms. She stayed breathing softly and contentedly, and with the hectic cheek resting upon them. She was thinking, thinking of a way to keep them without possible ultimate injury to that other one whom they would stab more cruelly than keen knife blades. At last she felt the way. It was a way that frightened and bewildered her to think of at first, but she'd reached it by deduction too sure to admit of doubt. She meant, of course, to destroy them herself before the end came, but how does the end come, and when? Who can tell? She would guard again the possibility of accident by leaving them in charge of the very one who, above all, should be spared a knowledge of their contents. She roused herself from the stupor of thought and gathered the scattered letters once more together, binding them again with a tough twine. She wrapped the compact bundle on a tight sheet of white polished paper. Then she wrote in ink upon the back of it in large, firm characters. I leave this package to the care of my husband. With perfect faith in his loyalty and his love, I ask him to destroy it unopened. It was not sealed. Only a bit of string held the wrapper, which she could remove and replace at will whenever the humor came to her to pass an hour in some intoxicating dream of the days when she felt she had lived. If he had come upon that bundle of letters in the first flush of his poignant sorrow, there would not have been an instant's hesitancy. To destroy it promptly and without question would have seemed a welcome expression of devotion, a way of reaching her, of crying out his love to her while the world was still filled with the illusion of her presence. But months had passed since that spring day when they had found her stretched upon the floor, clutching the key of her writing desk, which she appeared to have been attempting to reach when death overtook her. Day was much like that day a year ago when the leaves were falling in the rain, pouring steadily from the leaden sky which held no gleam, no promise. He had happened accidentally upon the package in that remote nook of her desk. Just as she herself had done a year ago, he carried it to the table and laid it down there staring with puzzled eyes at the message which confronted him. I leave this package to the care of my husband. With perfect faith in his loyalty and his love, I ask him to destroy it unopened. She had made no mistake. Every line of his face, no longer young, spoke loyalty and honesty, and his eyes were as faithful as a dog's and his loving. He was a tall, powerful man, standing there in the firelight with shoulders that stooped a little and hair that was growing somewhat thin and gray, and a face that was distinguished and must have been handsome when he smiled. But he was slow. Destroy it unopened, he reread, half aloud. But why unopened? He took the package again in his hands, and turning it about and feeling it, discovered that it was composed of many letters tightly packed together. So here were her letters which was she was asking him to destroy and open. She had never seemed in her lifetime to have had a secret from him. 
He knew her to have been cold and passionless, but true and watchful of his comfort and his happiness. Might he not be holding in his hands the secret of some other one which had been confided to her and which she had promised to guard? But no, she would have indicated the fact by some additional line or word. The secret was her own, something contained in these letters, and she wanted it to die with her. If he could have thought of her as on some distant, shadowy shore waiting for him throughout the years with outstretched hands to come and join her again, he would not have hesitated. With hopeful confidence, he would have thought, in that blessed meeting time, soul, soul, she would tell me all. Till then I can wait and trust. But he could not think of her in any far-off paradise awaiting him. He felt that there was no smallest part of her anywhere in the universe more than there had been before she was born into the world. But she had embodied herself with terrible significance in an intangible wish. Uttered when life still coursed through her veins, knowing that would reach him when the annihilation of death was between them, but uttered with all confidence in its power and potency. He was moved by the splendid daring, the magnificence of the act, which at the same time exalted him and lifted him above the head of common mortals. What secret save one could a woman choose to have die with her? As quickly as the suggestion came to his mind, so swiftly did the man instinct of possession creep into his blood. His fingers cramped about the package in his hands, and he sank into a chair beside the table. The agonizing suspicion that perhaps another hand shared with him, her thoughts, her affection, her life, deprived him for a swift instant of honor and reason. He thrust the end of his strong thumb beneath the string, which with a single turn would have yielded with perfect faith in your loyalty and your love. It was not the written characters addressing themselves to the eye. It was like a voice speaking to his soul. With a tremor of anguish, he bowed his head down upon the letters. He had once seen a clairvoyant hold a letter to his forehead and purport in doing so to discover its contents. He wondered for a wild moment if such a gift for force of wishing might come to him. But he was only conscious of the smooth surface of the paper, cold against his brow like a touch of a dead woman's hand. A half hour passed before he lifted his head. An unspeakable conflict had raged within him, but his loyalty and his love had conquered. His face was pale and deep-lined with suffering, but there was no more hesitancy to be seen there. He did not for a moment think of casting the package into the flames to be licked by the fiery tongue and charred and half revealed to his eyes. That was not what she meant. He arose and taking a heavy bronze paperweight from the table, bound it securely to the package. He walked to the window, looked out into the street below. Darkness had come and it was still raining. He could hear the rain dashing against the window panes and could see it falling through the dull yellow rim of light cast by the lighted street lamp. He prepared himself to go out and when quite ready to leave the house, thrust the weighted package into the deep pocket of his top coat. He did not hurry along the street as most people were doing at that hour, 
but walk with long, slow, deliberate steps, not seeming to mind the penetrating chill and rain driving into his face despite the shelter of his umbrella. His dwelling was not far removed from the business section of the city, and it was not a great while before he found himself at the entrance of the bridge that spanned the river, the deep, broad, swift, black river dividing two states. He walked on and out to the very center of the structure. The wind was blowing fiercely and keenly. The darkness where he stood was impenetrable. The thousand of lights in the city he had left seemed like all the stars of heavens massed together, sinking into some distant, mysterious horizon, leaving him alone in a black, boundless universe. He drew the package from his pocket and, leaning as far as he could over the broad stone rail of the bridge, cast it from him into the river. It fell straight and swiftly from his hand. He could not follow its descent from the darkness nor hear its dip into the water far below. It vanished silently, seemingly into some inky, unfathomable space. He felt as if he were fleeing it back to her in that unknown world whither she had gone. An hour or two later, he sat at his table in the company of several men whom he had invited that day to dine with him. A secret had settled upon his spirit, a conviction, a certitude that there could be but one secret which a woman would choose to have die with her. This one thought was possessing him. It occupied his brain, keeping it nimble and alert with suspicion. It clutched his heart, making every breath of existence a fresh moment of pain. The men about him were no longer the friends of yesterday. In each one he discerned a possible enemy. He tended absolutely to their talk. He was remembering how she had conducted herself toward this one and that one, striving to recall conversation, subtleties of facial expressions that might have meant what he did not suspect at the moment, shades of meeting in words that seemed the ordinary interchange of social amenities. He led the conversation to the subject of women, probing those men for their opinions and experiences. There was not one but claimed some infallible power to command the affections of any woman whom his fancy might select. He had heard the empty boast before from the same group, and had always met it with good-humored contempt. But, but tonight every flagrant inane utterance was charged with a new meaning revealing possibilities that he had hitherto never taken into account. He was glad when they were gone. He was eager to be alone, not from any desire or intention to sleep. He was impatient to regain her room, that room in which he had lived a large portion of her life and where he had found these letters. There must surely be some of them somewhere, he thought, some forgotten scrap, some written thought or expression lying unguarded by an invisible command. At the hour when he usually retired for the night, he set himself down before her writing desk and began the search of drawers, slides, pigeonholes, nooks, and corners. He did not leave a scrap of anything unread. Many of the letters which he found were old. Some he had read before, others were new to him. But in none did he find the faintest evidence that his wife had not been the true and loyal woman he had always believed her to be. The night was nearly spent before the fruitless search ended. The brief troubled sleep which he snatched before his hour for rising 
was freighted with feverish, grotesque dreams. Though all of which he could hear and could see dimly the dark river rushing by, carrying away his heart, his ambitions, his life. But it was not alone in letters that women betrayed their emotions, he thought. Often he had known them, especially when in love, to mark fugitive sentimental passages in books of verse or prose, thus expressing and revealing their own hidden thought. Might she not have done this? Then began a second and far more exhausting and arduous quest than the first, turning page by page the volumes that crowded her room. Books of fiction, poetry, philosophy, she had read them all, but nowhere by the shadow of a sign could he find that the author had echoed the secrets of her existence, the secret which he had held in his hands and had cast into the river. He began cautiously and gradually to question this one and that one, striving to learn by indirect ways which each had thought of her. For the most he learned she had been unsympathetic because of her coldness of manner. One had admired her intellect, another her accomplishments. A third had thought her beautiful before disease claimed her, regretting, however, that her beauty had lacked warmth of color and expression. She was praised by some for gentleness and kindness, and by others for cleverness and tact. Oh, it was useless to try to discover anything from men. He might have known. It was women who would talk of what they knew. They did talk unreservedly. Most of them had loved her. Those who had not had held her in respect and esteem. And yet, and yet, there is but one secret which a woman would choose to have die with her, was the thought which continued to haunt him and deprive him of rest, days and nights of uncertainty being slowly to unnerve him and torture him. An assurance of the worst that he dreaded would have offered him peace to most welcome, even at the price of happiness. It seemed no longer of any moment to him that men should come and go, and fall or rise in the world, and wed and die. It did not signify if money came to him by a turn of chance or eluded him. Empty and meaningless seemed to him all devices which the world offers for men's entertainment. The food and the drink set before him had lost their flavor. He did not longer know or care if the sun shone or the clouds lowered him. A cruel hazard had struck him there where he was weakest, shattering his whole being, leaving him with but one wish in his soul, one gnawing desire to know the mystery which he had held in his hands and cast into the river. One night, when there was no star shining, he wandered restlessly upon the streets. He no longer sought to know from men or women what they dared not or could not tell him. Only the river knew. He went and stood again upon the bridge where he had stood many an hour since that night when the darkness then had closed around him and engulfed his manhood. Only the river knew and babbled and he listened to it and told him nothing, but it promised all. He could hear it promising him with caressing voice, peace and sweet repose. He could hear the sweet, the song of the water inviting him. A moment more and he had gone to seek her and to join her and her secret thought in the immeasurable rest.
Jury of Her Peers by Susan Glaspell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Cory Samuel. A Jury of Her Peers by Susan Glaspell. When Martha Hale opened the storm door, and got a cut of the north wind, she ran back for her big woollen scarf. As she hurriedly wound that round her head, her eye made a scandalized sweep of her kitchen. It was no ordinary thing that called her away. It was probably further from ordinary than anything that had ever happened in Dixon County. But what her eye took in was that her kitchen was in no shape for leaving, her bread all ready for mixing, half the flour sifted, and half unsifted. She hated to see things half done, but she had been at that when the team from town stopped to get Mr. Hale, and then the sheriff came running in to say his wife wished Mrs. Hale would come too, adding, with a grin, that he guessed she was getting scary and wanted another woman along. So she had dropped everything right where it was. Martha, now came her husband's impatient voice, don't keep folks waiting out here in the cold. She again opened the storm door, and this time joined the three men and the one woman waiting for her in the big two-seated buggy. After she had the robes tucked round her, she took another look at the woman who sat beside her on the back seat. She had met Mrs. Peters the year before at the county fair, and the thing she remembered about her was that she didn't seem like a sheriff's wife. She was small and thin and didn't have a strong voice. Mrs. Gorman, sheriff's wife before Gorman went out and Peters came in, had a voice that somehow seemed to be backing up the law with every word. But if Mrs. Peters didn't look like a sheriff's wife, Peters made it up in looking like a sheriff. He was, to a dot, the kind of man who could get himself elected sheriff, a heavy man with a big voice, who was particularly genial with the law-abiding, as if to make it plain that he knew the difference between criminals and non-criminals. And right there, it came into Mrs. Hale's mind, with a stab, that this man who was so pleasant and lively with all of them, was going to the rights now, as a sheriff. The country's not very pleasant this time of year, Mrs. Peters at last ventured, as if she felt they ought to be talking as well as the men. Mrs. Hale scarcely finished her reply, for they had gone up a little hill and could see the right place now, and seeing it did not make her feel like talking. It looked very lonesome this cold March morning. It had always been a lonesome-looking place. It was down in a hollow, and the poplar trees around it were lonesome-looking trees. The men were looking at it and talking about what had happened. The county attorney was bending to one side of the buggy and kept looking steadily at the place as they drew up to it. "'I'm glad you came with me,' Mrs. Peters said nervously, as the two women were about to follow the men in through the kitchen door. Even after she had her foot on the doorstep, her hand on the knob, Martha Hale had a moment of feeling she could not cross that threshold, and the reason it seemed she couldn't cross it now was simply because she hadn't crossed it before. Time and time again it had been in her mind, I ought to go over and see Minnie Foster. She still thought of her as Minnie Foster, though for twenty years she had been Mrs. Wright. And then there was always something to do, 
and Minnie Foster would go from her mind. But now she could come. The men went over to the stove. The women stood close together by the door. Young Henderson, the county attorney, turned around and said, Come up to the fire, ladies. Mrs. Peters took a step forward, then stopped. I'm not cold, she said. And so the two women stood by the door, at first not even so much as looking around the kitchen. The men talked for a minute about what a good thing it was the sheriff had sent his deputy out that morning to make a fire for them, and then Sheriff Peters stepped back from the stove, unbuttoned his outer coat, and leaned his hands on the kitchen table in a way that seemed to mark the beginning of official business. "'Now, Mr. Hale,' he said, in a sort of semi-official voice, "'before we move things about, you tell Mr. Henderson just what it was you saw when you came here yesterday morning.' The county attorney was looking around the kitchen. By the way, he said, has anything been moved? He turned to the sheriff. Are things just as you left them yesterday? Peters looked from cupboard to sink, from that to a small worn rocker a little to one side of the kitchen table. It's just the same. Somebody should have been here yesterday, said the county attorney. Oh, yesterday, returned the sheriff with a little gesture, as of yesterday having been more than he could bear to think of. When I had to send Frank to Morris Center for that man who went crazy, let me tell you, I had my hands full yesterday. I knew you could get back from Omaha by today, George, and as long as I went over everything here myself. Well, Mr. Hale, said the county attorney, in a way of letting what was past and gone go, tell us just what happened when you came here yesterday morning. Mrs. Hale, still leaning against the door, had that sinking feeling of the mother whose child is about to speak a piece. Lewis often wandered along and got things mixed up in a story. He hoped he would tell this straight and plain, and not say unnecessary things that would just make things harder for Minnie Foster. He didn't begin at once, and she noticed that he looked queer, as if standing in that kitchen and having to tell what he had seen there yesterday morning made him almost sick. Yes, Mr. Hale, the county attorney reminded. Harry and I had started to town with a load of potatoes, Mrs. Hale's husband began. Harry was Mrs. Hale's oldest boy. He wasn't with them now, for the very good reason that those potatoes never got to town yesterday, and he was taking them this morning. So he hadn't been home when the sheriff stopped to say he wanted Mr. Hale to come over to the right place and tell the county attorney his story there, where he could point it all out. With all Mrs. Hale's other emotions came the fear now that maybe Harry wasn't dressed warm enough. They hadn't any of them realized how that north wind did bite. We come along this road, Hale was going on, with a motion of his hand to the road over which they had just come. And as we got inside the house, I says to Harry, I'm going to see if I can't get John Wright to take a telephone. You see, he explained to Henderson, unless I can get somebody to go in with me, they won't come out on this branch road, except for a price I can't pay. I'd spoken to Wright about it once before, but he put me off, saying folks talk too much anyway, and all he asked was peace and quiet. Guess you know about how much he talked himself. But I thought maybe if I went to the house and talked about it before his wife and said all the women folks like the telephones, 
and that in this lonesome stretch of road it would be a good thing. Well, I said to Harry that that was what I was going to say. Though I said at the same time that I didn't know as what his wife wanted made much difference to John. Now there he was, saying things he didn't need to say. Mrs. Hale tried to catch her husband's eye, but fortunately the county attorney interrupted with, Let's talk about that a little later, Mr. Hale. I do want to talk about that, but I'm very anxious now to get along to just what happened when you got here. When he began this time, it was very deliberately and carefully. I didn't see or hear anything. I knocked at the door, and still it was all quiet inside. I knew they must be up. It was past eight o'clock. So I knocked again, louder, and I thought I heard somebody say, Come in. I wasn't sure. I'm not sure yet. But I opened the door. This door, jerking a hand toward the door by which the two women stood. And there, in that rocker, pointing to it, sat Mrs. Wright. Everyone in the kitchen looked at the rocker. It came into Mrs. Hale's mind that that rocker didn't look in the least like Minnie Foster, the Minnie Foster of twenty years before. It was a dingy red, with wooden rungs up the back, and the middle rung was gone, and the chair sagged to one side. How did she look? the county attorney was inquiring. Well, said Hale, she looked queer. How do you mean, queer? As he asked it, he took out a notebook and pencil. Mrs. Hale did not like the sight of that pencil. She kept her eye fixed on her husband, as if to keep him from saying unnecessary things that would go into that notebook and make trouble. Hale did speak guardedly, as if the pencil had affected him too. Well, as if she didn't know what she was going to do next, and kind of done up. How did she seem to feel about your coming? Why, I don't think she minded, one way or other. She didn't pay much attention. I said, how do, Mrs. Wright? It's cold, ain't it? And she said, is it? And went on pleating at her apron. Well, I was surprised. She didn't ask me to come up to the stove, or to sit down, but just sat there, not even looking at me. And so I said, I want to see John. And then she laughed. I guessed you would call it a laugh. I thought of Harry and the team outside, so I said a little sharp, Can I see John? No, says she, kind of dull-like. Ain't he home? says I. Then she looked at me. Yes, says she, he's home. Then why can't I see him? I asked her, out of patience with her now. Because he's dead, says she just as quiet and dull, and fell to pleat in her apron. "'Dead?' says I, like you do when you can't take in what you've heard. She just nodded her head, not getting a bit excited, but rocking back and forth. "'Why, where is he?' says I, not knowing what to say. She just pointed upstairs like this, pointing to the room above. I got up with the idea of going up there myself. By this time I didn't know what to do. I walked from there to here, then I says, Why, what did he die of? He died of a rope around his neck, says she, and just went on pleating at her apron. 
Hale stopped speaking and stood staring at the rocker, as if he were still seeing the woman who had sat there the morning before. Nobody spoke. It was as if everyone was seeing the woman who had sat there the morning before. And what did you do then? The county attorney at last broke the silence. I went out and called Harry. I thought I might need help. I got Harry in and we went upstairs. His voice fell almost to a whisper. There he was, lying over the. I think I'd rather have you go into that upstairs, the county attorney interrupted, where you can point it all out. Just go on now with the rest of the story. Well, my first thought was to get that rope off. It looked. He stopped, his face twitching. But Harry, he went up to him, and he said, No, he's dead all right, and we'd better not touch anything. So we went downstairs. She was still sitting that same way. Has anybody been notified? I asked. No, says she, unconcerned. Who did this, Mrs. Wright? said Harry. He said it business like, and she stopped pleating at her apron. I don't know, she says. You don't know, says Harry. Weren't you sleeping in the bed with him? Yes, says she, but I was on the inside. Somebody slipped a rope round his neck and strangled him, and you didn't wake up, says Harry. I didn't wake up, she said after him. We may have looked as if we didn't see how that could be, for after a minute she said, I sleep sound. Harry was going to ask her more questions, but I said maybe that weren't our business, maybe we ought to let her tell her story first to the coroner or the sheriff. So Harry went as fast as he could over to High Road, the river's place, where there's a telephone. And what did she do when she knew you had gone for the coroner? The attorney got his pencil in his hand, all ready for writing. She moved from that chair to this one over here. Hale pointed to a small chair in the corner, and just sat there with her hands held together and looking down. I got a feeling that I ought to make some conversation, so I said I had come in to see if John wanted to put in a telephone. And at that she started to laugh, and then she stopped and looked at me, scared. At the sound of a moving pencil, the man who was telling the story looked up. I don't know, maybe it wasn't scared, he hastened. I wouldn't like to say it was. Soon Harry got back, and then Dr. Lloyd came, and you, Mr. Peters, and so I guess that's all I know that you don't. He said that last with relief, and moved a little, as if relaxing. Everyone moved a little. The county attorney walked toward the stair door. I guess we go upstairs first, then out to the barn and around there. He paused and looked around the kitchen. You're convinced there was nothing important here? He asked the sheriff. Nothing that would point to any motive? The sheriff too looked all around, as if to reconvince himself. Nothing here but kitchen things, he said, with a little laugh for the insignificance of kitchen things. The county attorney was looking at the cupboard, a peculiar ungainly structure, half closet and half cupboard, the upper part of it being built in the wall, and the lower part just the old-fashioned kitchen cupboard. As if its queerness attracted him, he got a chair and opened the upper part and looked in. 
After a moment he drew his hand away, sticky. "'Here's a nice mess,' he said, resentfully. The two women had drawn nearer, and now the sheriff's wife spoke. "'Oh, her fruit,' she said, looking to Mrs. Hale for sympathetic understanding. She turned back to the county attorney and explained. "'She worried about that when it turned so cold last night. She said the fire would go out and her jars might burst.' Mrs. Peters' husband broke into a laugh. "'Well, can you beat the woman, held for murder and worrying about her preserves?' The young attorney set his lips. "'I guess before we're through with her, she may have something more serious than preserves to worry about.' "'Oh, well,' said Mrs. Hale's husband, with good-natured superiority. "'Women are used to worrying over trifles.' The two women moved a little closer together. Neither of them spoke. The county attorney seemed suddenly to remember his manners and think of his future. And yet, said he, with the gallantry of a young politician, for all their worries, what would we do without the ladies? The women did not speak, did not unbend. He went to the sink and began washing his hands. He turned to wipe them on the roller towel, whirled it for a cleaner place. Dirty towels. Not much for a housekeeper, would you say, ladies? He kicked his foot against some dirty pans under the sink. There's a great deal of work to be done on a farm, said Mrs. Hale, stiffly. To be sure. And yet, with a little bow to her, I know there are some Dixon County farmhouses that do not have such roller towels. He gave it a pull to expose its full length again. Those towels get dirty awful quick. Men's hands aren't always as clean as they might be. Ah, loyal to your sex, I see, he laughed. He stopped and gave her a keen look. But you and Mrs. Wright were neighbours. I suppose you were friends, too. Martha Hale shook her head. I've seen little enough of her of late years. I've not been in this house. It's more than a year. And why was that? You didn't like her? I liked her well enough, she replied with spirit. Farmers' wives have their hands full, Mr. Henderson. And then... She looked around the kitchen. Yes, he encouraged. It never seemed a very cheerful place, said she, more to herself than to him. No, he agreed. I don't think anyone would call it cheerful. I shouldn't say she had the homemaking instinct. Well, I don't know as Wright had either, she muttered. You mean they didn't get on very well? He was quick to ask. No, I don't mean anything, she answered with decision. As she turned a little away from him, she added, But I don't think a place would be any the cheerfuller for John Wright's being in it. I'd like to talk to you about that a little later, Mrs. Hale, he said. I'm anxious to get the lay of things upstairs now. He moved toward the stair door, followed by the two men. I suppose anything Mrs. Peters does will be all right, the sheriff inquired. She was to take some clothes in for her, you know, and a few little things. We left in such a hurry yesterday. The county attorney looked at the two women they were leaving there alone among the kitchen things. Yes, Mrs. Peters, he said his glance resting on the woman who was not Mrs. Peters, 
the big farmer woman who stood behind the sheriff's wife. Of course, Mrs. Peters is one of us, he said, in a manner of entrusting responsibility. And keep your eye out, Mrs. Peters, for anything that might be of use. No telling, you women might come upon a clue to the motive, and that's the thing we need. Mr. Hale rubbed his face, after the fashion of a showman getting ready for a pleasantry. But would the women know a clue if they did come upon it? he said, and having delivered himself of this, he followed the others through the stair door. The women stood motionless and silent, listening to the footsteps, first upon the stairs, then in the room above them. Then, as if releasing herself from something strange, Mrs. Hale began to arrange the dirty pans under the sink, which the county attorney's disdainful push at the foot had deranged. I'd hate to have men coming into my kitchen, she said testily, snooping round and criticising. Of course it's no more than a duty, said the sheriff's wife, in her manner of timid acquiescence. Duty's all right, replied Mrs. Hale bluffly, but I guess that deputy sheriff that come out to make the fire might have got a little of this on. She gave the roller towel a pull. Wish I'd thought of that sooner. Seems mean to talk about her for not having things slicked up when she had to come away in such a hurry. She looked around the kitchen. Certainly it was not slicked up. Her eye was held by a bucket of sugar on a low shelf. The cover was off the wooden bucket, and beside it was a paper bag, half full. Mrs. Hale moved toward it. She was putting this in there, she said to herself, slowly. She thought of the flour in her kitchen at home, half sifted, half not sifted. She had been interrupted, and had left things half done. What had interrupted Minnie Foster? Why had that work been left half done? She made a move, as if to finish it. Unfinished things always bothered her. And then she glanced round, and saw that Mrs. Peters was watching her. And she didn't want Mrs. Peters to get that feeling she had got of work begun, and then for some reason not finished. It's a shame about her fruit, she said, and walked toward the cupboard that the county attorney had opened, and got on the chair, murmuring, I wonder if it's all gone. It was a sorry enough looking sight, but here's one that's all right, she said at last. She held it toward the light. This is cherries, too. She looked again. I declare I believe that's the only one. With a sigh, she got down from the chair, went to the sink, and wiped off the bottle. She'll feel awful bad after all her hard work in the hot weather. I remember the afternoon I put up my cherries last summer. She set the bottle on the table, and with another sigh, started to sit down in the rocker. But she did not sit down. Something kept her from sitting down in that chair. She straightened, stepped back, and, half turned away, stood looking at it, seeing the woman who had sat there, pleating at her apron. The thin voice of the sheriff's wife broke in upon her. I must be getting those things from the front room closet. She opened the door into the other room, started in, stepped back. You coming with me, Mrs. Hale? she asked nervously. You, you could help me get them. They were soon back. The stark coldness of that shut-up room was not a thing to linger in. My, 
said Mrs. Peters, dropping the things on the table and hurrying to the stove. Mrs. Hale stood examining the clothes the woman who was being detained in town had said she wanted. Wright was close, she exclaimed, holding up a shabby black skirt that bore the marks of much making over. I think maybe that's why she kept so much to herself. I suppose she felt she couldn't do her part. And then you don't enjoy things when you feel shabby. She used to wear pretty clothes and be lively. When she was Minnie Foster, one of the town girls, singing in the choir. But that, oh, that was twenty years ago. With a carefulness, in which there was something tender, she folded the shabby clothes and piled them at one corner of the table. She looked up at Mrs. Peters, and there was something in the other woman's look that irritated her. She don't care, she said to herself. Much difference it makes to her whether Minnie Foster had pretty clothes when she was a girl. Then she looked again, and she wasn't so sure. In fact, she hadn't at any time been perfectly sure about Mrs. Peters. She had that shrinking manner, and yet her eyes looked as if they could see a long way into things. This all you was to take in? asked Mrs. Hale. No, said the sheriff's wife. She said she wanted an apron. Funny thing to want, she ventured in her nervous little way, for there's not much to get you dirty in jail, goodness knows. But I suppose just to make her feel more natural, if you're used to wearing an apron. She said they were in the bottom drawer of this cupboard. Yes, here they are, and then her little shawl that always hung on the stair door. She took the small grey shawl from behind the door leading upstairs, and stood a minute looking at it. Suddenly, Mrs. Hale took a quick step toward the other woman. Mrs. Peters. Yes, Mrs. Hale? Do you think she did it? A frightened look blurred the other thing in Mrs. Peters' eyes. Oh, I don't know, she said, in a voice that seemed to shrink away from the subject. Well, I don't think she did, affirmed Mrs. Hale stoutly, asking for an apron and her little shawl, worrying about her fruit. Mr. Peters says. Footsteps were heard in the room above. She stopped, looked up, and then went on in a lowered voice. Mr. Peters says it looks bad for her. Mr. Henderson is awful sarcastic in a speech, and he's going to make fun of her saying she didn't wake up. For a moment, Mrs. Hale had no answer. Then, well, I guess John Wright didn't wake up when they were slipping that rope under his neck, she muttered. No, it's strange, breathed Mrs. Peters. They think it was such a funny way to kill a man. She began to laugh. At sound of the laugh, abruptly stopped. That's just what Mr. Hale said, said Mrs. Hale in a resolutely natural voice. There was a gun in the house. He says that's what he can't understand. Mr. Henderson said, coming out, that what was needed for the case was a motive, something to show anger or sudden feeling. Well, I don't see any signs of anger around here, said Mrs. Hale. I don't. She stopped. It was as if her mind tripped on something. Her eye was caught by a dish towel in the middle of the kitchen table. Slowly she moved toward the table. One half of it was wiped clean, the other half messy. Her eyes made a slow, 
almost unwilling turn to the bucket of sugar and the half-empty bag beside it. Things begun and not finished. After a moment she stepped back and said in that manner of releasing herself, Wonder how they're finding things upstairs. I hope she had it a little more red up up there. You know, she paused and feeling gathered. It seems kind of sneaking, locking her up in town and coming out here to get her own house to turn against her. But Mrs. Hale, said the sheriff's wife, the law is the law. I suppose it is, answered Mrs. Hale shortly. She turned to the stove, saying something about that fire not being much to brag of. She worked with it for a minute, and when she straightened up, she said aggressively, The law is the law, and a bad stove is a bad stove. How do you like to cook on this? Pointing with the poker to the broken lining. She opened the oven door, and started to express her opinion of the oven. But she was swept into her own thoughts, thinking of what it would mean, year after year, to have that stove to wrestle with. The thought of Minnie Foster trying to bake in that oven, and the thought of her never going over to see Minnie Foster. She was startled by hearing Mrs. Peters say, A person gets discouraged and loses heart. The sheriff's wife had looked from the stove to the sink, to the pail of water which had been carried in from outside. The two women stood there silent, above them the footsteps of the men, who were looking for evidence against the woman who had worked in that kitchen. That look of seeing into things, of seeing through a thing to something else, was in the eyes of the sheriff's wife now. When Mrs. Hale next spoke to her, it was gently. Better loosen up your things, Mrs. Peters. We'll not feel them when we go out. Mrs. Peters went to the back of the room to hang up the fur tippet she was wearing. A moment later she exclaimed, Why, she was piecing a quilt, and held up a large sewing basket piled high with quilt pieces. Mrs. Hale spread some of the blocks on the table. It's log cabin pattern, she said, putting several of them together. Pretty, isn't it? They were so engaged with the quilt that they did not hear the footsteps on the stairs. Just as the stair door opened, Mrs. Hale was saying, Do you suppose she was going to quilt it or just knot it? The sheriff threw up his hands. They wonder whether she was going to quilt it or just knot it. There was a laugh for the ways of women, a warming of hands over the stove, and then the county attorney said briskly, Well, let's go right out to the barn and get that cleared up. I don't see as there's anything so strange, Mrs. Hale said resentfully, after the outside door had closed on the three men. Are taking up our time with little things while we're waiting for them to get the evidence. I don't see as it's anything to laugh about. Of course, they've got awful important things on their minds, said the sheriff's wife apologetically. They returned to an inspection of the block for the quilt. Mrs. Hale was looking at the fine, even sewing, and preoccupied with thoughts of the woman who had done that sewing, when she heard the sheriff's wife say, in a queer tone, Why, look at this one. She turned to take the block held out to her. The sewing, said Mrs. Peters, in a troubled way. All the rest of them have been so nice and even. But this one, why it looks as if she didn't know what she was about. 
their eyes met. Something flashed to life, passed between them. Then, as if with an effort, they seemed to pull away from each other. A moment Mrs. Hale sat there, her hands folded over that sewing, which was so unlike all the rest of the sewing. Then she had pulled a knot and drawn the threads. "'Oh, what are you doing, Mrs. Hale?' asked the sheriff's wife, startled. "'Just pulling out a stitch or two that's not sewed very good,' said Mrs. Hale, mildly. "'I don't think we ought to touch things,' Mrs. Peters said, a little helplessly. "'I'll just finish up this end,' answered Mrs. Hale, still in that mild, matter-of-fact fashion. She threaded a needle and started to replace bad sewing with good. For a little while she sewed in silence. Then, in that thin, timid voice, she heard, Mrs. Hale. Yes, Miss Peters. What do you suppose she was so nervous about? Oh, I don't know, said Mrs. Hale, as if dismissing a thing not important enough to spend much time on. I don't know as she was nervous. I sew awful queer sometimes when I'm just tired. She cut a thread, and out of the corner of her eye looked up at Mrs. Peters. The small, lean face of the sheriff's wife seemed to have tightened up. Her eyes had that look of peering into something. But next moment she moved, and said in her thin, indecisive way, Well, I must get those clothes wrapped. They may be through sooner than we think. I wonder where I could find a piece of paper and string. In that cupboard, maybe, suggested Mrs. Hale, after a glance around. One piece of the crazy sewing remained unripped. Mrs. Peter's back turned, Martha Hale now scrutinized that piece, compared it with the dainty, accurate sewing of the other blocks. The difference was startling. Holding this block made her feel queer, as if the distracted thoughts of the woman who had perhaps turned to it to try and quiet herself, were communicating themselves to her. Mrs. Peter's voice roused her. "'Here's a birdcage,' she said. "'Did she have a bird, Mrs. Hale?' "'Why, I don't know whether she did or not.' She turned to look at the cage Mrs. Peter's was holding up. "'I've not been here in so long.' She sighed. "'There was a man round last year selling canaries cheap. But I don't know as she took one. Maybe she did. She used to sing real pretty herself. Mrs. Peters looked around the kitchen. Seems kind of funny to think of a bird here. She half laughed, an attempt to put up a barrier. But she must have had one, or why would she have a cage? I wonder what happened to it. I suppose maybe the cat got it, suggested Mrs. Hale, resuming her sewing. No, she didn't have a cat. She's got that feeling some people have about cats, being afraid of them. When they brought her to our house yesterday, my cat got in the room, and she was real upset and asked me to take it out. My sister Bessie was like that, laughed Mrs. Hale. The sheriff's wife did not reply. The silence made Mrs. Hale turn round. Mrs. Peters was examining the birdcage. Look at this door she said slowly. It's broke. One hinge has been pulled apart. Mrs. Hale came nearer. Looks as if someone must have been rough with it. Again their eyes met, startled, 
questioning, apprehensive. For a moment neither spoke nor stirred. Then Mrs. Hale, turning away, said briskly, If they're going to find any evidence, I wish they'd be about it. I don't like this place. But I'm awful glad you came with me, Mrs. Hale. Mrs. Peters put the birdcage on the table and sat down. It would be lonesome for me, sitting here alone. Yes, it would, wouldn't it? agreed Mrs. Hale, a certain determined naturalness in her voice. She had picked up the sewing, but now it dropped in her lap, and she murmured in a different voice. But I tell you what I do wish, Mrs. Peters. I wish I had come over here sometimes when she was here. I wish I had. But of course you were awful busy, Mrs. Hale. Your house and your children. I could have come, retorted Mrs. Hale shortly. I stayed away because it weren't cheerful. And that's why I ought to have come. I... She looked around. I've never liked this place. Maybe because it's down in a hollow and you don't see the road. I don't know what it is, but it's a lonesome place and always was. I wish I had come over to see Minnie Foster sometimes. I can see now. She did not put it into words. Well, you mustn't reproach yourself, counseled Mrs. Peters. Sometimes we just don't see how it is with other folks till something comes up. Not having children makes less work, mused Mrs. Hale after a silence. But it makes a quiet house, and right out to work all day, and no company when he did come in. Did you know John Wright, Mrs. Peters? Not to know him. I've seen him in town. They say he was a good man. Yes, good, conceded John Wright's neighbour grimly. He didn't drink and kept his word as well as most, I guess, and paid his debts. But he was a hard man, Mrs. Peters, just to pass the time of day with him. She stopped, shivered a little, like a raw wind that gets to the bone. Her eye fell upon the cage on the table before her, and she added almost bitterly, I should think she would have wanted a bird. Suddenly she leaned forward, looking intently at the cage. But what do you suppose went wrong with it? I don't know, returned Mrs. Peters, unless it got sick and died. But after she said it she reached over and swung the broken door. Both women watched as if somehow held by it. You didn't know her? Mrs. Hale asked, a gentler note in her voice. Not till they brought her yesterday, said the sheriff's wife. She, come to think of it, she was kind of like a bird herself, real sweet and pretty, but kind of timid and fluttery. How she did change. That held her for a long time. Finally, as if struck with a happy thought, and relieved to get back to everyday things, she exclaimed, "'Tell you what, Mrs. Peters, why don't you take the quilt in with you? It might take up her mind.' "'Why, I think that's a real nice idea, Mrs. Hale,' agreed the sheriff's wife, as if she too were glad to come into the atmosphere of a simple kindness. "'There couldn't possibly be any objection to that, could there? Now, just what will I take?' I wonder if her patches are in here, and her other things. They turned to the sewing basket. Here's some red, 
said Mrs. Hale, bringing out a roll of cloth. Underneath that was a box. Here, maybe her scissors are in here, and her things. She held it up. What a pretty box. I'll warrant that was something she had a long time ago, when she was a girl. She held it in her hand a moment. Then, with a little sigh, opened it. Instantly, her hand went to her nose. Why? Mrs. Peters drew nearer, then turned away. There's something wrapped up in this piece of silk, faltered Mrs. Hale. This isn't her scissors, said Mrs. Peters, in a shrinking voice. Her hand not steady, Mrs. Hale raised the piece of silk. Oh, Mrs. Peters, she cried, it's... Mrs. Peters bent closer. It's the bird, she whispered. But Mrs. Peters, cried Mrs. Hale, look at it. Its neck. Look at its neck. It's all other side too. She held the box away from her. The sheriff's wife again bent in closer. Somebody wrung its neck, said she, in a voice that was slow and deep. And then again the eyes of the two women met, this time clung together in a look of dawning comprehension, of growing horror. Mrs. Peters looked from the dead bird to the broken door of the cage. Again their eyes met, and just then there was a sound at the outside door. Mrs. Hale slipped the box under the quilt pieces in the basket and sank into the chair before it. Mrs. Peters stood holding the table. The county attorney and the sheriff came in from outside. "'Well, ladies,' said the county attorney, as one turning from serious things to little pleasantries, "'have you decided whether she was going to quilt it or not it?' "'We think,' began the sheriff's wife, in a flurried voice, "'that she was going to not it.' He was too preoccupied to notice the change that came in her voice on that last. "'Well, that's very interesting, I'm sure.' he said tolerantly. He caught sight of the birdcage. "'Has the bird flown?' "'We think the cat got it,' said Mrs. Hale, in a voice curiously even. He was walking up and down, as if thinking something out. "'Is there a cat?' he asked absently. Mrs. Hale shot a look up at the sheriff's wife. "'Well, not now,' said Mrs. Peters. They're superstitious, you know. They leave. She sank into her chair. The county attorney did not heed her. No sign at all of anyone having come in from the outside, he said to Peters, in the manner of continuing an interrupted conversation. Their own rope. Now, let's go upstairs again and go over it piece by piece. It would have to have been someone who knew just the... The stair door closed behind them, and their voices were lost. The two women sat motionless, not looking at each other, but as if peering into something, and at the same time holding back. When they spoke now, it was as if they were afraid of what they were saying, but as if they could not help saying it. She liked the bird, said Martha Hale, low and slowly. She was going to bury it in that pretty box. When I was a girl, said Mrs. Peters, under her breath, my kitten, there was a boy who took a hatchet, and before my eyes, before I could get there, 
face an instant. If they hadn't held me back, I would have. She caught herself, looked upstairs where footsteps were heard, and finished weakly. Hurt him. Then they sat without speaking or moving. I wonder how it would seem, Mrs. Hale at last began, as if feeling her way over strange ground, never to have had any children around. Her eyes made a slow sweep of the kitchen, as if seeing what that kitchen had meant through all the years. No, Wright wouldn't like the bird, she said after that, a thing that sang. She used to sing. He killed that too. Her voice tightened. Mrs. Peters moved uneasily. Of course, we don't know who killed the bird. I knew John Wright. Was Mrs. Hale's answer. It was an awful thing was done in this house that night, Mrs. Hale," said the sheriff's wife, "killing a man while he slept, slipping a thing round his neck that choked the life out of him." Mrs. Hale's hand went out to the bird cage. "We don't know who killed him," whispered Mrs. Peters wildly. "We don't know." Mrs. Hale had not moved. If there had been years and years of nothing, then a bird to sing to you, it would be awful. Still, after the bird was still, it was as if something within her, not herself, had spoken, and it found in Mrs. Peters something she did not know as herself. I know what stillness is," she said in a queer, monotonous voice. When we homesteaded in Dakota. And my first baby died after he was two years old, and me with no other then. Mrs. Hale stirred. How soon do you suppose they'll be through looking for the evidence? I know what stillness is," repeated Mrs. Peters in just that same way. Then she too pulled back. The law has got to punish crime, Mrs. Hale," she said in her tight little way. I wish you'd seen Minnie Foster," was the answer, when she wore a white dress with blue ribbons and stood up there in the choir and sang. The picture of that girl, the fact that she had lived neighbour to that girl for twenty years and had let her die for lack of life, was suddenly more than she could bear. Oh, I wish I'd come over here once in a while," she cried. "That was a crime. Who's going to punish that?" We mustn't take on," said Mrs. Peters, with a frightened look toward the stairs. I might have known she needed help. I tell you, it's queer, Mrs. Peters. We live close together, and we live far apart. We all go through the same things. It's all just a different kind of the same thing. If it weren't, why do you and I understand? Why do we know what we know this minute? She dashed her hand across her eyes. Then, seeing the jar of fruit on the table, she reached for it and choked out. If I was you, I wouldn't tell her her fruit was gone. Tell her it ain't. Tell her it's all right, all of it. Here, take this in to prove it to her. She, she may never know whether it was broke or not. She turned away. Mrs. Peters reached out for the bottle of fruit as if she were glad to take it, as if touching a familiar thing. Having something to do could keep her from something else. She got up, 
looked about for something to wrap the fruit in, took a petticoat from the pile of clothes she had brought from the front room, and nervously started winding that round the bottle. My, she began, in a high, false voice, it's a good thing the men couldn't hear us, getting all stirred up over a little thing like a dead canary. She hurried over that. As if that could have anything to do with... with... My, wouldn't they laugh? Footsteps were heard on the stairs. Maybe they would, muttered Mrs. Hale. Maybe they wouldn't. No, Peters, said the county attorney incisively. It's all perfectly clear, except the reason for doing it. But you know juries when it comes to women. If there was some definite thing, something to show, something to make a story about, something that would connect up with this clumsy way of doing it. In a covert way, Mrs. Hale looked at Mrs. Peters. Mrs. Peters was looking at her. Quickly, they looked away from each other. The outer door opened, and Mr. Hale came in. I've got the team round now, he said. Pretty cold out there. I'm going to stay here a while by myself, the county attorney suddenly announced. You can send Frank out for me, can't you? he asked the sheriff. I want to go over everything. I'm not satisfied we can't do better. Again, for one brief moment, the two women's eyes found one another. The sheriff came up to the table. Did you want to see what Mrs. Peters was going to take in? The county attorney picked up the apron. He laughed. Oh, I guess they're not very dangerous things the ladies have picked out. Mrs. Hale's hand was on the sewing basket, in which the box was concealed. She felt that she ought to take her hand off the basket. She did not seem able to. He picked up one of the quilt blocks, which she had piled on to cover the box. Her eyes felt like fire. She had a feeling that if he took up the basket, she would snatch it from him. But he did not take it up. With another little laugh he turned away, saying, No, Mrs. Peters doesn't need supervising. For that matter, a sheriff's wife is married to the law. Ever think of it that way, Mrs. Peters? Mrs. Peters was standing beside the table. Mrs. Hale shot a look up at her, but she could not see her face. Mrs. Peters had turned away. When she spoke, her voice was muffled. Not just that way, she said. Married to the law, chuckled Mrs. Peters' husband. He moved toward the door into the front room and said to the county attorney, I just want you to come in here a minute, George. We ought to take a look at these windows. Oh, windows, said the county attorney scoffingly. We'll be right out, Mr. Hale, said the sheriff to the farmer who was still waiting by the door. Hale went to look after the horses. The sheriff followed the county attorney into the other room. Again, for one final moment, the two women were alone in that kitchen. Martha Hale sprang up, her hands tight together, looking at that other woman with whom it rested. At first she could not see her eyes, for the sheriff's wife had not turned back, since she had turned away at that suggestion of being married to the law. But now Mrs. Hale made her turn back. Her eyes made her turn back. Slowly, unwillingly, Mrs. Peters turned her head until her eyes met the eyes of the other woman. There was a moment when they held each other in a steady, burning look 
in which there was no evasion or flinching. Then Martha Hale's eyes pointed the way to the basket, in which was hidden the thing that would make certain the conviction of the other woman, that woman who was not there, and yet who had been there with them all through that hour. For a moment Mrs. Peters did not move, and then she did it. With a rush forward she threw back the quilt pieces, got the box, tried to put it in her handbag. It was too big. Desperately she opened it, started to take the bird out. But there she broke. She could not touch the bird. She stood there, helpless, foolish. There was the sound of a knob turning in the inner door. Martha Hale snatched the box from the sheriff's wife and got it in the pocket of her big coat, just as the sheriff and the county attorney came back into the kitchen. Well, Henry, said the county attorney facetiously, at least we found out that she was not going to quilt it. She was going to... What is it you call it, ladies? Mrs. Hale's hand was against the pocket of her coat. We call it... Not it, Mr. Henderson. End of A Jury of Her Peers by Susan Glasspool The Lost Duchess by an anonymous author as edited by Julian Hawthorne for the Lock and Key Library. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jonathan Trachtenberg. The Lost Duchess, edited by Julian Hawthorne. Chapter 1 Has the Duchess returned? No, your grace. Knowles came farther into the room. He had a letter on a salver. When the Duke had taken it, Knowles still lingered. The Duke glanced at him. Is an answer required? No, your grace. Still Knowles lingered. Something a little singular has happened. The carriage has returned without the Duchess, and the men say that they thought her grace was in it. What do you mean? I hardly understand myself, your grace. Perhaps you would like to see Barnes? Barnes was the coachman. Send him up. When Knowles had gone, and he was alone, his grace showed signs of being slightly annoyed. He looked at his watch. I told her she'd better be in by four. She says that she's not feeling well, and yet one would think that she was not aware of the fatigue entailed in having the prince come to dinner, and a mob of people to follow. I particularly wished her to lie down for a couple of hours. Knowles ushered in not only Barnes, the coachman, but Moisey, the footman, too. Both these persons seemed to be ill at ease. The Duke glanced at them sharply. In his voice there was a suggestion of impatience. "'What is the matter?' Barnes explained as best he could. "'If you please, Your Grace, we waited for the Duchess outside Kane and Wilson's, the drapers. The Duchess came out, got into the carriage, and Moisey shut the door, and Her Grace said, "'Home,' and if yet... When we got home, she wasn't there. She wasn't where? Her Grace wasn't in the carriage, Your Grace. What on earth do you mean? Her Grace did get into the carriage. You shut the door, didn't you? Barnes turned to Moisey. Moisey brought his hand up to his brow in a sort of military salute. He had been a soldier in the regiment in which, 
Once upon a time, the Duke had been a subaltern. She did. The Duchess came out of the shop. She seemed rather in a hurry, I thought. She got into the carriage, and she said, Home, Moisey. I shut the door, and Bairns drove straight home. We never stopped anywhere, and we never noticed nothing happened on the way. And yet when we got home, the carriage was empty. The Duke started. Do you mean to tell me that the Duchess got out of the carriage while you were driving full pelt through the streets without saying anything to you, and without you noticing it? The carriage was empty when we got home, Your Grace. Was either of the doors open? No, Your Grace. You fellows have been up to some infernal mischief. You've made a mess of it. You never picked up the Duchess and you're trying to palm this tail off on me to save yourselves. Barnes was moved to adjuration. I'll take my Bible oath, Your Grace, that the Duchess got into the carriage outside Kane and Wilson's. Moisey seconded his colleague. I will swear to that, Your Grace. She got into that carriage and I shut the door and she said, Home, Moisey. The Duke looked as if he did not know what to make of the story and its tellers. What carriage did you have? Her Grace's Brougham, Your Grace. Knowles interposed. <clears throat> the Brougham was ordered because I understood the Duchess was not feeling very well. And there's a rather a high wind, Your Grace. The Duke snapped at him. What has that to do with it? Are you suggesting that the Duchess was more likely to jump out of a brougham while it was dashing through the streets than out of any other kind of vehicle? The Duke's glance fell on the letter which Knowles had brought him when he first had entered. He had placed it on his writing table. Now he took it up. It was addressed to His Grace the Duke of Datchet. Private, very pressing. The name was written in a fine, clear, almost feminine hand. The words in the left-hand corner of the envelope were written in a different hand. They were large and bold, almost as though they had been painted with the end of the penholder instead of being written with the pen. The envelope itself was of an unusual size, and bulged out as though it contained something else besides a letter. The Duke tore the envelope open. As he did so, something fell out of it onto the writing table. It looked as though it was a lock of a woman's hair. As he glanced at it, the Duke seemed to be a trifle startled. The Duke read the letter. Your Grace will be so good as to bring five hundred pounds in gold to the Piccadilly end of the Burlington Arcade within an hour of the receipt of this. The Duchess of Datchet has been kidnapped. An imitation Duchess got into the carriage, which was waiting outside Kane and Wilson's, and she alighted on the road. Unless Your Grace does as you are requested, the Duchess of Datchet's left-hand little finger will be at once cut off and sent home in time to receive the Prince to dinner. Other portions of Her Grace will follow. A lock of Her Grace's hair is enclosed with this as an earnest of our good intentions. Before 5.30 p.m., Your Grace is requested to be at the Piccadilly end of the Burlington Arcade with five hundred pounds in gold. You will there be accosted by an individual in a white top hat and with a gardenia in his buttonhole. You will be entirely at liberty to give him into custody or to have him followed by the police, in which case the Duchess's left arm, cut off at the shoulder, will be sent home for dinner, not to mention other extremely possible contingencies. But you are advised to give the individual in question the five hundred pounds in gold, because in that case the Duchess herself will be home in time to receive the Prince to dinner, and with one of the best stories with which to entertain your distinguished guests they ever heard. Remember, not later than 
unless you wish to receive Her Grace's little finger. The Duke stared at this amazing epistle when he had read it as though he found it difficult to believe the evidence of his eyes. He was not a demonstrative person, as a rule, but this little communication astonished even him. He read it again, then his hands dropped to his sides, and he swore. He took up the lock of hair which had fallen out of the envelope. Was it possible that it could be his wife's, the Duchess? Was it possible that a Duchess of Datchet could be kidnapped, in broad daylight, in the heart of London, and be sent home, as it were, in pieces? Had sacrilegious hands already been playing pranks with that great lady's hair? Certainly that hair was so like her hair that the mere resemblance made his grace's blood run cold. He turned on Messrs. Barnes and Moisey as though he would have liked to rend them. You scoundrels! He moved forward as though the intention had entered his ducal heart to knock his servants down. But, if that were so, he did not act quite up to his intention. Instead, he stretched out his arm, pointing at them as if he were an accusing spirit. Will you swear that it was the Duchess who got into the carriage outside Kane and Wilson's? Barnes began to stammer. I'll swear, your grace, that I, I thought— The duke stormed in interruption. I don't ask what you thought. I ask you, will you swear it was? The duke's anger was more than Barnes could face. He was silent. Moisey showed a larger courage. I could have sworn that it was at the time, your grace, but now it seems to me that it's a rummy go. A rummy go? The peculiarity of the phrase did not seem to strike the duke just then. At least, he echoed it as if it didn't. You call it a rummy go? Do you know that I am told in this letter that the woman who entered the carriage was not the Duchess? What you are thinking about, or what case you will be able to make out for yourselves, you know better than I. But I can tell you this, that in an hour you will leave my service, and you may esteem yourselves fortunate if, tonight, you are not both of you sleeping in jail. One might almost have suspected that the words were spoken in irony. But before they could answer, another servant entered, who also brought a letter for the Duke. When his grace's glance fell on it, he uttered an exclamation. The writing on the envelope was the same writing that had been on the envelope which had contained the very singular communication, like it in all respects, down to the broomstick and thickness of the private and very pressing in the corner. "'Who brought this?' stormed the duke. The servant appeared to be a little startled by the violence of his grace's manner. "'A lady, or at least your grace, she seemed to be a lady.' "'Where is she?' She came in a handsome, Your Grace. She gave me that letter and said, Give that to the Duke of Datchet at once, without a moment's delay. Then she got into the handsome again and drove away. Why didn't you stop her? Your Grace. The man seemed surprised, as though the idea of stopping chance visitors to the Ducal Mansion via Thermy had not, until that moment, entered into his philosophy. The Duke continued to regard the man as if he could say a good deal if he chose. Then he pointed to the door. His lips said nothing, but his gesture, much. The servant vanished. Another hoax, the Duke said grimly as he tore the envelope open. This time the envelope contained a sheet of paper, and in the sheet of paper another envelope. The Duke unfolded the sheet of paper. On it some words were written, these. The Duchess appears so particularly anxious to drop you a line that one really hasn't the heart to refuse her. Her Grace's communication, written amidst blinding tears, you will find enclosed with this. Knowles, 
the Duke, in a voice which actually trembled. No hoax or no hoax, I will be even with the gentleman who wrote that. Handing the sheet of paper to Mr. Knowles, his grace turned his attention to the envelope which had been enclosed. It was a small square envelope of the finest quality, and it reeked with perfume. The Duke's countenance assumed an added frown. He had no fondness for envelopes which were scented. In the center of the envelope were the words, To the Duke of Datchet, written in the big, bold, sprawling hand which he knew so well. Mabel's writing, he said, half to himself, as with shaking fingers he tore the envelope open. The sheet of paper which he took out was almost as stiff as cardboard. It, too, emitted what his grace deemed the nauseous odor of the perfumer's shop. On it was written this letter. My dear Hereward, for heaven's sake, do what these people require. I don't know what has happened or where I am, but I am nearly distracted. They have already cut off some of my hair, and they tell me that if you don't let them have five hundred pounds in gold by half past five, they will cut off my little finger, too. I would sooner die than lose my little finger, and I don't know what else besides. By the token which I send you, and which has never until now been off my breast, I conjure you to help me. Herwood, help me. When he read that letter, the Duke turned white, very white, as white as the paper on which it was written. He passed the epistle on to Knowles. I suppose that also is a hoax. Mr. Knowles was silent. He still yielded to his constitutional disrelish to commit himself. At last he asked, What is it that your grace proposes to do? The duke spoke with a bitterness which almost suggested a personal animosity toward the inoffensive Mr. Knowles. I propose, with your permission, to release the Duchess from the custody of my estimable correspondent. I propose, always with your permission, to comply with his modest request, and to take him his five hundred pounds in gold. He paused, then continued in a tone which, coming from him, meant volumes. Afterwards, I propose to cry quits with the concocter of this petty little hoax, even if it costs me every penny I possess. He shall pay more for that five hundred pounds than he supposes. End of chapter one. Chapter two. The Duke of Datchet, coming out of the bank, lingered for a moment on the steps. In one hand he carried a canvas bag which seemed well weighted. On his countenance there was an expression which, to a casual observer, might have suggested that his grace was not completely at his ease. That casual observer happened to come strolling by. It took the form of Ivor Dacre. Mr. Dacre looked at the Duke of Datchet up and down in that languid way he has. He perceived the canvas bag. Then he remarked, possibly intending to be facetious, "'Been robbing the bank? Shall I call a cart?' Nobody minds what Ivor Dacre says. Besides, he is the Duke's own cousin. Perhaps a little removed still, there it is. So the Duke smiled a sickly smile, as if Mr. Dacre's delicate wit had given him a passing touch of indigestion. Mr. Dacre noticed that the Duke looked sallow, so he gave his pretty sense of humor another airing. "'Kitchen boiler burst? When I saw the Duchess just now, I wondered if it had.' His grace distinctly started. He almost dropped the canvas bag. "'You saw the Duchess just now, Ivor? Win!' The Duke was evidently moved. Mr. Dacre was stirred to languid curiosity. 
I can't say I clocked it. Perhaps half an hour ago, maybe a little more. Half an hour ago, are you sure? Where did you see her? Mr. Dacre wondered. The Duchess of Datchet could scarcely have been eloping in broad daylight. Moreover, she had not yet been married a year. Everyone knew that she and the Duke were still as fond of each other as if they were not man and wife. So, although the Duke, for some cause or other, was evidently in an odd state of agitation, Mr. Dacre saw no reason why he should not make a clean breast of all he knew. She was going like blazes in a handsome cab. In a handsome cab? Where? Down Waterloo Place. Was she alone? Mr. Dacre reflected. He glanced at the Duke out of the corners of his eyes. His languid utterance became a positive drawl. I rather fancy that she wasn't. Who was with her? My dear fellow, if you were to offer me the bank, I couldn't tell you. Was it a man? Mr. Dacre's drawl became still more pronounced. I rather fancy that it was. Mr. Dacre expected something. The Duke was so excited, but he by no means expected what actually came. Ivor, she's been kidnapped. Mr. Dacre did what had never been known to do before within the memory of man. He dropped his eyeglasses. Datchet, she has. Some scoundrel has decoyed her away and trapped her. He's already sent me a lock of her hair, and he tells me that if I don't let him have five hundred pounds in gold by half past five, he'll let me have her little finger. Mr. Dacre did not know what to make of his grace at all. He was a sober man. It couldn't be that. Mr. Dacre felt really concerned. I'll call a cab, old man, and you'd better let me see you home. Mr. Dacre half raised his stick to hail a passing hansom. The Duke caught him by the arm. You ass! What do you mean? I'm telling you the simple truth. My wife's been kidnapped. Mr. Dacre's countenance was a thing to be seen and remembered. Oh, I hadn't heard that there was much of that sort of thing about just now. They talk of poodles being kidnapped, but as for duchesses, you'd really better let me call that cab. Ivor, do you want me to kick you? Don't you see that to me it's a question of life and death? I've been in there to get the money. His grace motioned toward the bank. I'm going to take it to the scoundrel who has my darling at his mercy. Let me but have her hand in mine again, and he shall continue to pay for every sovereign with tears of blood until he dies. Look here, Dadgett. I don't know if you're having a joke with me or if you're not well. The Duke stepped impatiently into the roadway. Ivor, you're a fool. Can't you tell jest from earnest, health from disease? I'm off. Are you coming with me? It would be as well that I should have a witness. Where are you off to? To the other end of the arcade. Who is the gentleman you expect to have the pleasure of meeting there? How should I know? The Duke took a letter from his pocket. It was the letter which had just arrived. The fellow is to wear a white top hat and a gardenia in his buttonhole. What is it you have there? It's the letter which brought the news. Look for yourself and see. But for God's sake, make haste! His Grace glanced at his watch. It's already twenty after five. And do you mean to say that on the strength of a letter such as this, you are going to hand over five hundred pounds to the Duke? Cut, Mister Dacre, short. What are five hundred pounds to me? Besides, you don't know all. There is another letter, and I have heard from Mabel. But I will tell you all about that later. If you are coming, come. Folding up the letter, Mister Dacre returned it to the Duke.
As you say, what are five hundred pounds to you? It is well they are not as much to you as they are to me, or I'm afraid, hang it, I will do prose afterwards. The Duke hurried across the road. Mr. Dacre hastened after him. As they entered the arcade, they passed a constable. Mr. Dacre touched his companion's arm. Don't you think we'd better ask our friend in blue to walk behind us? His neighborhood might be handy. Nonsense! The Duke stopped short. Ivor, this is my affair, not yours. If you are not content to play the part of silent witness, be so good as to leave me. My dear Datchet, I'm entirely at your service. I can be every whit as insane as you, I do assure you. Side by side, they moved rapidly down the Burlington Arcade. The Duke was obviously in a state of the extremest nervous tension. Mr. Dacre was equally obviously in a state of the most supreme enjoyment. People stared as they rushed past. The Duke saw nothing. Mr. Dacre saw everything and smiled. When they reached the Piccadilly end of the arcade, the Duke pulled up. He looked about him. Mr. Dacre also looked about him. "'I see nothing of your white-hatted and gardenia buttonholed friend,' said Ivor. The Duke referred to his watch. "'It's not yet half-past five. I'm up to time.' Mr. Dacre held his stick in front of him and leaned on it. He indulged himself with a beatific smile. "'It strikes me, my dear old Datchet, that you've been the victim of one of the finest things in hoaxes. I hope I haven't kept you waiting.' The voice which interrupted Mr. Dacre came from the rear. While they were looking in front of them, someone approached them from behind, apparently coming out of the shop which was at their backs. The speaker looked a gentleman. He sounded like one, too. Costume, appearance, manner were beyond reproach, even beyond the criticism of two such keen critics as were these. The glorious attire of a London dandy was surmounted with a beautiful white top hat. In his buttonhole was a magnificent gardenia. In age the stranger was scarcely more than a boy, and a sunny-faced handsome boy at that. His cheeks were hairless, his eyes were blue. His smile was not only innocent, it was bland. Never was there a more conspicuous illustration of that repose which stamps the case of Vere de Vere. The Duke looked at him and glowered. Mr. Dacre looked at him and smiled. "'Who are you?' asked the Duke. "'Ah, that is the question.' The newcomer's refined and musical voice breathed the very soul of affability. "'I am an individual who is so unfortunate as to be in want of five hundred pounds.' "'Are you the scoundrel who sent me that infamous letter?' The charming stranger never turned a hair. "'I am the scoundrel mentioned in that infamous letter "'who wants to accost you at the Piccadilly end of the Burlington Arcade "'before half-past five, as witness my white hat and my gardenia.' "'Where's my wife?' "'The stranger gently swung his stick in front of him with his two hands. "'He regarded the Duke as a merry-hearted son might regard his father. "'The thing was beautiful.' Her grace will be home almost as soon as you are, when you have given me the money which I perceive you have all ready for me in that scarcely elegant-looking canvas bag. He shrugged his shoulders quite gracefully. Unfortunately, in these matters one has no choice. One is forced to ask for gold. And suppose, instead of giving you what is in this canvas bag, I take you by the throat and choke the life right out of you? Or suppose amended Mr. Dacre, that you do better, and commend this gentleman to the tender mercies of the first policeman we encounter. The stranger turned to Mr. Dacre. 
he condescended to become conscious of his presence. "'Is this gentleman your grace's friend? "'Ah, Mr. Dacre, I perceive. "'I have the honour of knowing Mr. Dacre, "'though possibly I am unknown to him. "'You were until this moment.' With an airy little laugh, the stranger returned to the duke. He brushed an invisible speck of dust off the sleeve of his coat. As has been intimated in this infamous letter, his grace is at perfect liberty to give me into custody. Why not? Only, he said it with his boyish smile, if a particular communication is not received from me in certain quarters, within a certain time, the Duchess of Datchet's beautiful white arm will be hacked off at the shoulder. "'You hound!' The duke would have taken the stranger by the throat, and have done his best to choke the life right out of him then and there, if Mr. Dacre had not intervened. "'Steady, old man!' Mr. Dacre turned to the stranger. "'You appear to be a pretty sort of scoundrel!' The stranger gave his shoulders that almost imperceptible shrug. "'Oh, my dear Dacre, I am in want of money. I believe that you sometimes are in want of money, too.' Everybody knows that nobody knows where Ivor Dacre gets his money from, so the illusion must have tickled him immensely. "'You're a cool hand,' he said. "'Some men are born that way.' "'So I should imagine. Men like you must be born, not made.' "'Precisely as you say.' The stranger turned with a graceful smile to the Duke. "'But are we not wasting precious time?' I can assure your grace that, in this particular matter, moments are of value. Mr. Dacre interposed before the Duke could answer. If you take my strongly urged advice, Statute, you will summon this constable who is now coming down the arcade, and hand this gentleman over to his keeping. I do not think that you need fear that the Duchess will lose her arm, or even her little finger. Scoundrels of this one's kidney are most amenable to reason when they have handcuffs on their wrists. The duke plainly hesitated. He would, and he would not. The stranger, as he eyed him, seemed much amused. "'My dear duke, by all means, act on Mr. Dacre's valuable suggestion. As I said before, why not? It would at least be interesting to see if the Duchess does or does not lose her arm. Almost as interesting to you as to Mr. Dacre. Those blackmailing, kidnapping scoundrels do use such empty menaces.' "'Besides, you would have the pleasure of seeing me locked up. "'My imprisonment for life will recompense you "'even for the loss of Her Grace's arm. "'And five hundred pounds is such a sum to have to pay "'merely for a wife. "'Why not, therefore, act on Mr. Dacre's suggestion? "'Here comes the constable.' "'The constable referred to was advancing toward them. "'He was not a dozen yards away. "'Let me beckon to him. I will with pleasure.' "'He took out his watch, a gold chronograph repeater.' There are scarcely ten minutes left during which it would be possible for me to send the communication which I spoke of, so that it may arrive in time, as it will then be too late, and the instruments are already prepared for the little operation which Her Grace is eagerly anticipating. It would perhaps be as well, after all, that you should give me into charge. You would have saved your five hundred pounds, and you would, at any rate, have something in exchange for Her Grace's mutilated limb. Ah, here is the constable. Officer! The stranger spoke with such a pleasant little air of easy geniality that it was impossible to tell if he were in jest or in earnest. But this fact impressed the Duke much more than if he had gone in for a liberal indulgence of the, under the circumstances, orthodox melodramatic scowling. And indeed, in the face of his own common sense, it impressed Mr. Ivor Dacre too.
This well-bred, well-groomed youth was just the being to realize au bout des anglais, a modern type of the devil, the type which depicts himself as a perfect gentleman who keeps smiling all the time. The constable whom this audacious rogue had signaled approached the little group. He addressed the stranger. Do you want me, sir? No, I do not want you. I think it is the Duke of Datchet. The constable, who knew the Duke very well by sight, saluted him as he turned to receive instructions. The Duke looked white, even savage. There was not a pleasant look in his eyes and about his lips. He appeared to be endeavoring to put a great restraint upon himself. There was a momentary silence. Mr. Dacre made a movement as if to interpose. The Duke caught him by the arm. He spoke, No, constable, I do not want you. This person is mistaken. The constable looked as if he could not quite make out how such a mistake could have arisen, hesitated, then, with another salute, he moved away. The stranger was still holding his watch in his hand. Only eight minutes, he said. The duke seemed to experience some difficulty in giving utterance to what he had to say. If I give you this five hundred pounds, you'll... You'll... As the duke paused, as if at a loss for language, which was strong enough to convey his meaning, the stranger laughed. Let us take adjectives for granted. Besides, it is only boys who call each other names. Men do things. If you give me the five hundred sovereigns which you have in that bag, at once, in five minutes it will be too late. I will promise, I will not swear. If you do not credit my simple promise, you will not believe my solemn affirmations. I will promise that, possibly within an hour, certainly within an hour and a half, the Duchess of Datchet shall return to you absolutely uninjured, except, of course, as you are already aware, with regard to a few of the hairs on her head. I will promise this on the understanding that you do not yourself attempt to see where I go, and that you will allow no one else to do so. This with a glance at Ivor Dacre. I shall know at once if I am followed. If you entertain such intentions, you had better, on all accounts, remain in possession of your five hundred pounds. The Duke eyed him very grimly. I entertain no such intentions until the Duchess returns. Again the stranger indulged in that musical laugh of his. Ah, until the Duchess returns. Of course, then the bargain's at an end. When you are at once more in the enjoyment of Her Grace's society, you will be at liberty to set all the dogs in Europe at my heels. I assure you, I fully expect that you will do so. Why not? The Duke raised the canvas bag. My dear Duke, ten thousand thanks. You shall see Her Grace at Datchet House, upon my honour, possibly within the hour. Well commented Ivor Dacre, when the stranger had vanished with the bag into Piccadilly, and as the Duke and himself moved toward Burlington Gardens. If a gentleman is to be robbed, it is as well that he should have another gentleman rob him. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 Mr. Dacre eyed his companion covertly as they progressed. His grace of Datchet appeared to have some fresh cause for uneasiness. All at once he gave it utterance, in a tone of voice which is extremely somber. Ivor, do you think that scoundrel will dare to play me false? I think, murmured Mr. Dacre, that he has dared to play you pretty false already. I don't mean that, but I mean how am I to know, now that he has his money, that he will not still keep Mabel in his clutches? 
there came an echo from Mr. Dacre. Just so, how are you to know? I believe that something of this sort has been done in the States. I thought that there they were content to kidnap them after they were dead. I was not aware that they had as yet got so far as the living. I believe I have heard of something just like this. Possibly they are giants over there. And in that case the scoundrels, when their demands were met, refused to keep to the letter of their bargain and asked for more. The duke stood still. He clenched his fists and swore. I hope that villain doesn't keep his word and Mabel isn't home within the hour by I shall go mad. My dear Datchet, Mr. Dacre loved strong language as little as he loved a scene. Let us trust a time and a little to your white-hatted and gardenia buttonhole friend's word of honor. You should have thought of possible eventualities before you showed your confidence, really. Suppose, instead of going mad, we first of all go home. A hansom stood waiting for a fare at the end of the arcade. Mr. Dacre had handed the duke into it before his grace had quite realized that the vehicle was there. Tell the fellow to drive faster! That was what the duke said when the cab had started. Dear Datchet, the man's already driving his gearage off its legs. If a bobby catches sight of him, he'll take his number. A moment later, a murmur from the duke. I don't know if you're aware that the prince is coming to dinner. I am perfectly aware of it. You take it uncommonly cool how easy it is to bear our brother's burdens. Ivor, if Mabel doesn't turn up, I shall feel like murder. I sympathize with you, Datchet, with all my heart, though I may observe, parenthetically, that I very far from realize the situation even yet. Take my advice. If the Duchess does not show quite as soon as we both of us desire, don't make a scene. Just let me see what I can do. Judging from the expression of his countenance, the Duke was conscious of no overwhelming desire to witness an exhibition of Mr. Dacre's prowess. When the cab reached Datchet House, his grace dashed up the steps three at a time. The door flew open. Has the Duchess returned? Howard! A voice floated downward from above. Someone came running down the stairs. It was her grace of Datchet. Mabel! She actually rushed into the Duke's extended arms, and he kissed her, and she kissed him before the servants. So you're not quite dead, she cried. I am almost, he said. She drew herself a little away from him. Howard, were you seriously hurt? Do you suppose that I could have been otherwise than seriously hurt? My darling, was it a Pickford's van? The Duke stared. A Pickford's van? I don't understand, but come in here, come along, Ivor, Mabel, you don't see Ivor. How do you do, Mr. Dacre? Then the trio withdrew into a little anteroom. It was really time. Even then the pair conducted themselves as if Mr. Dacre had been nothing and no one. The Duke took the lady's two hands in his. He eyed her fondly. So you are uninjured, with the exception of that log of hair. Where did the villain take it from? The lady looked a little puzzled. What log of hair? From an envelope which he took from his pocket, the Duke produced a shining tress. It was the lock of hair which had arrived in the first communication. I will have it framed. You will have what framed? The Duchess glanced at what the Duke was so tenderly caressing, almost as it seemed a little dubiously. Whatever is it you have there? It is the lock of hair which that scoundrel sent me. Something in the lady's face caused him to ask a question. Did he tell you he had sent it to me? Howard! 
Did the brute tell you he meant to cut off your finger? A very curious look came into the lady's face. She glanced at the duke as if she, all at once, was half afraid of him. She cast at Mr. Dacre what really seemed to be a look of inquiry. Her voice was tremulously anxious. Oh, did, did the accident affect you mentally? How could it not have affected me mentally? Do you think my mental organization is of steel? But you look so well. Of course I look well now that I have you back again. Tell me, darling, did that hound actually threaten you with cutting off your arm? If he did, I shall have you half inclined to kill him yet. The Duchess seemed positively to shrink from her better half's near neighborhood. Oh, what, was it a Pickford's van? The Duke seemed puzzled. Well, he might be. Was what a Pickford van? The lady turned to Mr. Dacre. In her voice there was a ring of anguish. Mr. Dacre, tell me, was it a Pickford's van? Ivor could only imitate his relative's repetition of her inquiry. I didn't quite catch you. Was what a Pickford's van? The Duchess clasped her hands in front of her. What is it you're keeping from me? What is it you're trying to hide? I implore you to tell me the worst, whatever it may be. Do not keep me any longer in suspense. You do not know what I have already endured. Mr. Taker, is my husband mad? One need scarcely observe that the lady's amazing appeal to Mr. Dacre as to her husband's sanity was received with something like surprise. As the Duke continued to stare at her, a dreadful fear began to loom in his brain. My darling, your brain is unhinged! He advanced to take her two hands again in his, but, to his unmistakable distress, she shrank away from him. Howard, don't touch me! How is it that I missed you? Why did you not wait until I came? Wait until you came? The Duke's bewilderment increased. Surely, if your injuries turned out after all to be slight, that was all the more reason why you should have waited after sending for me like that. I sent for you, I? The Duke's tone was grave. My darling, perhaps you had better come upstairs. Not until we've had an explanation. You must have known that I should come. Why did you not wait for me after you had sent me that? The Duchess held out something to the Duke. He took it. It was a card, his own visiting card. Something was written on the back of it. He read aloud what was written. Mabel, come to me at once with the bearer. They tell me that they cannot take me home. It looks like my own writing. Looks like it. It is your writing. It looks like it, and written with a shaky pen. Dear child, one's hand would shake at such a moment as that. Mabel, where did you get this? It was brought to me at Kane and Wilson's. Who brought it? Who brought it? Why, the man you sent. The man I sent? A light burst upon the Duke's brain. He fell back a pace. It's the decoy! Her grace echoed the words. The decoy? The scoundrel to set the trap with such a bait. My poor innocent darling, did you think it came from me? Tell me, Mabel, where did he cut off your hair? Cut off my hair? Her grace put her hand to her head as if to make sure that her hair was there. Where did he take you to? He took me to Draper's Buildings. Draper's Buildings? I have never been in the city before, but he told me it was Draper's Buildings. Isn't that near the Stock Exchange? Near the Stock Exchange? It seemed rather a curious place to which to take a kidnapped victim. The man's audacity. 
He told me that you were coming out of the stock exchange when a van knocked you over. He said that he thought it was a Pickford's van. Was it a Pickford's van? No, it was not a Pickford's van. Mabel, were you in Draper's buildings when you wrote that letter? Wrote what letter? Have you forgotten it already? I do not believe that there was a word in it which will not be branded on my brain until I die. Howard, what do you mean? Surely you cannot have written me such a letter as that and then forgotten it already. He handed her the letter which had arrived in the second communication. She glanced at it askance. Then she took it with a little gasp. Howard, if you don't mind, I think I'll take a chair. She took a chair. What? Whatever. Whatever's this? As she read the letter, the varying expressions which passed across her face were, in themselves, a study in psychology. Is it possible that you can imagine that under any conceivable circumstances I could have written such a letter as this? Mabel! She rose to her feet with emphasis. Howard, don't say you thought this came from me. Not from you? He remembered Noel's diplomatic reception of the epistle on its first appearance. I suppose you will say next that this is not a lock of your hair. My dear child, what bee have you got in your bonnet? This a lock of my hair? Why, it's not the least bit like my hair. Which was certainly inaccurate. As far as color was concerned, it was an almost perfect match. The Duke turned to Mr. Dacre. Ivor, I've had to go through a good deal this afternoon. If I have to go through much more, something will crack. He touched his forehead. I think it's my turn to take a chair. Not the one which the Duchess had vacated, but one which faced it. He stretched out his legs in front of him. He thrust his hands into his trouser pockets. He said, in a tone which was not gloomy, but absolutely gruesome, Might I ask, Mabel, if you have been kidnapped? Kidnapped? The word I used was kidnapped, but I will spell it if you like, or I will get a dictionary that you may see its meaning. The Duchess looked as if she was beginning to be not quite sure if she was awake or sleeping. She turned to Ivor. Mr. Taker, has the accident affected Howard's brain? The Duke took the words out of his cousin's mouth. On that point, my dear, let me ease your mind. I don't know if you are under the impression that I should be in the same shape after a Pickford's van had run over me as I was before, but in any case, I have not been run over by a Pickford's van. So far as I am concerned, there has been no accident. Dismiss that delusion from your mind. Oh! You appear surprised. One might even think you were sorry. But may I now ask what you did when you arrived at Draper's Buildings? Did? I looked for you. Indeed. And when you had looked in vain, what was the next item in your program? The lady shrank still farther from him. Herbert, have you been having a jest at my expense? Can you have been so cruel? Tears stood in her eyes. Rising, the duke laid his hand upon her arm. Mabel, tell me, what did you do when you had looked for me in vain? I looked for you upstairs, downstairs, and everywhere. It was quite a large place. It took me ever such time. I thought that I should go, distracted. Nobody seemed to know anything about you, or even that there had been an accident at all. It was all officers. I couldn't make it out in the least. And the people didn't seem to be able to make me out either. So, when I couldn't find you anywhere, I came straight home again. The Duke was silent for a moment. Then, with a funeral gravity, he turned to Mr. Dacre. He put to him this question. Ivor, what are you laughing at? Mr. Dacre drew his hand across his mouth with a rather suspicious gesture. My dear fellow, only a smile. 
The Duchess looked from one to the other. What have you two been doing? What is the joke? With an air of preternatural solemnity, the Duke took two letters from the breast pocket of his coat. Mabel, you have already seen your letter. You have already seen the lock of your hair. Just look at this and that. He gave her the two very singular communications which had arrived in such a mysterious manner, and so quickly one after the other. She read them with wide open eyes. Herbert! Wherever did these come from? The Duke was standing with his legs apart and his hands in his trouser pockets. I would give... I would give another five hundred pounds to know. Shall I tell you, madam, what I have been doing? I have been presenting five hundred golden sovereigns to a perfect stranger with a top hat and a gardenia in his buttonhole. Whatever for? If you have perused these documents which you have in your hand, you will have some faint idea. Ivor, when it's your funeral, I'll smile. Mabel, Duchess of Datchet, it is beginning to dawn upon the vacuum which represents my brain that I've been the victim of one of the prettiest things and practical jokes that ever yet was planned. When that fellow brought you that card at Kane and Wilson's, which I need scarcely tell you never came from me, someone walked out the front entrance who was so exactly like you, both Bounds and Moisey took her for you. Moisey showed her into the carriage, and Bounds drove her home. But when the carriage reached home, it was empty. Your double had got out upon the road. The Duchess uttered a sound which was half gasp, half sigh. Herbert! Barnes and Moisey, with beautiful and childlike innocence, when they found that they had brought the thing home empty, came straight away and told me you had jumped out of the brougham while it had been driving full pelt through the streets. While I was digesting that piece of information, there came the first epistle with the lock of your hair. Before I had time to digest that, there came the second epistle with yours inside. It seems incredible. It sounds incredible, but unfathomable is the folly of man, especially of a man who loves his wife. The Duke crossed to Mr. Dacre. I don't want, Ivor, to suggest anything in the way of bribery and corruption, but if you could keep this matter to yourself, not mention it to your friends, our white-hatted and gardenia-buttonholed acquaintance is welcome to his five hundred pounds, and— Mabel, what on earth are you laughing at? The Duchess appeared all at once to be seized with inextinguishable laughter. Herwood, just think how that man must be laughing at you. And the Duke of Datchet thought of it. End of the Lost Duchess The Moabite Cipher by R. Austin Freeman this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Moabite Cipher by R. Austin Freeman A large and motley crowd lined the pavements of Oxford Street as Thorndyke and I made our way leisurely eastward. Floral decorations and drooping bunting announced one of those functions inaugurated from time to time by a benevolent government for the entertainment of fashionable loungers and the relief of distressed pickpockets. For a Russian Grand Duke, who had torn himself away amidst valedictory explosions from a loving if too demonstrative people, was to pass anon on his way to the Guildhall, and a British Prince, heroically indiscreet, was expected to occupy a seat in the ducal carriage. Near Rathbone Place, Thorndyke halted and drew my attention to a smart-looking man who was lounging in a doorway, cigarette in hand. 
"'Our old friend, Inspector Badger,' said Thorndyke. "'He seems mightily interested in that gentleman in the light overcoat. "'How do you do, Badger?' "'For at this moment the detective caught his eye and bowed. "'Who is your friend?' "'That's what I'd like to know, sir,' replied the inspector. "'I've been shadowing him for the last half hour, "'but I can't make him out, though I believe I've seen him somewhere. "'He don't look like a foreigner, but he has something bulky in his pocket, "'so I must keep him in sight until the Duke is safely passed. "'I wish,' he added gloomily, "'these beastly Russians would stop at home. "'They give us no end of trouble.' "'Are you expecting any occurrences, then?' asked Thorndyke. "'Bless you, sir,' exclaimed Badger. "'The whole route is lined with plainclothesmen.' You see, it is known that several desperate characters followed the Duke to England, and there are a good many exiles living here who would like to have a rap at him. Hello, what's he up to now? The man in the light overcoat had suddenly caught the inspector's too inquiring eye, and forthwith dived into the crowd at the edge of the pavement. In his haste, he trod heavily on the foot of a big, rough-looking man, by whom he was in a moment hustled out into the road with such violence that he fell sprawling face downwards. It was an unlucky moment. A mounted constable was just then backing in upon the crowd, and before he could gather the meaning of the shout that arose from the bystanders, his horse had set down one hind hoof firmly on the prostrate man's back. The inspector signaled to a constable, who forthwith made a way for us through the crowd, but even as we approached the injured man, he rose stiffly and looked round with a pale, vacant face. "'Are you hurt?' Thorndyke asked gently, with an earnest look into the frightened, wondering eyes. "'No, sir.' was the reply, only I feel queer, sinking, just here. He laid a trembling hand on his chest, and Thorndyke, still eyeing him anxiously, said in a low voice to the inspector, Cab or ambulance, as quickly as you can. A cab was led round from Newman Street, and the injured man put into it. Thorndyke, Badger, and I entered, and we drove off up Rathbone Place. As we proceeded, our patient's face grew more and more ashen, drawn and anxious, his breathing was shallow and uneven, and his teeth chattered slightly. The cab swung round into Goode Street, and then, suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye, there came a change. The eyelids and jaw relaxed, the eyes became filmy, and the whole form subsided into the corner in a shrunken heap, with the strange gelatinous limpness of a body that is dead as a whole, while its tissues are still alive. "'God save us! The man's dead!' exclaimed the inspector in a shocked voice for even policemen have their feelings. He sat staring at the corpse, as it nodded gently with the jolting of the cab, until we drew up inside the courtyard of the Middlesex Hospital, when he got out briskly, with suddenly renewed cheerfulness, to help the porter to place the body on the wheeled couch. "'Well, we shall know who he is now, at any rate,' said he, as we followed the couch to the casualty room. Thorndyke nodded unsympathetically. The medical instinct in him was for the moment stronger than the legal.' The house surgeon leaned over the couch and made a rapid examination as he listened to our account of the incident. Then he straightened himself up and looked at Thorndyke. "'Internal hemorrhage, I expect,' said he. "'At any rate, he's dead, poor beggar, as dead as Nebuchadnezzar. Ah, here comes the bobby. It's his affair now.' A sergeant came into the room, breathing quickly, and looked in surprise from the corpse to the inspector. But the latter, without loss of time, proceeded to turn out the dead man's pockets, commencing with the bulky object which had first attracted his attention, which proved to be a brown paper parcel tied up with red tape. "'Pork pie, begad!' he exclaimed with a crestfallen air, as he cut the tape and opened the package. "'You had better go through his other pockets, Sergeant.' The small heap of odds and ends that resulted from this process tended, with a single exception, to throw little light on the man's identity, the exception being a letter, sealed but not stamped, addressed in an exceedingly illiterate hand, 
to Mr. Adolf Schoenberg, 213 Greek Street, Soho. He was going to leave it by hand, I expect, observed the inspector with a wistful glance at the sealed envelope. I think I'll take it round myself, and you had better come with me, sergeant. He slipped the letter into his pocket, and leaving the sergeant to take possession of the other effects, made his way out of the building. I suppose, doctor, said he, as we crossed into Burner Street, you are not coming our way? Don't want to see Mr. Schoenberg, hm? Thornburg reflected for a moment. Well, it isn't very far, and we may as well see the end of the incident. Yes, let's go together. Number 213, Greek Street, was one of those houses that irresistibly suggested the observer the idea of a church organ, either jam of the doorway being adorned with a row of brass bell handles corresponding to stop knobs. These the sergeant examined with the air of an expert musician, and having, as it were, gauged the capacity of the instrument, selected the middle knob on the right side and pulled it briskly, whereupon a first-floor window was thrown up and a head protruded. But it afforded us a momentary glimpse only, for having caught the sergeant's upturned eye, it retired with surprising precipitancy, and before we had time to speculate on the apparition, the street door was opened and a man emerged. He was about to close the door after him when the inspector interposed. "'Does Mr. Adolf Schoenberg live here?' The newcomer, a very typical Jew of the red-haired type, surveyed us thoughtfully through his gold-rimmed spectacles as he repeated the name. "'Schoenberg? Schoenberg? Ah, yes, I know. He lives on the third floor. I saw him go up a short time ago. Third floor, back.' And indicating the open door with a wave of the hand, he raised his hat and passed into the street. "'I suppose we had better go up.' said the inspector, with a dubious glance at the row of bell-pulls. He accordingly started up the stairs, and we all followed in his wake. There were two doors at the back of the third floor, but as the one was open, displaying an unoccupied bedroom, the inspector rapped smartly on the other. It flew open almost immediately, and a fierce-looking little man confronted us with a hostile stare. "'Well,' said he. "'Mr. Adolf Schoenberg,' inquired the inspector. "'Well, what about him?' snapped our new acquaintance." "'I wish to have a few words with him,' said Badger. "'Then what do you come banging at my door for?' demanded the other. "'Why doesn't he live here?' "'No. First floor, front,' replied our friend, preparing to close the door. "'Pardon me,' said Thorndyke, "'but what is Mr. Schoenberg like? I mean—' "'Like?' interrupted the resident. "'He's like a blooming sheeny, with a carroty beard and gold gig lamps.' And having presented this impressionist sketch, he brought the interview to a definite close by slamming the door and turning the key.' With a wrathful exclamation, the inspector turned toward the stairs, down which the sergeant was already clattering in hot haste, and made his way back to the ground floor, followed, as before, by Thorndyke and me. On the doorstep we found the sergeant breathlessly interrogating a smartly dressed youth, whom I had seen alight from a hansom as we entered the house, and who now stood with a notebook tucked under his arm, sharpening a pencil with deliberate care. "'Mr. James saw him come out, sir,' said the sergeant. "'He turned up towards the square.' "'Did he seem to hurry?' asked the inspector. "'Rather,' replied the reporter. "'As soon as you were inside, he went off like a lamplighter. "'You won't catch him now.' "'We don't want to catch him,' the detective rejoined gruffly. "'Then backing out of earshot of the eager pressman, "'he said in a lower tone, "'That was Mr. Schoenberg, beyond a doubt, "'and it is clear that he has some reason for making himself scarce, "'so I shall consider myself justified in opening that note.' He suited the action to the word, and having cut the envelope open with official neatness, drew out the enclosure. "'My hat!' he exclaimed, as his eye fell upon the contents. "'What in creation is this? It isn't shorthand, but what the deuce is it?' He handed the document to Thorndyke, 
who, having held it up to the light and felt the paper critically, proceeded to examine it with keen interest. It consisted of a single half-sheet of thin notepaper, both sides of which were covered with strange, crabbed characters, written with a brownish-black ink in continuous lines, without any spaces to indicate the divisions into words, and, but for the modern material which bore the writing, it might have been a portion of some ancient manuscript or forgotten codex. "'What do you make of it, doctor?' inquired the inspector anxiously, after a pause, during which Thorndyke had scrutinized the strange writing with knitted brows. "'Not a great deal,' replied Thorndyke. "'The character is the Moabite or Phoenician primitive Semitic, in fact, and reads from right to left. The language I take to be Hebrew.' At any rate, I can find no Greek words, and I see here a group of letters which may form one of the few Hebrew words that I know, the word badim, lies. But you had better get it deciphered by an expert. If it is Hebrew, said Badger, we can manage it all right. There are plenty of Jews at our disposal. You had better take that paper to the British Museum, said Thorndyke, and submit it to the keeper of the Phoenician antiquities for decipherment. Inspector Badger smiled a foxy smile as he deposited the paper in his pocketbook. "'We'll see what we can make of it ourselves first, he said. "'But many thanks for your advice all the same, doctor. "'No, Mr. James, I can't give you any information just at present. "'You had better apply at the hospital.' "'I suspect,' said Thorndyke, as we took our way homewards, "'that Mr. James has collected enough material for his purpose already. "'He must have followed us from the hospital, "'and I have no doubt that he has his report with full details "'mentally arranged at this moment.' and I am not sure that he didn't get a peep at the mysterious paper in spite of the inspector's precautions. By the way, I said, what do you make of the document? A cipher, most probably, he replied. It is written in the primitive Semitic alphabet, which, as you know, is practically identical with primitive Greek. It is written from right to left, like the Phoenician, Hebrew, and Moabite, as well as the earliest Greek inscriptions. The paper is common cream-laid notepaper, and the ink is ordinary indelible Chinese ink, such as is used by draftsmen. Those are the facts, and without further study of the document itself, they don't carry us very far. Why do you think it is a cipher rather than a document in straightforward Hebrew? Because it is obviously a secret message of some kind. Now, every educated Jew knows more or less Hebrew, and although he is able to read and write only the modern square Hebrew character, it is so easy to transpose one alphabet into another that the mere language would afford no security. Therefore, I expect that, when the experts translate this document, the translation or transliteration will be a mere farrago of unintelligible nonsense. But we shall see. And meanwhile, the facts that we have offer several interesting suggestions which are well worth consideration. As, for instance... Now, my dear Jervis, said Thorndyke, shaking an admonitory forefinger at me, don't, I pray you, give way to mental indolence. You have these few facts that I have mentioned. Consider them separately and collectively, and in their relation to the circumstances. Don't attempt to suck my brain when you have an excellent brain of your own to suck. On the following morning, the papers fully justified my colleague's opinion of Mr. James. All the events which had occurred, as well as a number that had not, were given in the fullest and most vivid detail, a lengthy reference being made to the paper, found on the person of the dead anarchist, and written in a private shorthand or cryptogram. The report concluded with the gratifying, though untrue, statement that, in this intricate and important case, the police have wisely secured the assistance of Dr. John Thorndyke, to whose acute intellect and vast experience the portentous cryptogram will doubtless soon deliver up its secret. Very flattering, laughed Thorndyke, to whom I read the extract on his return from the hospital, but a little awkward if it should induce our friends to deposit a few trifling mementos in the form of nitro compounds on our main staircase or in the cellars. By the way, I met Superintendent Miller on London Bridge. 
The cryptogram, as Mr. James calls it, has set Scotland Yard in a mighty ferment. Naturally, what have they done in the matter? They adopted my suggestion, after all, finding that they could make nothing of it themselves, and took it to the British Museum. The museum people referred them to Professor Popelbaum, the great paleographer, to whom they accordingly submitted it. Does he express any opinion about it? Yes, provisionally. After a brief examination, he found it to consist of a number of Hebrew words sandwiched between apparently meaningless groups of letters. He furnished the superintendent offhand with a translation of the words, and Miller forthwith struck off a number of hectograph copies of it, which he has distributed among the senior officials of his department, so that at present, here Thorndyke gave a vent to a soft chuckle, Scotland Yard is engaged in a sort of missing word, or rather missing sense, competition. Miller invited me to join in the sport, and to that end presented me with one of the hectograph copies on which to exercise my wits, together with a photograph of the document. And shall you? I asked. Not I, he replied laughing. In the first place, I have not been formally consulted, and consequently am a passive, though interested spectator. In the second place, I have a theory of my own, which I shall test if the occasion arises. But if you would like to take part in the competition, I am authorized to show you the photograph and the translation. I will pass them on to you, and I wish you joy of them. He handed me the photograph and a sheet of paper that he had just taken from his pocketbook, and watched me with grim amusement as I read out the first few lines. Woe, city, lies, robbery, prey, noise, whip, rattling, wheel, horse, chariot, day, darkness, gloominess, clouds, darkness, morning, mountain, people, strong, fire, them, flame. It doesn't look very promising at first sight, I remarked. What is the professor's theory? His theory, provisionally of course, is that the words form the message, and the groups of letters represent mere filled-up spaces between the words. But surely, I protested, that would be a very transparent device. Thorndyke laughed. There is a childlike simplicity about it, said he, that is highly attractive, but discouraging. It is much more probable that the words are dummies, and that the letters contain the message. Or again, the solution may lie in an entirely different direction. But listen, is that a cab coming here? It was. It drew up opposite our chambers, and a few moments later a brisk step ascending the stairs heralded a smart rat-tat at our door. Flinging open the ladder, I found myself confronted by a well-dressed stranger, who, after a quick glance at me, peered inquisitively over my shoulder into the room. "'I am relieved, Dr. Jervis,' said he, "'to find you and Dr. Thorndyke at home, as I have come on somewhat urgent professional business. My name,' he continued, entering in response to my invitation, "'is Barton. But you don't know me, though I know you both by sight. I have come to ask you if one of you, or better still, both, could come tonight and see my brother.' "'That,' said Thorndyke, "'depends on the circumstances and on the whereabouts of your brother.' "'The circumstances,' said Mr. Barton, "'are, in my opinion, highly suspicious, "'and I will place them before you, of course, in strict confidence.' Thorndyke nodded and indicated a chair. "'My brother,' continued Mr. Barton, "'taking the proffered seat, "'has recently married for the second time. "'His age is fifty-five, and that of his wife twenty-six, "'and I may say that the marriage has been, well, by no means a success. Now, within the last fortnight, my brother has been attacked by a mysterious and extremely painful affection of the stomach, to which his doctor seems unable to give a name. It has resisted all treatment hitherto. Day by day, the pain and distress increase, and I feel that, unless something decisive is done, the end cannot be far off. Is the pain worse after taking food? inquired Thorndyke. That's just it, exclaimed our visitor. I see what is in your mind, and it has been in mine, too. 
so much so that I have tried repeatedly to obtain samples of the food that he is taking, and this morning I succeeded. Here he took from his pocket a wide-mouthed bottle, which, disengaging from its paper wrappings, he laid on the table. When I called, he was taking his breakfast of arrowroot, which he complained had a gritty taste, supposed by his wife to be due to the sugar. Now I had provided myself with this bottle, and during the absence of his wife, I managed unobserved to convey a portion of the arrowroot that he had left into it, and I should be greatly obliged if you would examine it and tell me if this arrowroot contains anything that it should not. He pushed the bottle across to Thorndyke, who carried it to the window, and extracting a small quantity of the contents with a glass rod, examined the pasty mass with the aid of a lens. Then, lifting the bell glass cover from the microscope, which stood on its table by the window, he smeared a small quantity of the suspected matter onto a glass slip and placed it on the stage of the instrument. I observe a number of crystalline particles in this, he said after a brief inspection, which have the appearance of arsenious acid. Ah, ejaculated Mr. Barton, just as I feared, but are you certain? No, replied Thorndyke, but the matter is easily tested. He pressed the button of the bell that communicated with the laboratory, a summons that brought the laboratory assistants from his lair with characteristic promptitude. "'Will you please prepare a Marsh's apparatus, Polton?' said Thorndyke. "'I have a couple ready, sir,' replied Polton. "'Then pour the acid into one and bring it to me with a tile.' As his familiar vanished silently, Thorndyke turned to Mr. Barton. "'Supposing we find arsenic in this arrowroot, as we probably shall, what do you want us to do?' "'I want you to come and see my brother,' replied our client. "'Why not take a note from me to his doctor?' "'No, no, I want you to come.' I should like you both to come, and put a stop at once to this dreadful business. Consider, it is a matter of life and death. You won't refuse. I beg you not to refuse me your help in these terrible circumstances. Well, said Thorndyke, as his assistant reappeared, let us first see what the test has to tell us. Polton advanced to the table, on which he deposited a small flask, the contents of which were in a state of brisk effervescence, a bottle labeled calcium hypochlorite and a white porcelain tile. The flask was fitted with a safety funnel and a glass tube drawn out to a fine jet, to which Polton cautiously applied a lighted match. Instantly there sprang from the jet a tiny, pale violet flame. Thorndyke now took the tile and held it in the flame for several seconds, when the appearance of the surface remained unchanged, save for the small circle of condensed moisture. His next proceeding was to thin the arrowroot with distilled water until it was quite fluid, and then pour a small quantity into the funnel. It ran slowly down the tube into the flask, with the bubbling contents of which it became speedily mixed. Almost immediately, a change began to appear in the character of the flame, which from a pale violet turned gradually to a sickly blue, while above it hung a faint cloud of white smoke. Once more, Thorndyke held the tile above the jet, but this time, no sooner had the pallid flame touched the cold surface of the porcelain than there appeared on the latter a glistening black stain. "'That is pretty conclusive,' observed Thorndyke, lifting the stopper out of the reagent bottle." But we will apply the final test. He dropped a few drops of the hypochlorite solution onto the tile, and immediately the black stain faded away and vanished. We can now answer your question, Mr. Barton, said he, replacing the stopper as he turned to our client. The specimen that you brought us certainly contains arsenic, and in very considerable quantities. Then, exclaimed Mr. Barton, starting from his chair, you will come and help me to rescue my brother from this dreadful pearl. Don't refuse me, Dr. Thorndyke. For mercy's sake, don't refuse. Thorndyke reflected for a moment. "'Before we decide,' said he, "'we must see what engagements we have.' With a quick, significant glance at me, he walked into the office, whither I followed in some bewilderment, for I knew that we had no engagements for the evening. 
"'Now, Jervis,' said Thorndyke, as he closed the office door, "'what are we to do?' "'We must go, I suppose,' I replied. "'It seems a pretty urgent case.' "'It does,' he agreed. "'Of course the man may be telling the truth, after all.' "'You don't think he is, then?' "'No. It is a plausible tale, but there is too much arsenic in that arrowroot. Still, I think I ought to go. It is an ordinary professional risk, but there is no reason why you should put your head into the noose.' "'Thank you,' I said somewhat huffily. "'I don't see what risk there is, but if any exists, I claim the right to share it.' "'Very well,' he answered with a smile. "'We will both go. I think we can take care of ourselves.' He re-entered the sitting-room and announced his decision to Mr. Barton, whose relief and gratitude were quite pathetic. "'But,' said Thorndyke, "'you have not yet told us where your brother lives.' "'Rexford,' was the reply. "'Rexford in Essex.' It is an out-of-the-way place, but if we catch the 7.15 from Liverpool Street, we shall be there in an hour and a half. And as to the return, you know the trains, I suppose? Oh, yes, replied our client. I will see that you don't miss your train back. Then I will be with you in a minute, said Thorndyke, and taking the still-bubbling flask, he retired to the laboratory, whence he returned in a few minutes, carrying his hat and overcoat. The cab which had brought our client was still waiting, and we were soon rattling through the streets toward the station where we arrived in time to furnish ourselves with dinner baskets and select our compartment at leisure. During the early part of the journey, our companion was in excellent spirits. He dispatched the cold fowl from the basket and quaffed the rather indifferent claret with as much relish as if he had not had a single relation in the world, and after dinner he became genial to the verge of hilarity. But as the time went on, there crept into his manner a certain anxious restlessness. He became silent and preoccupied, and several times furtively consulted his watch. "'The train is confoundedly late,' he exclaimed irritably. Seven minutes behind time already.' "'A few minutes more or less are not of much consequence,' said Thorndyke. "'No, of course not. But still—' "'Ah, thank heaven! Here we are!' He thrust his head out of the off-side window and gazed eagerly down the line. Then, leaping to his feet, he bustled out onto the platform while the train was still moving. Even as we alighted, a warning bell rang furiously on the up-platform— and as Mr. Barton hurried us through the empty booking office to the outside of the station, the rumble of the approaching train could be heard above the noise made by our own train moving off. "'My carriage does not seem to have arrived yet,' exclaimed Mr. Barton, looking anxiously up the station approach. "'If you will wait here a moment, I will go and make inquiries.' He darted back into the booking office and threw it onto the platform, just as the up-train roared into the station. Thorndyke followed him with quick but stealthy steps and peering out of the booking office door, watched his proceedings. Then he turned and beckoned to me. "'There he goes,' said he, pointing to an iron footbridge that spanned the line, and as I looked I saw, clearly defined against the dim night sky, a flying figure racing toward the upside. It was hardly two-thirds across when the guard's whistle sang out its shrill warning. "'Quick, Jervis!' exclaimed Thorndyke. "'She's off!' He leaped down onto the line, whither I followed instantly and crossing the rails we clambered up together onto the footboard opposite an empty first-class compartment. Thorndyke's magazine knife, containing, among other implements, a railway key, was already in his hand. The door was speedily unlocked, and as we entered, Thorndyke ran through and looked out onto the platform. "'Just in time!' he exclaimed. "'He is in one of the forward compartments.' He relocked the door, and, seating himself, proceeded to fill his pipe. "'And now,' said I, as the train moved out of the station, "'perhaps you will explain this little comedy.' "'With pleasure,' he replied, "'if it needs any explanation. "'But you can hardly have forgotten Mr. James's flattering remarks "'in his report of the Greek Street incident, "'clearly giving the impression that the mysterious document was in my possession. "'When I read that, I knew I must look out for some attempt to recover it. 
though I hardly expected such promptness. Still, when Mr. Barton called without credentials or appointment, I viewed him with some suspicion. That suspicion deepened when he wanted us both to come. It deepened further when I found an impossible quantity of arsenic in his sample, and it gave place to certainty when, having allowed him to select the trains by which we were to travel, I went up to the laboratory and examined the timetable, for I then found that the last train for London left Rexford ten minutes after we were due to arrive. Obviously, this was a plan to get us both safely out of the way while he and some of his friends ransacked our chambers for the missing document. I see, and that accounts for his extraordinary anxiety at the lateness of the train. But why did you come if you knew it was a plant? My dear fellow, said Thorndyke, I never miss an interesting experience if I can help it. There are possibilities in this, too, don't you see? But supposing his friends have broken into our chambers already? That contingency has been provided for, but I think they will wait for Mr. Barton and us. Our train, being the last one up, stopped at every station and crawled slothfully in the intervals so that it was past eleven o'clock when we reached Liverpool Street. Here we got out cautiously and, mingling with the crowd, followed the unconscious Barton up the platform, through the barrier, and out into the street. He seemed in no special hurry, for, after pausing to light a cigar, he set off at an easy pace up New Broad Street. Thorndyke hailed the hansom, and, motioning me to enter, directed the cabman to drive to Clifford's Inn Passage. "'Sit well back,' said he, as we rattled away up New Broad Street. "'We shall be passing our gay deceiver presently. In fact, there he is, a living, walking illustration of the folly of underrating the intelligence of one's adversary.' At Clifford's Inn Passage we dismissed the cab, and retiring into the shadow of the dark, narrow alley, kept an eye on the gate of Inner Temple Lane. In about twenty minutes we observed our friend approaching on the south side of Fleet Street. He halted at the gate, plied the knocker, and after a brief parley with the night porter, vanished through the wicket. We waited yet five minutes more, and then, having given him time to get clear of the entrance, we crossed the road. The porter looked at us with some surprise. "'There's a gentleman just gone down to your chambers, sir,' said he. "'He told me you were expecting him.' "'Quite right,' said Thorndyke, with a dry smile. "'I was. Good night.' We slunk down the lane, past the church, and through the gloomy cloisters, giving a wide berth to all lamps and lighted entries, until, emerging into paper buildings, we crossed at the darkest part to King's Bench Walk, where Thorndyke made straight for the chambers of our friend Anstey, which were two doors above our own. "'Why are we coming here?' I asked as we ascended the stairs. But the question needed no answer when we reached the landing for through the open door of our friend's chambers I could see in the darkened room Anstey himself with two uniformed constables and a couple of plainsclothesmen. "'There has been no signal yet, sir,' said one of the latter, whom I recognize as a detective sergeant of our division. "'No,' said Thorndyke, "'but the M.C. has arrived. He came in five minutes before us.' "'Then,' exclaimed Anstey, "'the ball will open shortly, ladies and gents. The boards are waxed, the fiddlers are tuning up, and—' "'Not quite so loud, if you please, sir.' said the sergeant. I think there is somebody coming up Crown Office Row. The ball had, in fact, opened. As we peered cautiously out of the open window, keeping well back in the darkened room, a stealthy figure crept out of the shadow, crossed the road, and stole noiselessly into the entry of Thorndyke's chambers. It was quickly followed by a second figure, and then by a third, in which I recognized our elusive client. Now, listen for the signal, said Thorndyke. They won't waste time. Confound that clock! The soft-voiced bell of the inner temple clock mingling with the harsher tones of St. Dunstan's and the law courts, slowly told out the hour of midnight, and as the last reverberations were dying away, some metallic object, apparently a coin, 
dropped with a sharp clink onto the pavement under our window. At the sound, the watchers simultaneously sprang to their feet. "'You two go first, said the sergeant, addressing the uniformed men, who thereupon stole noiselessly in their rubber-soled boots down the stone stairs and along the pavement. The rest of us followed, with less attention to silence, and as we ran up to Thorndyke's chambers, we were aware of quick but stealthy footsteps on the stairs above. "'They've been at work, you see,' whispered one of the constables, flashing his lantern onto the iron-bound outer door of our sitting-room, on which the marks of a large jemmy were plainly visible. The sergeant nodded grimly, and bidding the constables to remain on the landing, led the way upwards. As we ascended, faint rustlings continued to be audible from above, and on the second-floor landing we met a man descending briskly, but without hurry, from the third. It was Mr. Barton, and I could not but admire the composure with which he passed the two detectives. But suddenly his glance fell on Thorndyke, and his composure vanished. With a wild stare of incredulous horror, he halted as if petrified. Then he broke away and raced furiously down the stairs, and after a moment a muffled shout and the sound of a scuffle told us that he had received a check. On the next flight we met two more men, who, more hurried and less self-possessed, endeavored to push past, but the sergeant barred the way. "'Why, bless me!' exclaimed the latter. "'It's Moki, and isn't that Tom Harris?' "'It's all right, sergeant,' said Moki plaintively, striving to escape from the officer's grip. "'We've come to the wrong house, that's all.' The sergeant smiled indulgently. "'I know,' he replied, "'but you're always coming to the wrong house, Moki, and now you're just coming along with me to the right house.' He slipped his hand inside his captive's coat and adroitly fished out a large, folding jemmy, whereupon the discomforted burglar abandoned all further protest. On our return to the first floor, we found Mr. Barton sulkily awaiting us, handcuffed to one of the constables, and watched by Polton with pensive disapproval. "'I needn't trouble you tonight, doctor,' said the sergeant, as he marshaled his little troop of captors and captives. "'You'll hear from us in the morning. Good night, sir.' The melancholy procession moved off down the stairs, and we retired to our chambers with Anstey to smoke a last pipe. "'A capable man, that Barton,' observed Thorndyke. "'Ready, plausible, and ingenious, but spoilt by prolonged contact with fools. I wonder if the police will perceive the significance of this little affair.' "'They'll be more acute than I am if they do,' said I. "'Naturally,' interposed Anstey, who loved to cheek his revered senior, "'because there isn't any. It's only Thorndyke's bounce.' He is really in a deuce of a fog himself. However this may have been, the police were a good deal puzzled by the incident, for, on the following morning, we received a visit from no less a person than Superintendent Miller of Scotland Yard. "'This is a queer business,' said he, coming to the point at once. "'This burglary, I mean. Why should they want to crack your place? Right here in the temple, too. You've got nothing of value here, have you? No hard stuff, as they call it, for instance?' "'Not so much as a silver teaspoon,' replied Thorndyke, who had a conscientious objection to plate of all kinds. "'It's odd,' said the superintendent. "'Deuced odd. "'When we got your note, we thought that anarchist idiots had mixed you up with the case. "'You saw the papers, I suppose, and wanted to go through your rooms for some reason. "'We thought we had our hands on the gang, "'instead of which we find a party of common crooks that we're sick of the sight of. "'I tell you, sir, it's annoying, when you think you've hooked a salmon, "'to bring up a blooming eel.' "'It must be a great disappointment,' Thorndyke agreed, suppressing a smile. "'It is,' said the detective. "'Not but what we're glad enough to get these beggars, especially Halkett, or Barton, as he calls himself. A mighty slippery customer is Halkett, and mischievous, too. But we're not wanting any disappointments just now. There was that big jewel job in Piccadilly, Taplin and Horns. I don't mind telling you that we've not got a ghost of the clue. Then there's this anarchist affair. We're all in the dark there, too.' "'But what about the cipher?' asked Thorndyke. 
Oh, hang the cipher, exclaimed the detective irritably. This Professor Popplebaum may be a very learned man, but he doesn't help us much. He says the document is in Hebrew, and he has translated it into double Dutch. Just listen to this. He dragged out of his pocket a bundle of papers, and dabbing down a photograph of the document before Thorndyke commenced to read the professor's report. The document is written in the characters of the well-known inscription of Mesha, king of Moab. Who the devil's he? Never heard of him. Well-known indeed. The language is Hebrew, and the words are separated by groups of letters which are meaningless, and obviously introduced to mislead and confuse the reader. The words themselves are not strictly consecutive, but by the interpolation of certain other words, a series of intelligible sentences is obtained, the meaning of which is not very clear, but is no doubt allegorical. The method of decipherment is shown in the accompanying tables, and the full rendering suggested on the enclosed sheet. It is to be noted that the writer of this document was apparently quite unacquainted with the Hebrew language, as appears from the absence of any grammatical construction. That's the professor's report, doctor, and here are the tables showing how he worked it out. It makes my head spin to look at him. He handed to Thorndyke a bundle of ruled sheets, which my colleague examined attentively for a while, and then passed on to me. This is very systematic and thorough, said he, but now let us see the final result at which he arrives. It may be all very systematic, growled the superintendent, sorting out his papers, but I tell you, sir, it's all bosh. The latter word he jerked out viciously as he slapped down on the table the final product of the professor's labors. There, he continued, that's what he calls the full rendering, and I reckon it'll make your hair curl. It might be a message from Bedlam. Thorndyke took up the first sheet, and as he compared the constructed renderings with the literal translation, the ghost of a smile stole across his usually immovable countenance. The meaning is certainly a little obscure, he observed, though the reconstruction is highly ingenious, and moreover, I think the professor is probably right. That is to say, the words which he has supplied are probably the omitted parts of the passages from which the words of the cryptogram were taken. What do you think, Jervis? He handed me the two papers, of which one gave the actual words of the cryptogram, and the other a suggested reconstruction, with omitted words supplied. The first read, Whip, noise, prey, robbery, lies, city, woe, horse, wheel, rattling, darkness, day, chariot, mountain, morning, darkness, cloud, gloominess, flame, them, fire, strong, people. Turning to the second paper, I read out the suggested rendering. Woe to the bloody city, it is full of lies and robbery, the prey departeth not, the noise of a whip, and the noise of the rattling of the wheels, and of the prancing horses, and of the jumping chariots. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. Here the first sheet ended, and as I laid it down, Thorndyke looked at me inquiringly. There is a good deal of reconstruction in proportion to the original matter, I objected. The professor has supplied more than three-quarters of the final rendering. Exactly, burst in the superintendent. It's all professor and no cryptogram. Still, I think the reading is correct, said Thorndyke, as far as it goes, that is. Good Lord, exclaimed the dismayed detective. Do you mean to tell me, sir, that all that balderdash is the real meaning of the thing? I don't say that, replied Thorndyke. I say it is correct as far as it goes but I doubt its being the solution of the cryptogram. Have you been studying that photograph that I gave you? demanded Miller with sudden eagerness. I have looked at it, said Thorndyke evasively, but I should like to examine the original if you have it with you. I have, said the detective. Professor Popplebaum sent it back with a solution, 
You can have a look at it, though I can't leave it with you without special authority. He drew the document from his pocketbook and handed it to Thorndyke, who took it over to the window and scrutinized it closely. From the window he drifted into the adjacent office, closing the door after him, and presently the sound of a faint explosion told me that he had lighted the gas fire. "'Of course,' said Miller, taking up the translation again. "'This gibberish is the sort of stuff you might expect from a parcel of crack-brained anarchists, but it doesn't seem to mean anything.' "'Not to us,' I agreed, "'but the phrases may have some prearranged significance. And then there are the letters between the words. It is possible that they may really form a cipher.' "'I suggested that to the professor,' said Miller, "'but he wouldn't hear of it. He is sure they are only dummies.' I think he is probably mistaken, and so, I fancy, does my colleague, but we shall hear what he has to say presently. Oh, I know what he will say, growled Miller. He will put the thing under the microscope and tell us who made the paper and what the ink is composed of, and then we shall be just where we are. The superintendent was evidently deeply depressed. We sat for some time pondering in silence on the vague sentences of the professor's translation, until at length Thorndyke reappeared, holding the document in his hand. He laid it quietly on the table by the officer, and then inquired, "'Is this an official consultation?' "'Certainly,' replied Miller. "'I was authorized to consult you respecting the translation, but nothing was said about the original. Still, if you want it for further study, I will get it for you.' "'No, thank you,' said Thorndyke. "'I have finished with it. My theory turned out to be correct.' "'Your theory?' exclaimed the superintendent eagerly. "'Do you mean to say?' "'And as you are consulting me officially, I may as well give you this.' He held out a sheet of paper, which the detective took from him and began to read. "'What is this?' he asked, looking up at Thorndyke with a puzzled frown. "'Where did it come from?' "'It is the solution of the cryptogram,' replied Thorndyke. The detective reread the contents of the paper, and with the frown of perplexity deepening, once more gazed at my colleague. "'This is a joke, sir. You are fooling me,' he said sulkily. "'Nothing of the kind,' answered Thorndyke. "'That is the genuine solution.' "'But it is impossible!' exclaimed Miller. "'Just look at it, Dr. Jervis.' I took the paper from his hand, and as I glanced at it, I had no difficulty in understanding his surprise. It bore a short inscription in printed Roman capitals, thus, "'The Piccadilly stuff is up the chimbley, 416 Warder Street, second floor back. It was hid because of old Moki's Jude. Moki is a blighter.' "'Then that fellow wasn't an anarchist at all?' I exclaimed. "'No,' said Miller. "'He was one of Moki's gang.' We suspected Moki of being mixed up with that job, but we couldn't fix it on him. By Jove, he added, slapping his thigh, if this is right, and I can lay my hands on the loot. Can you lend me a bag, doctor? I'm off to Warder Street this very moment. We furnished him with an empty suitcase, and from the window, watched him making for Mitre Court at a smart double. I wonder if he will find the booty, said Thorndyke. It just depends on whether the hiding place was known to more than one of the gang. Well, it has been a quaint case, and instructive, too. I suspect our friend Barton and the evasive Schoenberg were the collaborators who produced that curiosity of literature. May I ask how you deciphered the thing? I said. It didn't appear to take long. It didn't. It was merely a matter of testing a hypothesis. And you ought not to have to ask that question, he added with marked severity, seeing that you had what turned out to have been all the necessary facts two days ago. But I will prepare a document and demonstrate to you tomorrow morning. So, Miller was successful in his quest, said Thorndyke, as we smoked our morning pipes after breakfast. The entire swag, as he calls it, was up the chimbley, undisturbed. He handed me a note which had been left with the empty suitcase by a messenger shortly before, and I was about to read it when an agitated knock was heard at our door. The visitor, whom I admitted, was a rather haggard and disheveled elderly gentleman, who, as he entered, peered inquisitively through his concave spectacles 
from one of us to the other. "'Allow me to introduce myself, gentlemen,' he said. "'I am Professor Popplebaum.' Thorndyke bowed and offered a chair. "'I called yesterday afternoon,' our visitor continued, "'at Scotland Yard, where I heard of your remarkable decipherment "'and of the convincing proof of its correctness. "'Thereupon I borrowed the cryptogram "'and have spent the entire night in studying it, "'but I cannot connect your solution with any of the characters.' I wonder if you would do me the great favor of enlightening me as to your method of decipherment, and so save me further sleepless nights. You may rely on my discretion. Have you the document with you? asked Thorndyke. The professor produced it from his pocketbook and passed it to my colleague. You observe, professor, said the latter, that this is a laid paper and has no watermark. Yes, I noticed that. And that the writing is an indelible Chinese ink? Yes, yes, said the savant impatiently. "'But it is the inscription that interests me, not the paper and ink.' "'Precisely,' said Thorndyke. "'Now, it was the ink that interested me when I caught a glimpse of the document three days ago. "'Why,' I asked myself, "'should anyone use this troublesome medium? "'For this appears to be stick ink, when good writing ink is to be had. "'What advantages has Chinese ink over writing ink? "'It has several advantages as a drawing ink, but for writing purposes it has only one. "'It is quite unaffected by wet.' The obvious inference, then, was that this document was, for some reason, likely to be exposed to wet. But this inference instantly suggested another, which I was yesterday able to test, thus. He filled a tumbler with water, and rolling up the document, dropped it in. Immediately there began to appear on it a new set of characters of a curious gray color. In a few seconds, Thorndyke lifted out the wet paper, and held it up to the light. Now there was plainly visible an inscription in transparent lettering like a very distinct watermark. It was printed in Roman capitals, written across the other writing, and read, The Piccadilly stuff is up the chimbley, 416 Warder Street, second floor back. It was hid because of old Moki's Jude. Moki is a blighter. The professor regarded the inscription with profound disfavor. How do you suppose this was done? he asked gloomily. I will show you, said Thorndyke. I have prepared a piece of paper to demonstrate the process to Dr. Jervis. It is exceedingly simple. He fetched from the office a small plate of glass and a photographic dish in which a piece of thin notepaper was soaking in water. This paper, said Thorndyke, lifting it out and laying it on the glass, has been soaking all night and is now quite pulpy. He spread a dry sheet of paper over the wet one and on the former wrote heavily with a hard pencil, Moki is a blighter. On lifting the upper sheet, the writing was seen to be transferred in a deep gray to the wet paper and when the latter was held up to the light, the inscription stood out clear and transparent, as if written with oil. When this dries, said Thorndyke, the writing will completely disappear, but it will reappear whenever the paper is again wetted. The professor nodded. Very ingenious, said he. A sort of artificial palimpsest, in fact. But I do not understand how that illiterate man could have written in the difficult Moabite script. He did not, said Thorndyke. The cryptogram was probably written by one of the leaders of the gang, who no doubt supplied copies to the other members to use instead of blank paper for secret communications. The object of the Moabite writing was evidently to divert attention from the paper itself, in case the communication fell into the wrong hands, and I must say it seems to have answered its purpose very well. The professor started, stung by the sudden recollection of his labors. Yes, he snorted, but I am a scholar, sir, not a policeman. Every man to his trade. He snatched up his hat, and with a curt good morning, "'flung out of the room in dudgeon. "'Thorndyke laughed softly. "'Poor professor,' he murmured. "'Our playful friend Barton has much to answer for.'" End of The Moabite Cipher by R. Austin Freeman 
An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, 1891, by Ambrose Bice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Althea Bay. Man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down into the swift water twenty feet below. The man's hands were behind his back, the wrists bound with a rope. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross temper above his head, and the slack fell to the level of his knees. Some loose boards laid upon the sleepers, supporting the metals of the railway, supplied a footing for him and his executioners two private soldiers of the Federal Army, directed by a sergeant who in civil life may have been a deputy sheriff. At a short remove upon the same temporary platform was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in the position known as support, that is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm thrown straight across the chest, a formal and unnatural position, enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of these two men to know what was occurring at the center of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the foot planking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into a forest for a hundred yards, then curving was lost to view. Doubtless there was an outpost farther along. The other bank of the stream was open ground, a gentle acclivity topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks, loopholed for rifles with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway of the slope between bridge and the fort were the spectators, a single company of infantry in line at parade rest, the butts of the rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backward against the right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. A lieutenant stood in the right of the lane, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right. Excepting the group of four at the center of the bridge, not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily motionless. The sentinels facing the banks of the stream might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinates, but making no sign. Death is a dignitary who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of deference. The man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about 35 years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, from which his long, dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears to the collar of his well-fitting frock coat. He wore a mustache and a pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and dark gray, and had a kindly expression which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. The liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen were not excluded. 
The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted, and moved himself immediately behind that officer, who in turn moved apart one space. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on the two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross ties of the bridge. The end upon which the civilian stood almost but not quite reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, the plank would tilt, and the condemned man go down between the two ties. The arrangement commended itself to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered, nor his eyes bandaged. He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling waters of the stream, racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the stream. How slowly it appeared to move. What a sluggish stream. He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water touched to gold by the early sun, the brooding mist upon the banks at some distance down the stream. The fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift all had distracted him. And now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was a sharp sound which he could neither ignore nor understand. A distinct metallic percussion like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil. It had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was and whether immeasurably distant or nearby. It seemed both. Its occurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death knell. He awaited each stroke with impatience, and he knew not why, apprehension. The interval of silence grew progressively longer. The delays became maddening. With their greatest infrequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They hurt his ears like the thrust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. He unclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. If I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving, I could evade the bullets and swimming vigorously, reach the bank, take to the woods, and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invaders' farthest advance. As these thoughts, which have here to be set down in words, were flashed into the doomsman's brain, rather than evolved from it, the captain nodded to the sergeant, and the sergeant stepped aside. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planner of an old and highly respected Alabama family. Being a slave owner, and like the other slave owners, a politician, he was naturally an original secessionist and artfully devoted to the Southern cause. Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, have prevented him from taking service with the gallant army that had fought the disastrous campaigns ending with the fall of Corinth, and he chafed under the inglorious restraint, longing for the release of his energies the larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for distinction. That opportunity he felt would come as it comes to all in wartime. 
Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in aid of the South, no adventure too perilous for him to undertake, if consistent with the character of a civilian who was at heart a soldier, and who in good faith and without too much qualification assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance to his grounds, a gray-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Miss Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. While she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. The Yanks are repairing the railroad, said the man, and are getting ready for another advance. They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge put it in order, and built a stockade on the north bank. The commandant has issued an order, which is posted everywhere, declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, its bridges, tunnels, or trains, will be summarily hanged. I saw the order. How far is it to the Owl Creek Bridge? Farquhar asked. Oh, about thirty miles. Is there no force on this side of the creek? Only a picket post half a mile out on the railroad and a single sentinel in this end of the bridge. Suppose a man, a civilian, and a student of hanging should elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What would he accomplish? The soldier reflected. I was there a month ago, he replied. I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at this end of the bridge. It is now dry and would burn like tow. The lady had now brought the water, which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness and was as one already dead. From this date he was awakened, ages later it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, poignant agony seemed to shoot from his neck downward through every fiber of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification and to beat with an inconceivably rapid curiosity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire heating him to an intolerable temperature. As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness, of congestion. These sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion, unencompassed in a luminous cloud from which he was now merely the fiery heart, Without material substance, he swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation like a vast pendulum. Then all at once, with terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upward with the noise of a loud splash. A frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored. He knew that the rope had broken and he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation. The noose about his neck was already suffocating him and kept the water from his lungs. To die of hanging at the bottom of a river? The idea seemed to him ludicrous. 
He opened his eyes in the darkness and saw above him a gleam of light. But how distant, how inaccessible. He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until it was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten, and he knew that he was rising toward the surface. Knew it with reluctance, for he was now very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought. That is not so bad, but I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot. That is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in his wrist appraised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention as an idler might observe the feet of a juggler without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort! What magnificent, what superhuman strength! Ah, that was a fine endeavor! Bravo! The card fell away, his arms parted and floated upward, the hands dimly seen on each side in the growing light. He watched them with a new interest as first one and then the other pounced upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations resembling those of a water snake. Put it back, put it back, he thought he shouted these words to his hands, for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the direst pain that he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly, his brain was on fire, his heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out at his mouth. His whole body was racked and wretched with an insupportable anguish, but his disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously with quick downward strokes, forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge, his eyes were blinded by the sunlight, his chest expanded convulsively, and with a supreme and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great draught of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were indeed preternaturally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf, saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors in all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass, the humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonfly wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs, like oars which had lifted their boat. All these made awful music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of his body parting the water. He had come to the surface, facing down the stream. In a moment, the visible world seemed to wheel slowly round himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the two soldiers upon the bridge, the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette against the blue sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain has drawn his pistol, but did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were 
grotesque and horrible, their forms gigantic. Suddenly he heard a sharp report and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, splattering his face with spray. He heard a second report and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was a gray eye and remembered having read that gray eyes were keenest and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counter swirl had caught Farquhar and turned him half around. He was again looking into the forest on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear, high voice in a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating of the ripples in his ear. Although no soldier, he had frequented camps enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspirated chant. The lieutenant on shore was taking a part in the morning's work. How coldly and piteously, with what an even, calm intonation, presaging and enforcing tranquility in the men, with what accurately measured intervals fell those cruel words. Attention, company, soldiers, arms, ready, aim, fire. Farquhar dived, dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara, yet he heard the dull thunder of the volley, and rising again toward the surface, met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands and fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and his neck. It was uncomfortably warm, and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time underwater. He was perceptibly further downstream, nearer to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air, and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder. He was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs. He thought with the rapidity of lightning. The officer, he reasoned, will not make that martinet's error a second time. It is as easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all. An appalling splash within two yards of him was followed by a loud rushing sound, which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort and died in an explosion which stirred the very river to its depths. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, and strangled him. The cannon had taken a hand in the game. As he shook his head free from the commotion of the smitten water, he heard the deflected shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the branches in the forest beyond. They will not do that again, he thought. The next time they will use a charge of grape. I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will apprise me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. 
Suddenly he felt himself whirled round and round, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forest, the now distant bridge, fort, and men, all were commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colors only, circular horizontal streaks of color. That was all he saw. He'd been caught in a vortex and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him giddy and sick. In a few moments, he was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank, and behind projecting points which concealed him from his enemies. The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds, rubies, emeralds. He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. The trees upon the banks were giant garden plants. He noted a definite order in their arrangement, inhaled the fragrance of their blooms. A strange rosette light shone through the branches among their trunks, and the wind made in their branches the music of harps. He had no wish to perfect his escape, was content to remain in that enchanting spot until retaken. A whist and a rattle of grapeshot among the branches high above his head roused him from this dream. The baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell. He sprang to his feet, rushed up the sloping bank, and plunged into the forest. All that day he traveled, laying his course by the rounding sun. The forest seemed interminable. Nowhere did he discover a break in it, not even a woodsman's road. He had not known that he lived in so wild a region. There was something uncanny in the revelation. By nightfall he was fatigued, footsore, and famished. The thought of his wife and children urged him on. At last he found a road which led him to what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as the city street, yet it seemed untraveled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere. Not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a point, like a diagram in a lesson in perspective. Overhead, as he looked up through this rift in the woods, shone great golden stars looking unfamiliar and grouped in strange constellations. He was sure they were arranged in some order which has secret and malign significance. The wood on either side was full of singular noises, among which once, twice again, he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue. His neck was in pain, and lifting his hand to it, he found it horribly swollen. He knew that it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it. Eli's eyes felt congested. He could no longer close them. His tongue was swollen with thirst. He relieved his fever by thrusting it forward from between his teeth into the cold air. How softly the turf had carpeted the untraveled avenue. He could no longer feel the roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking, for now he sees another scene. Perhaps he had merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he left it, all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have traveled the entire night. As he pushes open the gate and passes up the wide white walk, 
He sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps, she stands waiting with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. And how beautiful she is. He springs forward with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow upon the back of his neck. A blinding white light blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon, and all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. End of story. The Safety Match by Anton Chekhov. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gesine. The Safety Match by Anton Chekhov. Part 1. On the morning of October 6, 1885, in the office of Inspector of Police of the 2nd Division of S. District, there appeared a respectably dressed young man who announced that his master, Marcus Ivanovich Klausov, a retired officer of the Horse Guards, separated from his wife, had been murdered. While making this announcement, the young man was white and terribly agitated. His hands trembled and his eyes were full of terror. Whom have I the honor of addressing? asked the inspector. Psykov, Lieutenant Klausov's agent, agriculturist and mechanician. The inspector and his deputy, on visiting the scene of the occurrence in company with Psykov, found the following. Near the wing in which Klausov had lived, was gathered a dense crowd. The news of the murder had sped swift as lightning through the neighborhood, and the peasantry, thanks to the fact that the day was a holiday, had hurried together from all the neighboring villages. There was much commotion and talk. Here and there, pale, tear-stained faces were seen. The door of Klausov's bedroom was found locked. The key was inside. It is quite clear that the scoundrels got in by the window, said Psykov, as they examined the door. They went to the garden, into which the bedroom window opened. The window looked dark and ominous. It was covered by a faded green curtain. One corner of the curtain was slightly turned up, which made it possible to look into the bedroom. Did any of you look into the window? asked the inspector. Certainly not, your worship answered Ephraim, the gardener, a little grey-haired old man who looked like a retired sergeant. Who's going to look in, if all their bones are shaking? Ah, Marcus Ivanovich, Marcus Ivanovich, sighed the inspector, looking at the window. I told you you would come to a bad end. I told the dear man, but he wouldn't listen. Dissipation doesn't bring any good. Thanks to Ephraim, said Psykov, but for him we would never have guessed. He was the first to guess that something was wrong. He comes to me this morning and says, Why is the master so long getting up? 
"'He hasn't left his bedroom for a whole week.' "'The moment he said that, "'it was just as if someone had hit me with an axe. "'The thought flashed through my mind. "'We haven't had a sight of him since last Saturday, "'and today is Sunday. Seven whole days, not a doubt of it.' "'Aye, poor fellow,' again sighed the inspector. "'He was a clever fellow, finely educated and kind-hearted at that.' and in society nobody could touch him. But he was a waster, God rest his soul. I was prepared for anything since he refused to live with Olga Petrovna. Poor thing, a good wife, but a sharp tongue. Stephen, the inspector called to one of his deputies, go over to my house this minute and send Andrew to the captain to lodge an information with him. Tell him that Markus Ivanovich has been murdered and run over to the orderly. Why should he sit there, kicking his heels? Let him come here, and go as fast as he can to the examining magistrate, Nicholas Yamulayevich. Tell him to come over here. Wait, I'll write him a note. The inspector posted sentinels around the wing, wrote a letter to the examining magistrate, and then went over to the directors for a glass of tea. Ten minutes later he was sitting on a stool, carefully nibbling a lump of sugar, and swallowing the scalding tea. "'There you are,' he was saying to Psykov. "'There you are, a noble by birth, a rich man, a favourite of the gods, you may say, as Pushkin has it. And what did he come to? He drank and dissipated, and there you are, he's murdered.' After a couple of hours, the examining magistrate drove up. Nicholas Yamulayevich Chubikov, for that was the magistrate's name, was a tall, fleshy old man of sixty, who had been wrestling with the duties of his office for a quarter of a century. Everyone in the district knew him as an honest man, wise, energetic, and in love with his work. He was accompanied to the scene of the murder by his inveterate companion, fellow worker and secretary, Dukovsky, a tall young fellow of twenty-six. "'Is it possible, gentlemen?' cried Chubikov entering Psykov's room and quickly shaking hands with everyone. Is it possible? Markos Ivanovich murdered? No, it is impossible. Impossible. Go in there, sighed the inspector. Lord have mercy on us. Only last Friday I saw him at the fair in Farabankov. I had a drink of vodka with him. Save the mark. Go in there, again sighed the inspector. They sighed, uttered exclamations of horror, drank a glass of tea each, and went to the wing. "'Get back!' the orderly cried to the peasants. Going to the wing, the examining magistrate began his work by examining the bedroom door. The door proved to be of pine, painted yellow, and was uninjured. Nothing was found which could serve as a clue. They had to break in the door. "'Everyone not here on business is requested to keep away.' said the magistrate, when, after much hammering and shaking, the door yielded to axe and chisel. I request this in the interest of the investigation. Orderly, don't let anyone in. Trubikov, his assistant, and the inspector opened the door, and, hesitatingly, one after the other, entered the room. Their eyes met the following sight. Beside the single window stood the big wooden bed with a huge feather mattress. On the crumpled feather bed lay a tumbled, crumpled quilt. The pillow, in a cotton pillow case, also much crumpled, 
was dragging on the floor. On the table beside the bed lay a silver watch and a silver twenty kopeck piece. Beside them lay some sulfur matches. Beside the bed, the little table and the single chair, there was no furniture in the room. Looking under the bed, the inspector saw a couple of dozen empty bottles, an old straw hat, and a quart of vodka. Under the table lay one top boot covered with dust. Casting a glance around the room, the magistrate frowned and grew red in the face. Scoundrels, he muttered, clenching his fists. And where is Marcus Ivanovich? asked Dukovsky in a low voice. Mind your own business, Trubikov answered roughly. Be good enough to examine the floor. This is not the first case of the kind I have had to deal with. Yugrov Kuzmich, he said, turning to the inspector and lowering his voice. In 1870 I had another case like this. But you must remember it, the murder of the merchant Potritov. It was just the same there. The scoundrels murdered him and dragged the corpse out through the window. Chubikov went up to the window, pulled the curtain to one side, and carefully pushed the window. The window opened. It opens, you see. It wasn't fastened. Hmm. There are tracks under the window. Look, there is the track of a knee. Somebody got in there. We must examine the window thoroughly. There is nothing special to be found on the floor, said Dukovsky. No stains or scratches. The only thing I found was a struck safety match. Here it is. So far as I remember, Marcos Ivanovich did not smoke. And he always used sulfur matches, never safety matches. Perhaps this safety match may serve as a clue. Oh, do shut up, cried the magistrate deprecatingly. You go on about your match. I can't abide these dreamers. Instead of chasing matches, you had better examine the bed. After a thorough examination of the bed, Dukovsky reported, There are no spots either of blood or of anything else. There are likewise no new torn places. On the pillow there are signs of teeth. The quilt is stained with something which looks like beer and smells like beer. The general aspect of the bed gives grounds for thinking that a struggle took place on it. I know there was a struggle without your telling me. You are not being asked about a struggle. Instead of looking for struggles, you had better... Here is one top boot, but there is no sign of the other. Well, and what of that? It proves that they strangled him while he was taking his boots off. He hadn't time to take the second boot off when... There you go, and how do you know they strangled him? There are marks of teeth on the pillow. The pillow itself is badly crumpled and thrown a couple of yards from the bed. Listen to his foolishness. Better come into the garden. You would be better employed examining the garden than digging around here. I can do that without you. When they reached the garden, they began by examining the grass. The grass under the window was crushed and trampled. A bushy burdock growing under the window close to the wall was also trampled. Dukovsky succeeded in finding on it some broken twigs and a piece of cotton wool. On the upper branches were found some fine hairs of dark blue wool. What color was his last suit? Dukovsky asked Psykov. Yellow crash. Excellent. You see, they were blue. A few twigs of the burdock were cut off and carefully wrapped in paper by the investigators. At this point, Police Captain Atsuyibashev Svistakovsky and Dr. Tyutyev arrived. 
The captain bade them good day, and immediately began to satisfy his curiosity. The doctor, a tall, very lean man with dull eyes, a long nose, and a pointed chin, without greeting anyone or asking about anything, sat down on a log, sighed, and began, The Servians are at war again. What in heaven's name can they want now? Austria, it's all you're doing. The examination of the window from the outside did not supply any conclusive data. The examination of the grass and the bushes nearest to the window yielded a series of useful clues. For example, Dukovsky succeeded in discovering a long, dark streak made up of spots on the grass, which led some distance into the center of the garden. The streak ended under one of the lilac bushes in a dark brown stain. Under this same lilac bush was found the top boot, which turned out to be the fellow of the boot already found in the bedroom. That is a blood stain made some time ago, said Dukovsky, examining the spot. At the word blood, the doctor rose, and going over lazily, looked at the spot. Yes, it is blood, he muttered. That shows he wasn't strangled, if there was blood, said Trubikov, looking sarcastically at Dukovsky. They strangled him in the bedroom, and here, fearing he might come round again, they struck him a blow with some sharp-pointed instrument. The stain under the bush proves that he lay there a considerable time, while they were looking about for some way of carrying him out of the garden. Well, and how about the boot? The boot confirms completely my idea that they murdered him while he was taking his boots off before going to bed. He had already taken off one boot, and the other, this one here, he had only had time to take half off. The half-off boot came off of itself, while the body was dragged over and fell. There's a lively imagination for you, laughed Trubikov. He goes on and on like that. When will you learn enough to drop your deductions? Instead of arguing and deducing, it would be much better if you took some of the blood-stained grass for analysis. When they had finished their examination and drawn a plan of the locality, the investigators went to the director's office to write their report and have breakfast. While they were breakfasting, they went on talking. The watch, the money, and so on, all untouched, Trubikov began, leading off the talk, show as clearly as two and two are four that the murder was not committed for the purpose of robbery. The murder was committed by an educated man, insisted Dukovsky. What evidence have you of that? The safety match proves that to me, for the peasants hereabouts are not yet acquainted with safety matches. Only the landowners use them, and by no means all of them. And it is evident that there was not one murderer, but at least three. Two held him, while one killed him. Klasov was strong, and the murderers must have known it. What good would his strength be, supposing he was asleep? The murderers came on him while he was taking off his boots. If he was taking off his boots, that proves he wasn't asleep. Stop inventing your deductions. Better eat. In my opinion, your worship, said the gardener Ephraim, setting the samovar on the table, it was nobody but Nicholas who did this dirty trick. Quite possible, said Psykov. And who is Nicholas? The master's valet, your worship, answered Ephraim. Who else could it be? He is a rascal, your worship. He is a drunkard and a blackguard, the like of which heaven should not permit. He always took the master his vodka and put the master to bed. Who else could it be? And I also venture to point out to your worship, he once boasted at the public house that he would kill the master. 
It happened on account of Aquilina, the woman, you know. He was making up to a soldier's widow. She pleased the master. The master made friends with her himself, and Nicholas, naturally, he was mad. He is rolling about drunk in the kitchen now. He is crying and telling lies, saying he is sorry for the master. The examining magistrate ordered Nicholas to be brought. Nicholas, a lanky young fellow, with a long freckled nose, narrow-chested, and wearing an old jacket of his master's, entered Psykov's room, and bowed low before the magistrate. His face was sleepy and tear-stained. He was tipsy and could hardly keep his feet. "'Where is your master?' Trubikov asked him. "'Murdered, your worship.' As he said this, Nicholas blinked and began to weep. "'We know he was murdered. But where is he now? Where is his body?' They say he was dragged out of the window and buried in the garden. Hmm. The results of the investigation are known in the kitchen already. That's bad. Where were you, my good fellow, the night the master was murdered? Saturday night, that is. Nicholas raised his head, stretched his neck, and began to think. I don't know, your worship, he said. I was drunk and don't remember. An alibi whispered Dukovsky, smiling and rubbing his hands. So, and why is there blood under the master's window? Nicholas jerked his head up and considered. Hurry up, said the captain of police. Right away. That blood doesn't amount to anything, your worship. I was cutting a chicken's throat. I was doing it quite simply, in the usual way, when all of a sudden it broke away and started to run. That is where the blood came from. Ephraim declared that Nicholas did kill a chicken every evening, and always in some new place, but that nobody ever heard of a half-killed chicken running about the garden, though of course it wasn't impossible. An alibi, sneered Dukovsky, and what an asinine alibi. Did you know Aquilina? Yes, your worship, I know her. And the master cut you out with her? Not at all. He cut me out, Mr. Psykov here, Ivan Mikhailovich. And the master cut Ivan Mikhailovich out. That is how it was. Psykov grew confused and began to scratch his left eye. Dukovsky looked at him attentively, noted his confusion, and started. He noticed that the director had dark blue trousers, which he had not observed before. The trousers reminded him of the dark blue threads found on the burdock. Trubikov, in his turn, glanced suspiciously at Psykov. Go, he said to Nicholas. And now permit me to put a question to you, Mr. Psykov. Of course you were here last Saturday evening? Yes, I had supper with Markos Ivanovich about ten o'clock. And afterwards? 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 Really, I do not remember, stammered Psykov. I had a good deal to drink at supper. I don't remember when or where I went to sleep. Why are you all looking at me like that, as if I was the murderer? Where were you when you woke up? I was in the servants' kitchen, lying behind the stove. They can all confirm it. How I got behind the stove, I don't know. Do not get agitated. Do you know Aquilina? There's nothing extraordinary about that. She first liked you, and then preferred Klausov? Yes. Ephraim, give us some more mushrooms. Do you want some more tea, Yugrov Kuzmich? A heavy oppressive silence began and lasted fully five minutes. Dukovsky silently kept his piercing eyes fixed on Psykov's pale face. The silence was finally broken by the examining magistrate. 
We must go to the house and talk with Maria Ivanovna, the sister of the deceased. Perhaps she may be able to supply some clues. Trubikov and his assistant expressed their thanks for the breakfast and went toward the house. They found Klasov's sister, Maria Ivanovna, an old maid of forty-five, at prayer before the big case of family icons. When she saw the portfolios in her guests' hands and their official caps, she grew pale. Let me begin by apologizing for disturbing, so to speak, your devotions, began the gallant Chubikov, bowing and scraping. We have come to you with a request. Of course, you have heard already. There is a suspicion that your dear brother, in some way or other, has been murdered. The will of God, you know. No one can escape death, neither Tsar nor Plowman. Could you not help us with some clue, some explanation? Oh, don't ask me, said Maria Ivanovna, growing still paler and covering her face with her hands. I can tell you nothing, nothing. I beg you, I know nothing. What can I do? Oh, no, no, not a word about my brother. If I die, I won't say anything. Maria Ivanovna began to weep and left the room. The investigators looked at each other, shrugged their shoulders and beat a retreat. Confound the woman, scolded Dukovsky, going out of the house. It is clear she knows something and is concealing it. And the chambermaid has a queer expression too. Wait, you wretches, we'll ferret it all out. In the evening, Chubikov and his deputy, lit on their road by the pale moon, wended their way homeward. They sat in their carriage and thought over the results of the day. Both were tired and kept silent. Chubikov was always unwilling to talk while traveling, and the talkative Dukovsky remained silent to fall in with the elder man's humor. But at the end of their journey, the deputy could hold in no longer, and said, It is quite certain, he said, that Nicholas had something to do with the matter. Non dubitandum est. You can see by his face what sort of a case he is. His alibi betrays him, body and bones. But it is also certain that he did not see the thing going. He was only the stupid hired tool. Do you agree? And the humble Psykov was not without some slight share in the matter. His dark blue breeches, his agitation, his lying behind the stove in terror after the murder, his alibi and Aquilina. Grind away, Emilian, it's your week. So, according to you, whoever knew Aquilina is the murderer? Hothead. You ought to be sucking a bottle and not handling affairs. You were one of Aquilina's admirers yourself. Does it follow that you are implicated too? Aquilina was cook in your house for a month. I am saying nothing about that. The night before that Saturday I was playing cards with you and saw you. Otherwise I should be after you too. It isn't the woman that matters, old chap. It is the mean, nasty, low spirit of jealousy that matters. The retiring young man was not pleased when they got the better of him, you see. His vanity, don't you see? He wanted revenge. Then those thick lips of his suggest passion. So there you have it. Wounded self-love and passion. That is quite enough motive for a murder. We have two of them in our hands, but who is the third? Nicholas and Psykov held him, but who smothered him? Psykov is shy, timid, an all-round coward. And Nicholas would not know how to smother with a pillow. His sort used an axe or a club. Some third person did the smothering, but who was it? Dukovsky crammed his hand down over his eyes and pondered. 
He remained silent until the carriage rolled up to the magistrate's door. Eureka, he said, entering the little house and throwing off his overcoat. Eureka, Nikolas Yemolayevich. The only thing I can't understand is how it did not occur to me sooner. Do you know who the third person was? Oh, for goodness sake, shut up. There is supper. Sit down to your evening meal. The magistrate and Dukovsky sat down to supper. Dukovsky poured himself out a glass of vodka, rose, drew himself up, and said with sparkling eyes, Well, learn that the third person who acted in concert with that scoundrel Psykov and did the smothering was a woman. Yes. I mean the murdered man's sister, Maria Ivanovna. Trubikov choked over his vodka and fixed his eyes on Dukovsky. You aren't, what's its name? Your head isn't, what do you call it? You haven't a pain in it? I am perfectly well. Very well, let us say I am crazy. But how do you explain her confusion when we appeared? How do you explain her unwillingness to give us any information? Let us admit that these are trifles. Very well, all right. But remember their relations. She detested her brother. She never forgave him for living apart from his wife. She is of the old faith, while in her eyes he is a godless profligate. There is where the germ of her hate was hatched. They say he succeeded in making her believe that he was an angel of Satan. He even went in for spiritualism in her presence. Well, what of that? You don't understand? She, as a member of the old faith, murdered him through fanaticism. It was not only that she was putting to death a weed, a profligate. She was freeing the world of an antichrist. And there, in her opinion, was her service, her religious achievement. Oh, you don't know those old maids of the old faith? Read Dostoevsky. And what does Lyskov say about them, or Pachersky? It was she, and nobody else, even if you cut me open. She smothered him. Oh, treacherous woman, wasn't that the reason why she was kneeling before the icons when we came in, just to take our attention away? Let me kneel down and pray, she said to herself, and they will think I am tranquil and did not expect them. That is the plan of all novices in crime. Nicholas Yemolayevich, old pal. My dear old man, won't you entrust this business to me? Let me personally bring it through. Friend, I began it, and I will finish it. Trubikov shook his head and frowned. We know how to manage difficult matters ourselves, he said, and your business is not to push yourself in where you don't belong. Write from dictation when you are dictated to. That is your job. Dukovsky flared up, banged the door, and disappeared. Clever rascal, muttered Chubikov, glancing after him. Awfully clever, but too much of a hothead. I must buy him a cigar case at the fair as a present. The next day, early in the morning, a young man with a big head and a pursed-up mouth, who came from Klasov's place, was introduced to the magistrate's office. He said he was the shepherd Daniel, and brought a very interesting piece of information. I was a bit drunk, he said. I was with my pal till midnight. On my way home, as I was drunk, I went into the river for a bath. I was taking a bath when I looked up. Two men were walking along the dam, carrying something black. Shoo! I cried at them. They got scared and went off like the wind toward Makarev's cabbage garden. Strike me dead if they weren't carrying away the master. That same day, toward evening, Psykov and Nicholas were arrested and brought under guard to the district town. 
In the town they were committed to the cells of the prison. Part 2 A fortnight passed. It was morning. The magistrate Nicholas Yamalayevich was sitting in his office before a green table, turning over the papers of the Klausov case. Tukovsky was striding restlessly up and down like a wolf in a cage. You are convinced of the guilt of Nicholas and Psykov, he said, nervously plucking at his young beard. Why will you not believe in the guilt of Maria Ivanovna? Are there not proofs enough for you? I don't say I am not convinced. I am convinced, but somehow I don't believe it. There are no real proofs, but just a kind of philosophizing, fanaticism, this and that. You can't do without an axe and blood-stained sheets. Those jurists... Very well, I'll prove it to you. You will stop sneering at the psychological side of the affair. To Siberia with your Maria Ivanovna. I will prove it. If philosophy is not enough for you, I have something substantial for you. It will show you how correct my philosophy is. Just give me permission. What are you going on about? About the safety match. Have you forgotten it? I haven't. I'm going to find out who struck it in the murdered man's room. It was not Nicholas that struck it, it was not Psykov, for neither of them had any matches when they were examined. It was the third person, Maria Ivanovna. I will prove it to you. Just give me permission to go through the district to find out. That's enough. Sit down. Let's go on with the examination. Dukovsky sat down at a little table and plunged his long nose in a bundle of papers. Bring in Nicholas Tetikov, cried the examining magistrate. They brought Nicholas in. Nicholas was pale and thin as a rail. He was trembling. Tetikov, began Trubikov. In 1879 you were tried in the court of the first division, convicted of theft and sentenced to imprisonment. In 1882 you were tried a second time for theft and were again imprisoned. We know all. Astonishment was depicted in Nicholas's face. The examining magistrate's omniscience startled him but soon his expression of astonishment changed to extreme indignation. He began to cry and requested permission to go and wash his face and quiet down. They led him away. Bring in Psykov, ordered the examining magistrate. They brought in Psykov. The young man had changed greatly during the last few days. He had grown thin and pale and looked haggard. His eyes had an apathetic expression. Sit down, Psykov, said Trubikov. I hope that today you are going to be reasonable and will not tell lies as you did before. All these days you have denied that you had anything to do with the murder of Klausov, in spite of all the proofs that testify against you. That is foolish. Confession will lighten your guilt. This is the last time I'm going to talk to you. If you do not confess today, tomorrow it will be too late. Come, tell me all. I know nothing about it. I know nothing about your proofs answered Psykov almost inaudibly. It's no use. Well, let me relate to you how the matter took place. On Saturday evening you were sitting in Klausov's sleeping room and drinking vodka and beer with him. Dukovsky fixed his eyes on Psykov's face and kept them there all through the examination. Nicholas was waiting on you. At one o'clock, Markos Ivanovich announced his intention of going to bed. He always went to bed at one o'clock. When he was taking off his boots and was giving you directions about details of management, you and Nicholas, at a given signal, 
seized your drunken master and threw him on the bed. One of you sat on his legs, the other on his head. Then a third person came in from the passage, a woman in a black dress, whom you know well, and who had previously arranged with you as to her share in your criminal deed. She seized a pillow and began to smother him. While the struggle was going on, the candle went out. The woman took a box of safety matches from her pocket and lit the candle. Was it not so? I see by your face that I am speaking the truth. But to go on, after you had smothered him and saw that he had ceased breathing, you and Nicholas pulled him through the window and laid him down near the burdock. Fearing that he might come round again, you struck him with something sharp. Then you carried him away and laid him down under a lilac bush for a short time. After resting a while and considering, you carried him across the fence. Then you entered the road. After that comes the dam. Near the dam, a peasant frightened you. Well, what is the matter with you? I am suffocating, replied Psykov. Very well, have it so. Only let me go out, please. They led Psykov away. At last, he has confessed, cried Chubikov, stretching himself luxuriously. He has betrayed himself, and didn't I get round him cleverly? Regularly caught him napping. And he doesn't deny the woman in the black dress, exulted Dukovsky. But all the same, that safety match is tormenting me frightfully. I can't stand it any longer. Goodbye, I am off. Dukovsky put on his cap and drove off. Tubikov began to examine Aquilina. Aquilina declared that she knew nothing whatever about it. At six that evening, Dukovsky returned. He was more agitated than he had ever been before. His hands trembled so that he could not even unbutton his greatcoat. His cheeks glowed. It was clear that he did not come empty-handed. Veni vidivici, he cried, rushing into Tubikov's room and falling into an armchair. I swear to you on my honor, I begin to believe that I am a genius. Listen, devil take us all. It is funny and it is sad. We have caught three already, isn't that so? Well, I have found the fourth, and a woman at that. You will never believe who it is. But listen, I went to Klausov's village and began to make a spiral round it. I visited all the little shops, public houses, dram shops on the road, everywhere asking for safety matches. Everywhere they said they hadn't any. I made a wide round. Twenty times I lost faith, and twenty times I got back again. I knocked about the whole day, and only an hour ago I got on the track, three versts from here. They gave me a packet of ten boxes. One box was missing. Immediately, who bought the other box? Such a one. She was pleased with them. Old man, Nicholas Yemulayevich. see what a fellow who was expelled from the seminary and who has read Gaborio can do. From today on, I begin to respect myself. Oof, well, come. Come where? To her, to number four. We must hurry, otherwise, otherwise I'll burst with impatience. Do you know who she is? You'll never guess. Olga Petrovna. Marcus Ivanovich's wife. His own wife. That's who it is. She is the person who bought the matchbox. You, you, you are out of your mind. It's quite simple. To begin with, she smokes. Secondly, she was head and ears in love with Klausov, even after he refused to live in the same house with her, because she was always scolding his head off. Why, they say she used to beat him because she loved him so much. And then he positively refused to stay in the same house. Love turned sour. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. 
But come along quick or it will be dark. Come. I am not yet sufficiently crazy to go and disturb a respectable, honorable woman in the middle of the night for a crazy boy. Respectable, honorable. Do honorable women murder their husbands? After that you are a rag and not an examining magistrate. I never ventured to call you names before, but now you compel me to. Rag, dressing gown. Dear Nicholas Yamolayevich, do come, I beg of you. The magistrate made a deprecating motion with his hand. I beg of you. I ask not for myself, but in the interests of justice. I beg you, I implore you. Do what I ask you to, just this once. Dukovsky went down on his knees. Nicholas Yamolayevich, be kind. Call me a blackguard and ne'er do well if I am mistaken about this woman. You see what an affair it is, what a case it is, a romance, a woman murdering her own husband for love. The fame of it will go all over Russia. They will make an investigator in all important cases. Understand, O oh foolish old man. The magistrate frowned and undecidedly stretched his hand toward his cap. Oh, the devil take you, he said. Let us go. It was dark when the magistrate's carriage rolled up to the porch of the old country house in which Olga Petrovna had taken refuge with her brother. What pigs we are, said Trubikov, taking hold of the bell, to disturb a poor woman like this. It's all right, it's all right. Don't get frightened. We can say that we have broken a spring. Trubikov and Dukovsky were met at the threshold by a tall buxom woman of three and twenty, with pitch-black brows and juicy red lips. It was Olga Petrovna herself, apparently not in the least distressed by the recent tragedy. Oh, what a pleasant surprise, she said, smiling broadly. You are just in time for supper. Kuzma Petrovich is not at home. He is visiting the priest and has stayed late. But we'll get on without him. Be seated. You have come from the examination? Yes. We broke a spring, you know, began Trubikov, entering the sitting room and sinking into an armchair. Take her unawares at once, whispered Dukovsky. Take her unawares. A spring, hum, yes, so we came in. Take her unawares, I tell you. She will guess what the matter is if you drag things out like that. Well, do it yourself as you want, but let me get out of it, muttered, Ch muttered Chubikov, rising and going to the window. Yes, a spring, began Dukovsky, going close to Olga Petrovna and wrinkling his long nose. We did not drive over here to take supper with you or to see Kuzma Petrovich. We came here to ask you, respected madam, where Marcos Ivanovich is, whom you murdered. What? Marcos Ivanovich murdered? stammered Olga Petrovna, and her broad face suddenly and instantaneously flushed bright scarlet. I don't understand. I ask you in the name of the law, where is Klausov? We know all. Who told you? Olga Petrovna asked in a low voice, unable to endure Dukovsky's glance. Be so good as to show us where he is. But how did you find out? Who told you? We know all. I demand it in the name of the law. The examining magistrate, emboldened by her confusion, came forward and said, Show us and we will go away. Otherwise we... What do you want with him? Madam, what is the use of these questions? We ask you to show us. You tremble, you are agitated. 
Yes, he has been murdered, and if you must have it, murdered by you. Your accomplices have betrayed you. Olga Petrovna grew pale. Come, she said in a low voice, wringing her hands. I have him hid in the bathhouse. Only for heaven's sake, do not tell Kuzma Petrovich. I beg and implore you, he will never forgive me. Olga Petrovna took down a big key from the wall and led her guests through the kitchen and passage to the courtyard. The courtyard was in darkness. Fine rain was falling. Olga Petrovna walked in advance of them. Chubikov and Dukovsky strode behind her through the long grass as the odor of wild hemp and dishwater splashing under their feet reached them. The courtyard was wide. Soon the dishwater ceased and they felt freshly broken earth under their feet. In the darkness appeared the shadowy outlines of trees and among the trees a little house with a crooked chimney. That is the bathhouse, said Olga Petrovna. But I implore you, do not tell my brother. If you do, I'll never hear the end of it. Going up to the bathhouse, Trubikov and Dukovsky saw a huge padlock on the door. Get your candle and matches ready, whispered the examining magistrate to his deputy. Olga Petrovna unfastened the padlock and let her guests into the bathhouse. Dukovsky struck a match and lit up the anteroom. In the middle of the anteroom stood a table. On the table, beside the sturdy little samovar, stood a soup tureen with old cabbage soup and a plate with the remnants of some sauce. Forward! They went into the next room, where the bath was. There was a table there also. On the table was a dish with some ham, a bottle of vodka, plates, knives, forks. But where is it? Where is the murdered man? asked the examining magistrate. On the top tier, whispered Olga Petrovna, still pale and trembling. Dukovsky took the candle in his hand and climbed up to the top tier of the sweating frame. There he saw a long human body lying motionless on a large feather bed. A slight snore came from the body. You are making fun of us, devil take it, cried Dukovsky. That is not the murdered man. Some live fool is lying here. Here, whoever you are, the devil take you. The body drew in a quick breath and stirred. Dukovsky stuck his elbow into it. It raised a hand, stretched itself and lifted its head. Who is sneaking in here? he asked in a hoarse, heavy bass. What do you want? Dukovsky raised the candle to the face of the unknown and cried out. In the red nose, disheveled, unkempt hair, the pitch-black moustaches, one of which was jauntily twisted and pointed insolently toward the ceiling, he recognized the gallant cavalryman, Klausov. You, Markus Ivanovich? Is it possible? The examining magistrate glanced sharply up at him and stood spellbound. Yes, it is I. That's you, Dukovsky? What the devil do you want here? And who's that other mug down there? Great snakes, it's the examining magistrate. What fate has brought him here? Klasov rushed down and threw his arms round Chubikov in a cordial embrace. Olga Petrovna slipped through the door. How did you come here? Let's have a drink, devil take it. Chatatitotum, chatatitotum, let us drink. But who brought you here? How did you find out that I was here? But it doesn't matter, let's have a drink. Klasov lit the lamp and poured out three glasses of vodka. That is, I don't understand you said the examining magistrate, running his hands over him. Is this you or not you? Oh, shut up. 
You want to preach me a sermon? Don't trouble yourself. Young Dukovsky, empty your glass. Friends, let us bring this. What are you looking at? Drink. All the same, I do not understand, said the examining magistrate, mechanically drinking off the vodka. What are you here for? Why shouldn't I be here if I am all right here? Klasov drained his glass and took a bite of ham. I am in captivity here, as you see, in solitude in a cavern like a ghost or a bogey. Drink. She carried me off and locked me up and, well, I am living here in the deserted bathhouse like a hermit. I am fed. Next week I think I'll try to get out. I'm tired of it here. Incomprehensible, said Dukovsky. What is incomprehensible about it? Incomprehensible. For heaven's sake, how did your boot get into the garden? What boot? We found one boot in the sleeping room and the other in the garden. And what do you want to know that for? It's none of your business. Why don't you drink, devil take you? If you wakened me, then drink with me. It is an interesting tale, brother, that of the boot. I didn't want to go with Olga. I don't like to be bossed. She came under the window and began to abuse me. She always was a termagant. You know what women are like, all of them. I was a bit drunk, so I took a boot and heaved it at her. Ha ha ha! Cheat her not a scold another time. But it didn't, not a bit of it. She climbed in at the window, lit the lamp and began to hammer poor tipsy me. She thrashed me, dragged me over here and locked me in. She feeds me now on love, vodka and ham. But where are you off to, Chubikov? Where are you going? The examining magistrate swore and left the bathhouse. Dukovsky followed him, crestfallen. They silently took their seats in the carriage and drove off. The road never seemed to them so long and disagreeable as it did that time. Both remained silent. Trubikov trembled with rage all the way. Dukovsky hid his nose in the collar of his overcoat, as if he was afraid that the darkness and the drizzling rain might read the shame in his face. When they reached home, the examining magistrate found Dr. Tyutyev awaiting him. The doctor was sitting at the table and, sighing deeply, was turning over the pages of the Neva. Such goings on there are in the world, he said, meeting the examining magistrate with a sad smile. Austria is at it again, and Gladstone also to some extent. Trubikov threw his cap under the table and shook himself. Devil skeletons, don't you plague me. A thousand times I have told you not to bother me with your politics. This is no question of politics. And you, said Trubikov, turning to Dukovsky and shaking his fist, I won't forget this in a thousand years. But the safety match, how could I know? Choke yourself with your safety match. Get out of my way. Don't make me mad or the devil only knows what I'll do to you. Dukovsky sighed, took his hat and went out. I'll go and get drunk, he decided, going through the door and gloomily wending his way to the public house. End of The Safety Match by Anton Chekhov Recorded by Gazina in October 2007《A Scandal in Bohemia》by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. 
A Scandal in Bohemia by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle From the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes To Sherlock Holmes she is always the woman. I have seldom heard him mention her under any other name. In his eyes she eclipses and predominates the whole of her sex. It was not that he felt any emotion akin to love for Irene Adler. All emotions, and that one particularly, were abhorrent to his cold, precise, but admirably balanced mind. He was, I take it, the most perfect reasoning and observing machine that the world has seen. But as a lover he would have placed himself in a false position. He never spoke of the softer passions, save with a jibe and a sneer. They were admirable things for the observer, excellent for drawing the veil from men's motives and actions, but for the trained reasoner to admit such intrusions into his own delicate and finely adjusted temperament was to introduce a distracting factor which might throw a doubt upon all his mental results. Grit in a sensitive instrument or a crack in one of his own high-power lenses would not be more disturbing than a strong emotion in a nature such as his. And yet there was but one woman to him, and that woman was the late Irene Adler, of dubious and questionable memory. I had seen little of Holmes lately. My marriage had drifted us away from each other. My own complete happiness and the home-centered interests which rise up around the man who first finds himself master of his own establishment were sufficient to absorb all my attention, while Holmes, who loathed every form of society with his whole bohemian soul, remained in our lodgings in Baker Street, buried among his old books, and alternating from week to week between cocaine and ambition, the drowsiness of the drug, and the fierce energy of his own keen nature. He was still, as ever, deeply attracted by the study of crime, and occupied his immense faculties and extraordinary powers of observation in following out those clues and clearing up those mysteries which had been abandoned as hopeless by the official police. From time to time I heard some vague account of his doings, of his summons to Odessa in the case of the Trepoff murder, of his clearing up of the singular tragedy of the Atkinson brothers at Trincomalee, and finally of the mission which he had accomplished so delicately and successfully for the reigning family of Holland. Beyond these signs of his activity, however, which I merely share with all the readers of the daily press, I knew little of my former friend and companion. One night, it was on the 20th of March, 1888, I was returning from a journey to a patient, for I had now returned to civil practice, when my way led me through Baker Street. As I passed the well-remembered door, which must always be associated in my mind with my wooing and with the dark incidents of the study in Scarlet, I was seized with a keen desire to see Holmes again and to know how he was employing his extraordinary powers. His rooms were brilliantly lit, and even as I looked up I saw his tall, spare figure pass twice in a dark silhouette against the blind. He was pacing the room swiftly, eagerly, with his head sunk upon his breast and his hands clasped behind him. To me, who knew his every mood and habit, his attitude and manner told their own story. He was at work again. He had risen out of his drug-created dreams and was hot upon the scent of some new problem. I rang the bell and was shown up to the chamber which had formerly been in part my own. His manner was not effusive, it seldom was, but he was glad, I think, to see me. With hardly a word spoken but with a kindly eye, he waved me to an armchair, 
threw across his case of cigars and indicated a spirit case and a gasogeny in the corner. Then he stood before the fire and looked me over in his singular introspective fashion. Wedlock suit you, he remarked. I think, Watson, that you have put on seven and a half pounds since I saw you. Seven, I answered. Indeed, I should have thought a little more. Just a trifle more, I fancy, Watson. And in practice again, I observed. You did not tell me that you intended to go into a harness. Then how do you know? I see it. I deduce it. How do I know that you have been getting yourself very wet lately, and that you have a most clumsy and careless servant girl? My dear Holmes, said I, this is too much. You would certainly have been burned had you lived a few centuries ago. It is true that I had a country walk on Thursday, and came home in a dreadful mass. But as I have changed my clothes, I can't imagine how you deduce it. As to Mary Jane, she is incorrigible, and my wife has given her notice. But there again I fail to see how you work it out. He chuckled to himself, and rubbed his long, nervous hands together. It is simplicity itself, said he. My eyes tell me that on the inside of your left shoe, just where the firelight strikes it, the leather is scored by six almost parallel cuts. Obviously they have been caused by someone who has very carelessly scraped round the edges of the sole in order to remove crusted mud from it. Hence you see my double deduction that you had been out in vile weather, and that you had a particularly malignant boot-slitting specimen of the London slavey. As to your practice, if a gentleman walks into my room smelling of idioform, with a black mark of nitrate of silver upon his right forefinger, and a bulge on the right side of his top hat, to show where he has secreted his stethoscope, I must be dull indeed if I do not pronounce him to be an active member of the medical profession. I could not help laughing at the ease with which he explained his process of deduction. When I hear you give your reasons, I remarked, the thing always appears to me to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself, though at each successive instance of your reasoning I am baffled until you explain your process, and yet I believe that my eyes are quite as good as yours. Quite so, he answered, lighting a cigarette, and throwing himself down into an armchair. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. For example, you have frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room. Frequently? How often? Well, some hundreds of times. Then how many are there? How many? I don't know. Quite so. You have not observed. And yet you have seen. That is just my point. Now I know that there are seventeen steps, because I have both seen and observed. By the way, since you are interested in these little problems, and since you are good enough to chronicle one or two of my trifling experiences, you may be interested in this. He threw over a sheet of thick, pink-tinted notepaper, which had been lying open upon the table. It came by the last post, said he. Read it aloud. The note was undated and without either signature or address. There will call upon you tonight at a quarter to eight o'clock, it said a gentleman who desires to consult you upon a matter of the very deepest moment. Your recent services to one of the royal houses of Europe have shown that you are one who may safely be trusted with matters which are of an importance which can hardly be exaggerated. This account of you we have from all quarters received. 
Be in your chamber, then, at that hour, and do not take it amiss if your visitor wear a mask. This is indeed a mystery, I remarked. What do you imagine that it means? I have no data yet. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. But the note itself, what do you deduce from it? I carefully examined the writing and the paper upon which it was written. The man who wrote it was presumably well-to-do, I remarked, endeavoring to imitate my companion's processes. Such paper could not be bought under half a crown a packet. It is peculiarly strong and stiff. Peculiar, uh, that is the very word, said Holmes. It is not an English paper at all. Hold it up to the light. I did so, and saw a large E with a small G, a P and a large G with a small T woven into the texture of the paper. What do you make of that? asked Holmes. The name of the maker, no doubt, or his monogram, rather. Not at all. The G with the small T stands for Gesellschaft, which is the German for company. It is a customary contraction like our CO. P, of course, stands for papier. Now for the EG. Let us glance at our Continental Gazetteer. He took down a heavy brown volume from his shelves. Iglo, Eglonitz, uh, here we are, Egria. It is in a German-speaking country in Bohemia, not far from Carlsbad. Remarkable as being the scene of the death of Wallenstein, and for its numerous glass factories and paper mills. Ha-ha, my boy, what do you make of that? His eyes sparkled, and he sent up a great blue triumphant cloud from his cigarette. The paper was made in Bohemia, I said. Precisely. And the man who wrote the note is a German. Do you note the peculiar construction of the sentence? This account of you we have from all quarters received? A Frenchman or Russian could not have written that. It is the German who is so uncourteous to his verbs. It only remains, therefore, to discover what is wanted by this German who writes upon bohemian paper and prefers wearing a mask to showing his face. And here he comes, if I am not mistaken, to resolve all our doubts. As he spoke, there was the sharp sound of horses' hoofs and grating wheels against the curb, followed by a sharp pull at the bell. Holmes whistled. A pair by the sound, said he. Yes, he continued, glancing out the window. A nice little bruffum and a pair of beauties, a hundred and fifty guineas apiece. There's money in this case, Watson, if there is nothing else. I think that I had better go, Holmes. Not a bit, doctor. Stay where you are. I am lost without my Boswell, and this promises to be interesting. It would be a pity to miss it. But your client... Never mind him. I may want your help, and so may he. Here he comes. Sit down in that armchair, doctor, and give us your best attention. A slow and heavy step, which had been heard upon the stairs and in the passage, paused immediately outside the door. Then there was a loud and authoritative tap. Come in, said Holmes. A man entered, who could hardly have been less than six feet six inches in height, with the chest and limbs of a Hercules. His dress, which was rich with a richness which would in England be looked upon as akin to bad taste, 
Heavy bands of astrakhan were slashed across the sleeves and fronts of his double-breasted coat, while the deep blue cloak which was thrown over his shoulders was lined with a flame-colored silk and secured at the neck with a brooch which consisted of a single flaming barrel. Boots, which extended halfway up his calves and which were trimmed at the tops with rich brown fur, completed the impression of barbaric opulence, which was suggested by his whole appearance. He carried a broad-brimmed hat in his hand, while he wore across the upper part of his face, extending down past the cheekbones, a black vizard mask, which he had apparently adjusted that very moment, for his hand was still raised to it as he entered. From the lower part of the face he appeared to be a man of strong character, with a thick hanging lip and a long straight chin suggestive of resolution pushed to the length of obstinacy. "'You had my note?' he asked with a deep, harsh voice and strongly marked German accent. "'I told you that I would call.' He looked from one to the other of us, as if uncertain which to address. "'Pray take a seat,' said Holmes. "'This is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson, who is occasionally good enough to help me in my cases. Whom have I the honor to address? You may address me as Count von Kram, a bohemian nobleman.' I understand that this gentleman, your friend, is a man of honor and discretion, whom I may trust with a matter of the most extreme importance. If not, I should much prefer to communicate with you alone. I rose to go, but Holmes caught me by the wrist and pushed me back into my chair. It is both or none, said he. You may say before this gentleman anything which you may say to me. The Count shrugged his broad shoulders. Then I must begin, said he, by binding you both to absolute secrecy for two years. At the end of that time the matter will be of no importance. At present it is not too much to say that it is of such weight it may have an influence upon European history. I promise, said Holmes, and I. You will excuse this mask, continued our strange visitor. The august person who employs me wishes his agent to be unknown to you, and I may confess at once that the title by which I have just called myself is not exactly my own. I was aware of it, said Holmes dryly. The circumstances are of great delicacy, and every precaution has to be taken to quench what might grow to be an immense scandal and seriously compromise one of the reigning families of Europe. To speak plainly, the matter implicates the great house of Ormstein, hereditary kings of Bohemia. I was also aware of that, murmured Holmes, settling himself down in his armchair and closing his eyes. Our visitor glanced with some apparent surprise at the languid lounging figure of the man who had been no doubt depicted to him as the most incisive reasoner and most energetic agent in Europe. Holmes slowly reopened his eyes and looked impatiently at his gigantic client. "'If your majesty would condescend to state your case,' he remarked, "'I should be better able to advise you.' The man sprang from his chair and paced up and down the room in uncontrollable agitation. Then, with a gesture of desperation, he tore the mask from his face and hurled it upon the ground. "'You are right,' he cried. "'I am the king. Why should I attempt to conceal it?' "'Why, indeed,' murmured Holmes. "'Your Majesty had not spoken before. "'I was aware that I was addressing "'Wilhelm Gottsreich Sigismond von Ormstein.' 
Grand Duke of Kasselfelstein, and hereditary king of Bohemia. But you can understand, said our strange visitor, sitting down once more and passing his hand over his high white forehead, you can understand that I am not accustomed to doing such business in my own person. Yet the matter was so delicate that I could not confide it to an agent without putting myself in his power. I have come incognito from Prague for the purpose of consulting you. Then pray consult, said Holmes, shutting his eyes once more. The facts are briefly these. Some five years ago, during a lengthy visit to Warsaw, I made the acquaintance of the well-known adventuress Irene Adler. The name is no doubt familiar to you. Kindly look her up in my index, doctor, murmured Holmes without opening his eyes. For many years he had adopted a system of docketing all paragraphs concerning men and things, so that it was difficult to name a subject or a person on which he could not at once furnish information. In this case I found her biography sandwiched in between that of a Hebrew rabbi and that of a staff commander who had written a monograph upon the deep-sea fishes. Let me see, said Holmes. Hmm. Born in New Jersey in the year 1858. Contralto. Hmm. La Hmm. Prima Donna, Imperial Opera of Warsaw. Yes. Retired from operatic stage. Ha. Ah, living in London. Quite so. Your Majesty, as I understand, became entangled with this young person, wrote her some compromising letters, and is now desirous of getting those letters back. Precisely so. But how? Was there a secret marriage? None. No legal papers or certificates? None. Then I fail to follow your majesty. If this young person should produce her letters for blackmailing or other purposes, how is she to prove their authenticity? There is the writing. Poo-foo. Forgery. My private notepaper. Stolen. My own seal. Imitated. My photograph. But we were both in the photograph. Oh, dear, that is very bad. Your Majesty has indeed committed an indiscretion. I was mad, insane. You have compromised yourself seriously. I was only a crown prince then. I was young. I am but thirty now. It must be recovered. We have tried and failed. Your Majesty must pay. It must be bought. She will not sell. Stolen, then. Five attempts have been made. Twice burglars in my pay ransacked her house. Once we diverted her luggage when she traveled. Twice she has been waylaid. There has been no result. No sign of it? Absolutely none. Holmes laughed. It is quite a pretty little problem, said he. But a very serious one to me, returned the king reproachfully. Very, indeed. And what does she propose to do with the photograph? To ruin me? But how? I am about to be married. So I have heard. To Clotilda Lofman von Saxe-Meningen, second daughter of the King of Scandinavia. You may know the strict principles of her family. She is herself the very soul of delicacy. A shadow of a doubt as to my conduct would bring the matter to an end. And Irene Adler, 
threatens to send them the photograph, and she will do it. I know that she will do it. You do not know her, but she has a soul of steel. She has the face of the most beautiful of women, and the mind of the most resolute of men. Rather than I should marry another woman, there are no lengths to which she would not go. None. You are sure that she has not sent it yet? I am sure. And why? Because she has said that she would send it on the day when the betrothal was publicly proclaimed. That will be next Monday. Oh, then we have three days yet, said Holmes with a yawn. That is very fortunate, as I have one or two matters of importance to look into just at present. Your Majesty will, of course, stay in London for the present? Certainly. You will find me at the Langham under the name of the Count von Kram. Then I shall drop you a line to let you know how we progress. Pray do so. I shall be all anxiety. Uh, then as to the money. You have carte blanche. Absolutely. I tell you that I would give one of the provinces of my kingdom to have that photograph. And for present expenses. The king took a heavy chamois leather bag from under his cloak and laid it on the table. There are three hundred pounds in gold and seven hundred in notes, he said. Holmes scribbled a receipt upon a sheet of his notebook and handed it to him. And Mademoiselle's address, he asked, is Briony Lodge, Serpentine Avenue, St. John's Wood. Holmes took a note of it. One other question, said he. Was the photograph a cabinet? It was. Then good night, Your Majesty, and I trust that we shall soon have some good news for you. And good night, Watson, he added as the wheels of the Royal Bruffham rolled down the street. If you will be good enough to call tomorrow afternoon at three o'clock, I should like to chat this little matter over with you. At three o'clock, precisely, I was at Baker Street, but Holmes had not yet returned. The landlady informed me that he had left the house shortly after eight o'clock in the morning. I sat down beside the fire, however, with the intention of awaiting him, however long he might be. I was already deeply interested in his inquiry, for though it was surrounded by none of the grim and strange features which were associated with the two crimes which I have already recorded, still the nature of the case and the exalted station of his client gave it a character of its own. Indeed, apart from the nature of the investigation which my friend had on hand, there was something in his masterly grasp of a situation and his keen incisive reasoning which made it a pleasure to me to study his system of work and to follow the quick, subtle methods by which he disentangled the most inextricable mysteries. So accustomed was I to his invariable success that the very possibility of his failing had ceased to enter into my head. It was close upon four before the door opened, and a drunken-looking groom, ill-kempt and side-whiskered with an inflamed face and disreputable clothes, walked into the room. Accustomed as I was to my friend's amazing powers in the use of disguises, I had to look three times before I was certain that it was indeed he. With a nod he vanished into the bedroom, whence he emerged in five minutes, tweed-suited and respectable, as of old. Putting his hands into his pockets, he stretched out his legs in front of the fire, and laughed heartily for some minutes. "'Well, really,' he cried, and then choked and laughed again until he was obliged to lie back, limp and helpless in the chair. "'What is it?' 
It's quite too funny. I am sure you could never guess how I employed my morning, or what I ended by doing. I can't imagine. I suppose that you have been watching the habits, and perhaps the house, of Miss Irene Adler. Quite so, but the sequel was rather unusual. I will tell you, however. I left the house a little after eight o'clock this morning in the character of a groom out of work. There is a wonderful sympathy and Freemasonry among horsey men. Be one of them, and you will know all that there is to know. I soon found Briony Lodge. It is a bijou villa, with a garden at the back, but built out in front right up to the road, two stories, chub block to the door, large sitting-room on the right side, well furnished, with long windows almost to the floor, and those preposterous English window-fasteners which a child could open. Behind there was nothing remarkable, save that the passage-window could be reached from the top of the coach-house. I walked round it and examined it closely from every point of view, but without noting anything else of interest. I then lounged down the street and found, as I expected, that there was a mews in a lane which runs down by one wall of the garden. I lent the ostlers a hand in rubbing down their horses, and received in exchange twopence a glass of half-and-half two fills of shag tobacco, and as much information as I could desire about Miss Adver to say nothing of half a dozen other people in the neighborhood, in whom I was not in the least interested, but whose biographies I was compelled to listen to. And what of Irene Adler, I asked? Oh, she has turned all the men's heads down in that part. She is the daintiest thing under a bonnet on this planet. So say the serpentine muse to a man. She lives quietly, sings at concerts, drives out at five every day, and returns at seven sharp for dinner. Seldom goes out at other times, except when she sings. Has only one male visitor, but a good deal of him. He is dark, handsome, and dashing. Never calls less than once a day, and often twice. He is a Mr. Godfrey Norton of the Inner Temple. See the advantages of a cabman as a confidant? They had driven him home a dozen times from Serpentine Mews, and knew all about him. When I had listened to all they had to tell, I began to walk up and down near Briony Lodge once more, and to think over my plan of campaign. This Godfrey Norton was evidently an important factor in the matter. He was a lawyer. That sounded ominous. What was the relation between them, and what the object of his repeated visits? Was she his client, his friend, or his mistress? If the former, she had probably transferred the photograph to his keeping. If the latter, it was less likely. On the issue of this question depended whether I should continue my work at Briony Lodge, or turn my attention to the gentleman's chambers in the temple. It was a delicate point, and it widened the field of my inquiry. I fear that I bore you with these details, but I have to let you see my little difficulties if you are to understand the situation. I am following you closely, I answered. I was still balancing the matter in my mind when a handsome cab drove up to Briony Lodge, and a gentleman sprang out. He was a remarkably handsome man, dark, aquiline, and mustached, evidently the man of whom I had heard. He appeared to be in a great hurry, shouted to the cabman to wait, and brushed past the maid who opened the door with the air of a man who was thoroughly at home. He was in the house about half an hour and I could catch glimpses of him in the windows of the sitting-room, pacing up and down, talking excitedly, and waving his arms. 
Of her I could see nothing. Presently he emerged, looking even more flurried than before. As he stepped up to the cab, he pulled a gold watch from his pocket and looked at it earnestly. "'Drive like the devil!' he shouted. First to Gross and Hankey's in Regent Street, and then to the church at St. Monica in the Edgware Road. Half a guinea if you do it in twenty minutes.' Away they went, and I was just wondering whether I should not do well to follow them when up the lane came a neat little landau, the coachman with his coat only half-buttoned, and his tie under his ear, while all the tags of his harness were sticking out of the buckles. It hadn't pulled up before she shot out of the hall door and into it. I only caught a glimpse of her at the moment, but she was a lovely woman, with a face that a man might die for. "'The church at St. Monica, John,' she cried, "'and half a sovereign if you reach it in twenty minutes. "'This was quite too good to lose, Watson. "'I was just balancing whether I should run for it "'or whether I should perch behind her landau "'when a cab came through the street. "'The driver looked twice at such a shabby fare, "'but I jumped in before he could object. "'The church at St. Monica,' said I, "'and half a sovereign if you reach it in twenty minutes.' It was twenty-five minutes to twelve, and of course it was clear enough what was in the wind. My cabby drove fast. I don't think I ever drove faster, but the others were there before us. The cab and the landau with their steaming horses were in front of the door when I arrived. I paid the man and hurried into the church. There was not a soul there save the two whom I had followed and a surpliced clergyman who seemed to be expostulating with them. They were all three standing in a knot in front of the altar. I lounged up the side aisle like any other idler who has dropped into a church. Suddenly, to my surprise, the three at the altar faced round to me, and Godfrey Norton came running as hard as he could towards me. Thank goodness, he cried. You'll do. Come, come. What then? I asked. Come, man, come. Only three minutes, or it won't be legal. I was half dragged up to the altar, and before I knew where I was I found myself mumbling responses which were whispered in my ear, and vouching for things of which I knew nothing, and generally assisting in the secure tying up of Irene Adler, spinster, to Godfrey Norton, bachelor. It was all done in an instant, and there was the gentleman thanking me on the one side and the lady on the other, while the clergyman beamed on me in front. It was the most preposterous position in which I ever found myself in my life, and it was the thought of it that started me laughing just now. It seems that there had been some informality about their license, that the clergyman absolutely refused to marry them without a witness of some sort, and that my lucky appearance saved the bridegroom from having to sally out into the streets in search of a best man. The bride gave me a sovereign and I mean to wear it on my watch-chain in memory of the occasion. This is a very unexpected turn of affairs, said I, and what then? Well, I found my plans very seriously menaced. It looked as if the pair might take an immediate departure, and so necessitate very prompt and energetic measures on my part. At the church door, however, they separated, he driving back to the temple and she to her own house. I shall drive out in the park at five as usual, she said as she left him. I heard no more. They drove away in different directions, and I went off to make my own arrangements. Which are? Some cold beef and a glass of beer, he answered, ringing the bell. 
I have been too busy to think of food, and I am likely to be busier still this evening. By the way, doctor, I shall want your cooperation. I shall be delighted. You don't mind breaking the law? Not in the least. Nor running a chance of arrest? Not in a good cause. Oh, the cause is excellent. That I am your man. I was sure that I might rely on you. But what is it you wish? When Mrs. Turner has brought in the tray, I will make it clear to you. Now, he said, as he turned hungrily on the simple fare that our landlady had provided, I must discuss it while I eat, for I have not much time. It is nearly five now. In two hours we must be on the scene of action. Miss Irene, or Madame, rather, returns from her drive at seven. We must be at Briony Lodge to meet her. And what then? You must leave that to me. I have already arranged what is to occur. There is only one point on which I must insist. You must not interfere, come what may. You understand? I am to be neutral? To do nothing whatever. There will probably be some small unpleasantness. Do not join in. It will end in my being conveyed into the house. Four or five minutes afterwards, the sitting-room window will open. You are to station yourself close to that open window. Yes. You are to watch me, for I will be visible to you. Yes. And when I raise my hand, so, you will throw into the room what I give you to throw, and will at the same time raise the cry of fire. You quite follow me? Entirely. It is nothing very formidable, he said, taking a long cigar-shaped roll from his pocket. It is an ordinary plumber's smoke rocket, fitted with a cap at either end to make itself lighting. Your task is confined to that. When you raise your cry of fire, it will be taken up by quite a number of people. You may then walk to the end of the street, and I will rejoin you in ten minutes. I hope that I have made myself clear. I am to remain neutral, to get near the window, to watch you, and at the signal to throw in this object, then to raise the cry of fire, and to wait you at the corner of the street, precisely. Then you may entirely rely on me. That is excellent. I think, perhaps, it is almost time that I prepare for the new role I have to play. He disappeared into his bedroom and returned in a few minutes in the character of an amiable and simple-minded nonconformist clergyman. His broad black hat, his baggy trousers, his white tie, his sympathetic smile, and general look of peering and benevolent curiosity were such as Mr. John Hare alone could have equaled. It was not merely that Holmes changed his costume. His expression, his manner, his very soul seemed to vary with every fresh part that he assumed. The stage lost a fine actor, even as science lost an acute reasoner when he became a specialist in crime. It was a quarter past six when we left Baker Street, and it still wanted ten minutes to the hour when we found ourselves in Serpentine Avenue. It was already dusk and the lamps were just being lighted as we paced up and down in front of Briony Lodge, waiting for the coming of its occupant. The house was just such as I had pictured it from Sherlock Holmes' succinct description, but the locality appeared to be less private than I expected. 
On the contrary, for a small street in a quiet neighborhood, it was remarkably animated. There was a group of shabbily dressed men smoking and laughing in a corner, a scissors grinder with its wheel, two guardsmen who were flirting with a nurse girl, and several well-dressed young men who were lounging up and down with cigars in their mouths. "'You see,' remarked Holmes, as we paced to and fro in front of the house, "'this marriage rather simplifies matters. "'The photograph becomes a double-edged weapon now. "'The chances are that she would be as averse to its being seen by Mr. Godfrey Norton "'as our client is to its coming to the eyes of his princess. "'Now the question is, where are we to find the photograph?' "'Where, indeed?' It is most unlikely that she carries it about with her. It is cabinet-sized, too large for easy concealment about a woman's dress. She knows that the king is capable of having her waylaid and searched. Two attempts of the sort have already been made. We may take it, then, that she does not carry it about with her. Where, then? Her banker or her lawyer. There is that double possibility but I am inclined to think neither. Women are naturally secretive, and they like to do their own secreting. Why should she hand it over to anyone else? She could trust her own guardianship, but she could not tell what indirect or political influence might be brought to bear upon a businessman. Besides, remember that she had resolved to use it within a few days. It must be where she can lay her hands upon it, it must be in her own house. But it has twice been burgled. Pshaw! They did not know how to look. But how will you look? I will not look. What then? I will get her to show me. But she will refuse. She will not be able to. But I hear the rumble of wheels. It is her carriage. Now carry out my orders to the letter. As he spoke, the gleam of the side-lights of a carriage came round the curve of the avenue. It was a smart little landau which rattled up to the door of Briony Lodge. As it pulled up, one of the loafing men at the corner dashed forward to open the door in the hope of earning a copper, but was elbowed away by another loafer, who had rushed up with the same intention. A fierce quarrel broke out, which was increased by the two guardsmen, who took sides with one of the loungers, and by the scissors grinder, who was equally hot upon the other side. A blow was struck, and in an instant the lady who had stepped from her carriage was the center of a little knot of flushed and struggling men, who struck savagely at each other with their fists and sticks. Holmes dashed into the crowd to protect the lady, but just as he reached her he gave a cry and dropped to the ground with the blood running freely down his face. At his fall the guardsmen took to their heels in one direction and the loungers in the other, while a number of better-dressed people who had watched the scuffle without taking part in it crowded in to help the lady and to attend to the injured man. Irene Adler, as I will still call her, had hurried up the steps, but she stood at the top with her superb figure outlined against the lights of the hall, looking back into the street. "'Is the poor gentleman much hurt?' she asked. "'He is dead,' cried several voices. "'No, no, there's life in him,' shouted another. "'But he'll be gone before we can get him to hospital.' "'He's a brave fellow,' said a woman. "'They would have had the lady's purse and watch if it hadn't been for him.' 
They were a gang, and a rough one, too. Ah, he's breathing now. He can't lie on the street. May we bring him in, Marm? Surely bring him into the sitting-room. There is a comfortable sofa. This way, please. Slowly and solemnly he was borne into Briony Lodge, and laid out in the principal room, while I still observed the proceedings from my post by the window. The lamps had been lit, but the blinds had not been drawn, so that I could see Holmes as he lay upon the couch. I do not know whether he was seized with compunction at that moment for the part he was playing, but I know that I never felt more heartily ashamed of myself in my life than when I saw the beautiful creature against whom I was conspiring, or the grace and kindliness with which she waited upon the injured man. And yet it would be the blackest treachery to Holmes to draw back now from the part which he had entrusted to me. I hardened my heart and took the smoke rocket from under my ulster. After all, I thought, we are not injuring her. We are but preventing her from injuring another. Holmes had sat up upon the couch, and I saw him motion like a man who is in need of air. A maid rushed across and threw open the window. At the same instant I saw him raise his hand, and at the signal I tossed my rocket into the room with a cry of fire. The word was no sooner out of my mouth than the whole crowd of spectators, well-dressed and ill, gentlemen, ostlers, and servant-maids, joined in a general shriek of fire. Thick clouds of smoke curled through the room and out at the open window. I caught a glimpse of rushing figures, and a moment later the voice of Holmes from within assuring them that it was a false alarm. Slipping through the shouting crowd, I made my way to the corner of the street, and in ten minutes was rejoiced to find my friend's arm in mine, and to get away from the scene of uproar. He walked swiftly and in silence for some few minutes until we had turned down one of the quiet streets which led towards the Edgware Road. "'You did it very nicely, doctor,' he remarked. "'Nothing could have been better. It is all right. You have the photograph?' "'I know where it is.' And how did you find out? She showed me as I told you she would. I am still in the dark. I do not wish to make a mystery, said he, laughing. The matter was perfectly simple. You, of course, saw that everyone in the street was an accomplice. They were all engaged for the evening. I guessed as much. Then, when the row broke out, I had a little moist red paint in the palm of my hand. I rushed forward, fell down, clapped my hand to my face, and became a piteous spectacle. It is an old trick, that also I could fathom. Then they carried me in. She was bound to have me in. What else could she do? And into her sitting-room, which was the very room which I suspected. It lay between that and her bedroom, and I was determined to see which. They laid me on a couch. I motioned for air. They were compelled to open the window, and you had your chance. How did that help you? It was all important. When a woman thinks that her house is on fire, her instinct is at once to rush to the thing which she values most. It is a perfectly overpowering impulse, and I have more than once taken advantage of it. In the case of the Darlington substitution scandal, it was of use to me, and also in the Arnsworth Castle business. A married woman grabs at her baby. An unmarried one reaches for her jewel box. Now it was clear to me that our lady of today had nothing in the house more precious to her than what we are in quest of. She would rush to secure it. The alarm of fire was admirably done. The smoke and shouting were enough to shake nerves of steel. She responded beautifully. 
The photograph is in a recess behind a sliding panel just above the right bell-pull. She was there in an instant, and I caught a glimpse of it as she half drew it out. When I cried out that it was a false alarm, she replaced it, glanced at the rocket, rushed from the room, and I have not seen her since. I rose, and, making my excuses, escaped from the house. I hesitated whether to attempt to secure the photograph at once, but the coachman had come in, and as he was watching me narrowly, it seemed safer to wait. A little over-precipitance may ruin all. And now, I asked, our quest is practically finished. I shall call with the king tomorrow, and with you, if you care to come with us. We will be shown into the sitting-room to wait for the lady, but it is probable that when she comes she may find neither us nor the photograph. It might be a satisfaction to his majesty to regain it with his own hand. And when would you call? At eight in the morning. She will not be up, so that we shall have a clear field. Besides, we must be prompt, for this marriage may mean a complete change in her life and habits. I must wire to the king without delay. We had reached Baker Street and had stopped at the door. He was searching his pockets for the key when someone passing said, Good night, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. There were several people on the pavement at the time, but the greeting appeared to come from a slim youth in an ulster who had hurried by. I've heard that voice before, said Holmes, staring down the dimly lit street. Now I wonder who the deuce that could have been. I slept at Baker Street that night, and we were engaged upon our toast and coffee in the morning when the King of Bohemia rushed into the room. "'You have really got it?' he cried, grasping Sherlock Holmes by either shoulder and looking eagerly into his face. "'Not yet.' "'But you have hopes?' "'I have hopes.' "'Then come. I am all impatience to be gone. We must have a cab.' "'No, my brougham is waiting.' "'Then that will simplify matters.' We descended and started off once more for Briony Lodge. Irene Adler is married, remarked Holmes. Married? When? Yesterday. But to whom? To an English lawyer named Norton. But she could not love him. I am in hopes that she does. And why in hopes? Because it would spare your majesty all fear of future annoyance. If the lady loves her husband, she does not love your majesty. If she does not love your majesty, there is no reason why she should interfere with your majesty's plan. It is true, and yet, uh, well, I wish she had been of my own station. What a queen she would have made. He relapsed into moody silence, which was not broken until we drew up in Serpentine Avenue. The door of Briony Lodge was open, and an elderly woman stood upon the steps. She watched us with a sardonic eye as we stepped from the brougham. "'Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I believe,' said she. "'I am Holmes,' answered my companion, looking at her with a questioning and rather startled gaze. "'Indeed, my mistress told me that you were likely to call. She left this morning with her husband by the 5.15 train from Charing Cross for the continent.' "'What?' Sherlock Holmes staggered back white with chagrin and surprise do you mean that she has left england never to return and the papers asked the king hoarsely all is lost we shall see he pushed past the servant and rushed into the drawing-room followed by the king and myself 
The furniture was scattered about in every direction, with dismantled shelves and open drawers, as if the lady had hurriedly ransacked them before her flight. Holmes rushed at the bell-pull, tore back a small sliding shutter, and plunging in his hand pulled out a photograph and a letter. The photograph was of Irene Adler herself in evening dress. The letter was superscribed to Sherlock Holmes, Esquire, to be left till called for. My friend tore it open, and we all three read it together. It was dated at midnight of the preceding night, and ran in this way. You really did it very well. You took me in completely, until after the alarm of fire I had not a suspicion. But then, when I found how I had betrayed myself, I began to think. I had been warned against you months ago. I had been told that if the king employed an agent, it would certainly be you, and your address had been given me. Yet with all this you made me reveal what you wanted to know. Even after I became suspicious I found it hard to think evil of such a dear, kind old clergyman. But you know, I have been trained as an actress myself. Male costume is nothing new to me. I often take advantage of the freedom which it gives. I sent John, the coachman, to watch you, ran upstairs, got into my walking clothes, as I call them, and came down just as you departed. Well, I followed you to your door, and so made sure that I was really an object of interest to the celebrated Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Then I, rather imprudently, wished you good night, and started for the temple to see my husband. We both thought the best resource was flight, when pursued by so formidable an antagonist, so you will find the nest empty when you call tomorrow. As to the photograph, your client may rest in peace. I love and am loved by a better man than he. The king may do what he will without hindrance from one whom he has cruelly wronged. I keep it only to safeguard myself and to preserve a weapon which will always secure me from any steps which he might take in the future. I leave a photograph which he might care to possess, and I remain, dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, very truly yours, Irene Norton, nay, Adler. What a woman! Oh, what a woman! cried the King of Bohemia, when we had all three read this epistle. Did I not tell you how quick and resolute she was? Would she not have made an admirable queen? Is it not a pity that she was not on my level? From what I have seen of the lady, she seems indeed to be on a very different level to your majesty, said Holmes coldly. I am sorry that I have not been able to bring your majesty's business to a more successful conclusion. On the contrary, my dear sir, cried the king, nothing could be more successful. I know that her word is inviolate. The photograph is now as safe as if it were in the fire. I am glad to hear your majesty say so. I am immensely indebted to you. Pray tell me in what way I can reward you. This ring, he slipped an emerald snake ring from his finger and held it out upon the palm of his hand. Your majesty has something which I should value even more highly, said Holmes. You have but to name it, this photograph. The king stared at him in amazement. Irene's photograph, he cried. Certainly, if you wish it. I thank your majesty. Then there is no more to be done in the matter. I have the honor to wish you a very good morning. He bowed, and turning away without observing the hand which the king had stretched out to him, he set off in my company for his chambers. And that was how a great scandal threatened to affect the kingdom of Bohemia. 
and how the best plans of Mr. Sherlock Holmes were beaten by a woman's wit. He used to make merry over the cleverness of women, but I have not heard him do it of late, and when he speaks of Irene Adler, or when he refers to her photograph, it is always under the honorable title of The Woman. End of A Scandal in Bohemia by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle